All right, everybody, we are now live. I just got my email and my messages on my phone that say we're live on YouTube, so that's nice. And Yay! Live! Everybody say hi to Richard. Richard, say hi so everyone can reply, and then... Yeah, how come I can't see the comments? Uh, they're like, a YouTube you're... live stream. Oh, okay. You could open, like, YouTube on your phone and mute it. Oh, there we go. No, I can see you and I can see me, but... No, it's kind of... Oh, I can I... see it. It's go ahead, We're Matt. using a Google Meet and everybody else is on YouTube Live. Oh, okay. So do I need to go on YouTube Live to see him? Yeah, like, uh, you could open YouTube and check it out and just watch the comments and mute the audio. I've thought okay. about... I can... You can... I can add another box to the screen that just shows uh the live street or the live comments but well so if i can't see the comments are you going to be asking questions or something yeah, i, know I, didn't I know have a whole them. i have a whole notepad of previous questions uh that people okay. asked ahead of time and i like to go over those first and okay. then as we go on uh i will take some from the live chat if they're not awful <laughs> Even those are fine. That's, that's well, fine. if it adds to the conversation, I ask them. So yeah, no, that's good because I, I when I go through all of my stuff, obviously I've been doing this for a while, and we used to get letters about that stuff, but now obviously it's easy for guys to make comments. But when they make comments, I always thank them, even if they're saying, "Hey, your stuff is garbage. You don't do apples to apples tests." Whatever their comment is, I always thank them for making a comment because that's whether it's good or bad. I want to hear from them, man. Yeah, similarly with me, and then I will combat those people also <laughs> so i'm waiting oh, yeah, for people let them walk in and tell you what to do <laughs> okay someone finally said loud and clear i i asked and everyone's just excited and they're like hi richard you guys are great thanks for everything you both of you do but oh, uh, so they're already lying yeah usually they they're like hey we can hear you but everyone's just saying hello instead and i'm like before we start can you guys hear us yeah come on okay Let's hear yeah it. they all say they can so okay Everybody, uh, I mean, I would think that everybody on here knows who you are, but you are Richard Holdener, and you are uh, article writer, dino tester, myth buster, excited <laughs> man, extraordinaire, article writer, everything. So and, I've been doing uh, it a long time. So I guess we will open up with uh, Chris Johnson asked a fantastic question, and I think it's Chris. good. It's a good preface to everything we were talking about, which I would ask this anyway, but he wrote a, more elegantly. So, Nice job, Chris. So he writes, I'd actually like to hear your story, Richard Holdener. What started you in the very beginning, where the passion came from, different places you worked for, and the, the testing you have logged has been priceless to builders, a lot of myths bust. Uh, cheers to Chris, eloquently put. Oh, it's gonna be a long night. Um, this all the automotive portion of it started a, a long time ago. I mean, my first car. I'm sure somebody's gonna ask that, so we'll we'll get get into that right away. My first car was a 1970 and a half split bumper Rally Sport Camaro. Unfortunately for me, it was not a Z28. It was a base model, but still, I loved it. It was cool, and I did things um, to it that most of the people in my in my small town. 
they were all doing um, air shocks and, you know, jacking the things up and wanting to go drag racing. But I did mine for road racing. So I like went to the wrecking yard and I got Trans Am sway bars and big block springs and we cut them and we did all that seven Z28 uh, leaf springs and things. So I liked road racing. So this all happened even before, but the the way that I went down the path that I went down to, to start doing my career basically was that uh, I was out at a, a race called the Silver State Race out in Nevada. And it's an open road race where they basically close the road for 92 miles, a uh, stretch of Highway 318, let you run as fast as you want. So when they did this, I'd been down to the La Carrera before, which is a similar race down in Mexico. And when I heard they were going to do it in the United States, I thought, you know, I've got to get over and do that immediately because there's no way that that's going to continue. <laughs> Something bad's going to happen, you know, and, and they're, 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 somebody's going to realize you're letting people do what on a public highway? There's no way that that's going to happen. So I went out and ran that. And while I was there, there was a guy there doing a story for Kip Kington at the or the publisher of Turbo Magazine. And he came up and interviewed me because Kip is a five liter Mustang guy, or he was, and a great guy. And I loved him and he got me started in all this. But the guy interviewed me about my, I had a, I bought a 1988 five liter notch, basically a Ohio Patrol car because I wanted to go showroom stock racing. I wanted to road race and that's why I bought it. But I took it out to Silver State, ran in the Silver State for the first year. And this guy interviewed me. And a couple of weeks later, I called the, the guys at Turbo just out of the blue and said, hey, there was a guy, you know, I was all excited. There was a guy out there doing an interview. And when is the story going to come out? Because I want to read about all this cool stuff that happened out of the Silver State race. And, and then Kip got on the phone and he said, hey, uh, this is Kip. And, you know, this guy wrote the story, but I'm not sure he captured like what this what this race seems like it was all about. Would you mind reading this and telling me if this is what happened at the race? And so I thought, wow, I'm, I'm a nobody. You know, you know, this is the publisher of the magazine asking me to do this. I said, dude, I'd be honored. I'll take a look at it and tell you. And then I felt really, really bad because I read this story and I'm like, how am I going to call Kip back and tell him that, that this is terrible, that this is not at all what this this thing was about. So how am I this nobody that has a five liter Mustang? How am I going to say this? But I told him, I said, look, this guy didn't really capture the coolness of what this race was. And so, you know, I just thought, well, what can he tell me? He can hang up on me. He can do whatever. So, you know, I'm, I'm okay. But he said, Hey, would you mind writing some stuff down and we'll try to integrate it into the story so we can kind of improve the coolness of the story. And I'm like, yeah, I, I will. Be, I would be happy to. I just threw this guy's story away and wrote my own and turned it in. And then that turned out to be the first story that I wrote. And I went off down this path. And I unfortunately for my parents, I, I got a degree in advertising and I got job offers from professors because I was, you know, I, I want to say I was reasonably clever. And they wanted me to come work for them. But I decided, no, you know what I want to do? Instead, I want to go to wrecking yards and sleep on the floor at West Tech and go down the unlucrative <laughs> career of working on cars. That is awesome. Well, that is a great answer to all of those questions. So I I'm think sorry that, it's so long-winded. <laughs> no, I mean, you had a lot to explain. I think you paraphrased, summarized extremely well and very fast. So... I'm a speed talker. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So here's one that comes up every time. I'm just going to ask both at the same time and get it out of the way early. Your favorite pizza and ice cream flavors. 
my favorite pizza is from a local pizza place here in where I live um, called Pietro's, and it's a, it's called a super special. And I like it mostly because of the sausage that they have. But honestly, um, the pizza that they have down at West Tech from Pizza Pirate, I get um, pepperoni and sausage. So for me, it's really hard to have bad pizza. <laughs> I, I like pizza a lot. Um, I'll even get truck stop pizza, all of that stuff. So I'm I'm all in. And so what was the second part of that? Besides the pizza? Ice cream. Oh, um, I like Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream, which is odd because I don't drink coffee and I don't like the taste of coffee, but Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream is like highest on the list. Then, (laughs) I'd like to ask this also in the beginning as an introduction, and it's, how did you hear about sloppy mechanics, and do you think it's good or bad for car culture, hot rodding, racing, etc.? I heard about it from, I think I heard about it from Troy, the young guy that works at West Tech. Um, this was, and this was way back. This is, you know, sometime after I had done the, um, the, the first Big Bang motor that turned out to be a 4.8. And uh, I think Troy told me, hey, you need to go on and take a look at the sloppy mechanic stuff because they're doing this kind of stuff. And so I'm like, OK, cool. I'm I'm all, all in. <laughs> and then I think the first time I went in, I got attacked because everyone was telling me, oh, you're just trying to be like mad and <laughs> stuff. I'm like, look, I'm not trying to be like anybody. But the cool thing is that like when I'm at West Tech and, and Brule and I or when Freiburger comes or Dulcich, there are a few guys that are like real guys, like guys that get their hands dirty and work on engines and do that stuff. And so the conversation that I can have with them is different than I have with a guy that would be one of their customers that might bring a car in and, and want to get it tuned or that kind of thing. A lot of guys don't know, you know, you have to adapt the level that you can speak to people. That's why I like, like sloppy mechanics, I think is awesome because I can talk to people that actually like our hands on guys and do that stuff. And, and I, <laughs> I love, cause I, you know, we can't as an individual, we can't think about all the things that are cool that we could do to solve problems, but there's lots and lots of guys out there. And so I like looking at that stuff and seeing that kind of ingenuity. I think it's awesome. Yeah. So the other, oh man. I had a I had a comment, but there's it's very squirrel there. I'm sorry. We'll just we'll skip over what I was gonna say. Well, yeah, that's where both of us come in similarly. Is we will say something even if it makes people unhappy, even if we're wrong. Because I yeah. like to learn. So if I'm like I I'm opinionated and I don't care. So <laughs> I'll that's be the like, definition of opinionated, right? <laughs> I'll be like, this is what I do, and I think you're wrong. And if someone can come back and say, this is why you're wrong, I go, wow, I learned something. And then I tell people that. Uh, And I constantly say, I'm not a professional. I'm always learning. But this is what I do. And it works. And people can repeat the result. And I'm like, you know, it's probably not the perfect way, but uh, it's cheap, cost effective, and it does work. So I don't know what to tell you. Well, the thing is, you're and you made an important point there, and a lot of guys miss that. A lot of guys, and this is unfortunate with the internet because I get this a lot, that people are much more interested in having people think that they're right than actually being right. And the point that you made is you don't mind making a mistake and then learning from that and figuring out the real answer. That's where we get knowledge and experience, and that's important. If you're right about everything, you're not going to learn anything. And (laughs) 
I'm now at the point where I know a whole lot less than I did when I was in my 20s when I knew everything. Yes, of course. That is the the curse of learning more and more is, is uh, you know, realizing yeah. you don't know as much as you thought you did. And I had oh, yeah. an interesting conversation uh, with Brian Tooley. It'd be cool to have him on. I'm sure he would agree to. Oh, but... yeah. He, Brian's, Brian's great people. I remember him saying the same thing to me and everyone would be like, he's the God of knowledge. And he's like, I just did something he explained, but I don't want to tell everybody. He's like, I just did this. And I realized everything I've done uh, is comparable to this. And now I want to change everything I know. So yep. similarly, but the pe- thing is he was open to that. Yeah. That's the important thing. Yeah. He doesn't care. He's, he knows that that's how you grow is, is learning things. So yeah, he's not afraid to test. That's why, that's one of the reasons, and I'm sure somebody's going to ask this, but that's one of the reasons that I like the dyno so much is because I'm not giving you my opinion about what this cam did with this cam. Here's what happened when we tested that, and I don't care if you call this A and call this B, but when we ran these two cams, uh, here, here's what happened. And all the comments I get, I'm sure you get the same thing, is that they'll tell you, oh, you just cheated this test because you wanted this one to win. I'm like... I don't sell either one of the cams. I don't offer tuning. I don't do any of this. I don't care which one does what. And But, you know, for them, it's all this conspiracy theory thing. Similarly, a lot of people copy my combination and then contact me for tuning. And I like when someone has something that I don't really know about, and it surprises me. I'm like, cool. Yeah. Uh, I did a, a truck the other day a while back at uh, Maple Grove Auto. And he had one of those Tom Demuse uh, blower kits where you yeah, take a GT5 and an M122 GT500 blower uh, with his sandwich on a, a Magnuson lower. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I don't know how this is going to be. I was very skeptical as normal. I'm like, I have to see this do well. And it was rocky at first, but then I made like 564 rear wheel through a 1500 truck to the tire nice. on pump. I was like, okay, this works. And I was yeah, pleasantly wait a second surprised. Up. Yeah. How, so how, do you, how do you think that that compares to the LSA that you had on your 4.8? I think it did extremely well. I would love to see more of like uh, apples to apples there. But uh, that's a lot on pump and not much boost. I, could br- I have to look at the log, but I don't think it was anything crazy on boost. And it was on pump gas. So you didn't have very much timing in it either if you had it on pump gas, right? No, it was conservative in, in my definition for being a heavy-ass truck and pump fuel. I didn't want to get wild with it. but uh, Oh, yeah. So That's we'll why go... we test this stuff. You put stuff on there and find out, and sometimes it surprises us. That's what's cool. Yeah, that's why, I mean, early on, I would just do, I still do, I just do dumb things just to see. Like, I did 862 heads on my G and picked up power. And people are like, why would you put crappy 862s on? And I'm like, because they have a smaller chamber and the blower's stuffing air in there. So what does it need to... I mean, obviously, if you have like... You would hope that the best thing you could do is spend a ton of money on gigantic cylinder heads and make a ton of power on less boost or or whatever. But you've tested that. I've tested it. It doesn't always happen. So... All the head guys certainly want you to do that. But I I remember when I did the first test, because... I, and I'd been doing, I'd been having this conversation with Brian Tooley for years because 
he wants he wanted everybody to put the 799 243 heads on it because they get a lot of that a lot of the 53s the the um L33s and the LC9s and stuff um but I said you know as I said I know that every book has told us that a 243 is better than the 706 or an 862 I said but has anybody ever really tested it like like how much better is it so after I did that first test people came unglued like the 799 243 guys were up in arms about the crappy 706 862 head being better than their, you know, the best LS6 head. Because if you look at uh, uh, Hansel's book on, it says you got to LS6 everything. And and that's the road everyone went down. And then after I did this test, they're like, oh, no, you've got to mill the head and you've got to do all this stuff. I'm like, look. I don't sell 862 heads. I don't care who wins. This is just what happened. But people lost their mind. Same thing I would do is I would have tons of decent power combinations with crappy turbo setups and everything. And I would say, yeah, I have 706s. And everyone's like, it was just, it was uh, what I always make fun of carbureted guys is, yeah. They people regurgitate stuff they know nothing about and no one has tested because one guy said it and it may have been an advertiser that was gaming something. And that's yeah. where you end up with people that say <laughs> something's good and you say, please explain or have some sort of proof or a delta about what happened. And nobody has it. And that's where I become the giant prick and I start <laughs> shoving people about it. And then they yeah. don't like me. But then I will go test it on my own. And uh, I like when someone argues with me and I'm like, well, I have 50 videos showing the exact opposite of what you're saying. And I have a, a 25 customers that I've tuned their car that that yeah. worked well. And I'm like, where's your ammunition? And I, not that I want to be like I have so much or I have some clout that I can use against you. But what I'm trying to prove is your reasoning is flawed and you should reconsider. I know, but Matt, you're using data against opinion, and that, that that's not a fair battle. It's upsetting to a lot of people. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we'll move on, and uh, before we both soapbox too much, I don't have Jamie here to moderate me. Maybe she'll jump in the chat later when the little guy's asleep and be like, Matt, shut up, <laughs> ask another question, <laughs> let Richard talk. Uh, that's, that's for later on. Michael Narks asks, what's the fastest car you've built for yourself and what was the setup? So meaning like nothing you did commercially or on your job, but something you owned. Yeah. Um, the fastest car I've ever built, <clears throat> I built the motor for, but I didn't build the car. Uh, I helped with the car, but I'm not the fabricator. I'm not good enough to do that, but it was actually a Civic. My, my Bonneville Civic, it was a 1999 Civic SI. And there's a whole long story that would have to be two or three drinks in before I would tell that story, the reason why I did it. But we took it to Bonneville, and that car went 227 miles an hour. So it was, in, and I think still is, it might still be the world's fastest Honda Civic. And we, I, I built that motor, and it made 750 or, no, seven made 728 at about 29 pounds. But we only ever ran it at Bonneville at about 16 or 17 pounds. And it went that speed in the fourth mile before the axle popped out. So it was a little bit of an exciting ride. <laughs> um, uh, 
Uh, I can tell that story really quick because it was fun. Because we, so we went out and we actually set the record and the axle had popped out. This was a used, um, you know, uh, LS, an Integra LS gearbox that I had a different final drive made. I had a 4.0 final drive made for it, but it, but it had like, you know, 200,000 miles on or whatever. And we had stock shafts in it and stuff. And when I was going through the fourth mile, the axle popped out and I thought, oh, great, something broke. And so I managed to gather the thing up and everything was okay. And, but we had set the record. And so what, what happens when you set the record at Bonneville, you go into impound and then you can, uh, then you have to wait till the morning and all the record setters get to go out first early in the morning and try to back up the record. So you have to make that run twice to get the official record. So what we did was we went and bought a brand new axle shaft. Really, all we had to do was push that one back in. <laughs> but we didn't know that. We thought we had a broken one. <coughs> so we put a brand new <coughs> – I breathed in my drink. Um, we put in a brand new axle shaft, but without breaking in that axle shaft, which is, by the way, as I'll tell you, is not a good idea at that kind of speed. We put that back in, went back out reset the record but at a, when i was driving at about the three mile marker the car started wanting to turn to the right really bad the axle shaft was going away and i thought i'm making it to the fourth mile where <laughs> we are getting that record whatever happens and so i just stayed in it and i was like you know putting opposite lock in it all the way to the fourth mile and right at the fourth mile mark just all hell broke loose <laughs> the car darted to one side and i just reached up and pulled the chute and trying to straighten it out but while that was happening because like when you pull the chute the chute will just straighten the car out and, and good things will happen but i'm trying to like steer with the wheel and steer in you know i'm doing my road racing stuff i'm trying to catch the car and then then i remembered hey you shouldn't be doing this because if the wheel catches it's going to snap your thumbs off so we ended up breaking that record and but the car was on a on a terror to go a lot faster than that. So there was, there's the, was a lot more potential. I ended up selling that car to a friend of mine and he's since gone out and set three other records and got him and his two sons in the 200 mile an hour club with that Civic. So it was a really good car. That's awesome for it being a four cylinder import too. Probably not what people expected out of you. It was a, it was a sub because the class that we were in was two liters or less. So it was a, a big bore B18 with a 72 millimeter turbo and an air to water intercooler, ice water and stuff. So it was making, you know, it was probably making 500 or so at the tire when we ran it at that speed. That's crazy. That's awesome. Well, I have, uh, our next one. It's another food one. So we'll just ask it. Uh, Fred Sermon asks, does he like Moe's or Chipotle more? I I don't eat at Chipotle. I can't remember the last time I ate there. Um, and I don't know what Moe's is, so I don't know that I can answer that. Uh, it's a similar, like, Mex-American burrito taco place. Uh, there's a bunch on the East Coast, and they're pretty garbage out here. I would probably be more Taco Bell. Oh, that's a solid bet right there. Well, here's another one. Ryan Albert asks, what engine surprised him the most and what engine was the least impressive that you tested or dynoed? This should be good. The one that I think surprised me the most um, <laughs> was actually the first Big Bang motor. <laughs> For two reasons. One, because, you know, before we did this, 
people were saying that, oh, the LS rods break at whatever, the pistons break, they won't take more than 10 pounds of boost, yada, 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 because this is back in 2010. And so everyone was saying the same things that they said about Hondas and small block Chevys and every Just other regurgitation of incorrectness. Oh, yeah, I mean, Sean Hyland did that book on modular Fords and said, you can't run a two valve over 400 horsepower because then they break. And I'm like, dude, the first one I ever put on the dyno made 650 with a blower on it. I said, so I know that that's not true. But the 4.8 surprised me the most because we were kind of trying to break it. And we just kept going up and boost and up and boost and up and boost. And pretty soon, like after we passed the thousand horsepower mark, that's when I transitioned. That's when I'm like, okay, I like this motor now. I, I, and I'm getting to the point where I love this motor and I no longer want it to break. I want it to be something good. And the whole time we were, I thought it was a 5.3 because I never even really looked. I just, I got, okay, I'm going to go get a 5.3 from the wrecking yard. We put it up and I remember we ran it NA and I'm thinking, man, why does this thing want to make peak power out at 7,000 RPM with this camshaft? This shouldn't do that. Nah, let's just put boost in it. It'll be fine. And then we ran boost to it. And then after I took it back apart, I'm like, oh, wait, it wanted to make peak power way out there because it's a 4.8 and not a 5.3. So that was probably the most surprising. Um, and the least, I think the least powerful one, the least powerful one that I ever did is we did a small block Chevy with everything stock on it. Like it had stock 882 heads, it had stock pistons in it, it had stock exhaust manifolds, it had a two barrel, it had all this stuff on it, and it made a whopping 229 horsepower. <laughs> and this is the way that we run it. I mean, like optimum air conditions and, and a, a, you know, a, a, an electric water pump and no accessories and anything like that. I'm thinking, man, how, how bad is this motor really when it's in a car? I mean, this thing would be awful. You know, through an automatic that's but... unlocked through a tire, through oh, whatever. Man. This is why I talk so much trash on the small block, because people are like, wow. And then I dyno them, and they make a 180 wheel, and they're like, that's wrong. And I'm like, no, yeah. bro, it is not wrong. And then I make yeah. fun of big blocks, because similarly, people do the same thing. And they yeah. they make like 220, 250, and it's a 500-inch motor. And yeah. back like a, many years ago, about 10 years ago, I would talk so much smack on big block guys, and I would say to them, like, if this makes more than 300 wheel, I'll give you $300. And if it makes less than 300 wheel, you owe me $300. Yeah. And no one would ever take that offer. No matter how no, much power no. they thought it made, they would no. not take that offer. And that would always make me laugh. Yeah. And you see that in, um, you especially see that, uh, disappointment in guys that have a lot of these older muscle car motors. Now I, I love like 69 Camaros and 70 Chevelles and all. I think that they look fantastic, but the reality is they didn't, I mean, back then they made a lot of power, especially compared to stuff that came earlier. But when you put a DZ302 on a chassis dyno, <laughs> and it makes 250 you're, you're you're doing okay with that motor oh well i think you talked about this a little bit but it'd be cool to get uh exact or elaborate so it's from josh and he says i'd like to hear him talk about the transition from print media to writing books to the digital <laughs> age and how he thinks it's affected hot rodding and misinformation and marketing regarding performance parts and building engines Etc. I know you touched on that on your way yeah. up through your career build. Well, that's a <laughs> that's a really long question. 
But the I can tell you this story. Um, for years, people have been had been telling me that, hey, you need to have a YouTube channel. I'm like, that's <laughs> that's a flash in the pan. That, that'll never work. <laughs> um, but more, it, it was actually not that. It was actually more because I didn't understand it and know what it was and know how to make it work. So I never did it. But eventually I decided, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to do it and I'm going to start doing it. And I have lots and lots of data. I have 25 years worth of data to put up there. So I just need to figure it out and do it. And right after I did that is when for the guys from Discovery bought all of the magazines and then subsequently decided, hey, look, we don't really know anything about magazines and we don't like magazines, so we're going to kill all the magazines. So that changed what I was doing for a living effectively, because before that I was writing for all the magazines. We know how I started and I've been doing that since I basically a year and a half ago or so when I started my YouTube channel had been doing that nonstop. And there's lots and lots of problems associated with doing that. Um, money being one of them, obviously. But so I, I transitioned into doing these videos, but it's not a big transition for me because I'm doing videos, one, about something that I know something about and also about stuff that I've done testing on and had done magazine stories. I'm just doing it in a different format. So that was fairly easy for me. And we had been talking for the 10 years before that, that we are transitioning from print into digital, the guys just hadn't figured out a way to make digital profitable in the magazine uh, era until, you know, fairly recently. So for me, it would, I'm, I'm glad that I started and did it at the right time because I would have had to do it two or three weeks later. <laughs> Come on, camera. Camera wants to fade <laughs> in and out. All right. Oh, where's a good one? This is good. This is a good breakup from serious questions. Do you look at cam bearings? Uh, not on junkyard motors. We don't. I mean, I may I may see it as the last, you know, uh, cam lover cam bearing comes out, um, or the journal comes out, but it'll just be happenstance. If it's a junkyard motor and we're putting a cam in it, it's already on the dyno and I've already run it, so I'm committed and we're just going to do it anyway. I've only ever had one time when a cam bearing went bad and it was on, it was during a test where I was running a bunch of different factory cams. And so in the middle of that test, I had to do a block swap and it's the first time I've ever had to do that. So because the cam locked up in the bearing and, and spun the bearing. And so the cam was stuck in the, um, that particular cam was an LS6 cam and it was stuck in the block. So I had no choice. So I took that motor off, stripped everything out of that motor and put everything from that motor in another block and then did another baseline test with the stock LM7 cam to make sure that that was the same. And the guys at Westech are just shaking their head like, you just did a block swap? I'm like, yeah, you know, you got to do Because I said, I, I need to know that it's making the same power if I'm going to continue with the test and show that and not have to retest every one of these cams. If the if the original cam... Um, you know, repeats perfectly, then I know that everything's, that everything's good. And there's, they're like, you're just nuts. You're, <laughs> you work too hard. Just unmuting myself. So no one hears me slamming my mechanical keyboard the whole time or mouth breathing. Yeah. It's very noisy, but it's very satisfying if you've never used one. 
Is it, is, it, is it a Smith Corona keyboard? <laughs> no, it's a newer. Uh, it's not like an old IBM AT five pin connector that's as big as your thumb, but it's nice. Nice. What type of razor does he use to shave his head with? I have a funny story about that. The guys from Harry Shave or somebody, an intermediary, contacted me about sponsoring something on the channel to do that. I thought, you know what? I, I don't have channel sponsors and I've been offered a lots of stuff and, and none of them are a good match for the channel. So I just turned them all down. I said, look, this isn't about, it's not about a money thing. I said, I do testing and if the product works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But if there's something that I can integrate into the channel nicely and, it, and it's effective and it's good information for the people, then I'll do it. So I thought, okay, people ask about shaving my head all the time. So a shaver is like the perfect thing. And I said, look, I'm all in on doing this. So what do we need to do? And they gave me a list of all of these things that I had to say and the way that I had to say it. And and this isn't about we don't recommend you shave your head with this, that you just shave your face. And I'm like, look, I I'm sorry. I, I use that. I use your product. I've used your product for two years and it works really well. And I shave my head and shave my face with it all the time. I said, it works great. I said, and that's the reason that I would be willing to do this, because I wouldn't just be saying this is great without ever having tested it. I already use your product. It works. And I could tell people that, but I'm not saying it the way that you want to say it. And I'm not saying that I don't use it on my head because I do. So it turned out that I had to turn them down too. And unfortunately, um, and, and then I, and the reason that I use that Harry stuff is because I got it for Christmas one year, but normally I use a dollar 99 bag that I get from target. Cause it's, you know, it's low buck. That's me. That's awesome. That's a, I mean, it's a good question there. So, Oh, we'll move on to a uh, serious one, and then we'll go back to not serious ones to break it up. It's my favorite. So your three favorite mods to add to any fun vehicle. Well, the, the first one has to be boost, right? And then it would depend on what kind of engine you're talking about. Obviously, if it's an LS, you have to do a cam because you have to do cam and springs. Even if you're not going to do boost, you have to do a cam and springs first because LS motors have everything else. If it's a Honda, you don't necessarily have to do cams. They have pretty good cams in them already. Um, if it's a if it's a modular Ford, um, I don't know that guys want to do cams. <laughs> the funny thing about those is everyone's afraid of them. Even two valve stuff, even even Brulee at West Tech is like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dig into one of those. And he certainly won't dig into a four valve or a Coyote with variable cams. I'm like, look, it's the same as a Chevy. <laughs> you take it off, it has links on it. Everything's marked. The gears marked. The chains marked. It's exactly the same as a small block Chevy. The cams are just longer and there's two of them. It's not a big deal. Um, but I think that uh, it, it depends on what motor you're running and the LS would be cams. Almost everything else would be boost and cams. Like Matt, cam springs and boost, right? Yeah, like you said it very well. Uh, it has everything else and it's all reusable. It just needs... I've even done a bunch of combinations where it has a stock cam and it just has valve springs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can make good power. I did one the other day. It was a truck where he wanted it to run drive idle really well and get good part throttle fuel economy. And it made 500 wheel on pump gas through a 1500 pickup truck. Oh, it was a three quarter ton. I'm sorry. A 2500 where I always joke. All you need to do is hang the turbo on a 2500. And yeah. it's, he did springs and a Huron Speed Turbo Kit and a Gen 2 7875 from Varenne. 
and I made nice. 500 very safely. I think it was 13 pounds, 13 degrees on pump. It made 500 wheel. And probably lots of torque, right? Yeah, I mean, people made fun of the dyno chart because it went up and it fell off like a triangle. But I'm like, look where all that power is. It's like yeah. 4,000 RPM. It's so much power from 2,500 to 4,500. And it idles and drives exactly like a stock one does. You, and then he had a four inch tailpipe with like two resonators. It was not loud at all. And I'm like, some of these people spend so much money on parts and do this so wrong and they don't make 500 horsepower. And this guy has a laughably stock cam and full exhaust and nothing else. And if he puts E85 in it, it could be a six or 700 horsepower motor. I was really interested in doing that, but it was a stock ECU car, and he says there's no ethanol where he is. Uh, okay. Yeah, that would have been well, very fascinating. If someone in the local area wants to build a car with a completely stock cam, especially since that Gen 2 is such a good turbo. I've had cars, I've had their stop. Uh, I want to do Brett DeLong sometime where we crank it until the turbo quits. But yeah. I've done cars that make 920-something rear wheel and ran out of injector, and that turbo wasn't slowing down. Yeah, that, I think that that Gen 2 is certainly a 1,000-plus flywheel horsepower turbo. Yeah, I believe it, because uh, people were saying the Gen 2 is worth 150 extra rear wheel. Even Varen told me, and I was like, eh, even Varen, <laughs> like someone I know that well that's yeah. not going to bullshit me. I was yeah. like, I don't know about that. And he's like, I've had people report that back, and I know it. Yeah. And I'm like, what? And then I did it. But you want to see it, though, right? I want to see it happen. I'm yeah. not going to tell people it's capable without doing it. Nope. But, uh, yeah, we'll do another one. So uh, this is a good one. It says, how about a discussion on the Ford Barra, which I'm assuming means both of us, but you take the lead. I, I this is going to be a really short discussion because I've never even seen one in person. And the only information I have would be stuff that I saw, you know, on the Internet. So I know nothing about them other than I have a guy, um, Julius, that is on my live feed all the time. And he's given me information on the Barra, but that's all that I have. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not a Barra expert. Um, I've seen the impressive stuff that they do, but I've never done one. I think it's cool for sure, and I think there's misinformation. I watch the fullboost.com.au guys a lot, and yep. they joke all the time because all the Aussie guys uh, talk it up, and they're like, it's just not that easy. Like, it's a good platform, but it's not just because they joke. They have a one-liner where they say, uh, a Barra and $2,000 eights. <laughs> so it's like, it's a joke. Like people, uh, yeah. it is good, but it gets overhyped quite a bit. And, uh, there is at least some money into making one fast and reliable. And I remember, uh, Mighty Car Mods did an amazing video that's only like 10 minutes long where they completely built that Cressida and it went nines. Yeah. And they did like valve springs and head studs. Cause I know uh, they say that you can stretch the head bolts or something else happens. So they, or they can't hold the, power down one or the other is happening yeah. both are happening at the same time but and it looks cool and i think it's a it's a good engine but it's so hard to get a hold of i like what calvin nelson's doing with pushing the 4200 platform yeah i think that's far more fruitful because no one touches it and i'm sure no one gave a hell about a barra until people started just pushing it and then they're like wow this is uh you know very 
it's a good at this point. And oh, yeah. I think similar could happen here, but I think they're really doing a good job with the platform. And there's someone who um, donated money that asked a question. So I always like to grab them in the middle of nowhere. I don't care who he gets priority because he sent me. Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. He sent me uh, 20 get, bucks. Yeah. Oh. oh, that's perfect. He says uh, um, two questions for you on the um, was the Crescent that the Mighty Carb Mods guy did. Was that a Barra powered Crescent yes. or was it a two day? It was a Barra. It was a Barra. OK. Um, I, the other thing is I wanted to give a shout out to Calvin cause I, and, and you may know, I have a 4,200 testing coming up. So we're going to do some really cool things and we may, we may even go like next level stuff with one of those. So uh, I haven't talked about that too much, <laughs> Very <laughs> but excited I for that. um, if you look at, I get guys that talk to me whenever we talk about, um, like the big bang stuff, like how much power can you make with a stock bottom end? invariably people, when you tell them about the LS, they'll talk about a couple of other motors. One with how much will a big block make? And hopefully I'm going to find out fairly soon. How much can a coyote make? How much can a Barra make? And how much can a 2J make? And honestly, I don't think a Barra and a 2J with a stock bottom end are going to be anywhere near what an LS is. Not because they're not good motors. They just don't have the displacement. So if you have an NA motor that only makes... 250 horsepower if you put a cam or, you know, ported heads or whatever on it. Um, it takes a lot of boost to get it up to where, the, like, think about what it would take to make a, a stock bottom end 2J make 1,500 horsepower like we did with the LS. I don't think it'll do that with stock pistons and rods, and I don't think, I don't know that any of them will do that. So let me know what you think, Matt. Yeah, I think similar, uh, everybody's like, LS is so overused, and I'm like, well, <laughs> it's like it's like a good toaster oven. Like, why wouldn't you use it for the money? Yeah. Uh, I don't get it. And then uh, I think there's a lot of people that don't realize you can reuse every single part. And they think that that's BS until you do it. Because I know a lot of people are like, uh, I started pushing the envelope and learning a lot. And I started making more and more power. And people are like, this is a joke. He's using a built bottom end, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm like, it's a joke that you think all that because I show assembly and disassembly with an impact gun. And then they think that's a joke because I'm like, I'm showing that it's easier than it is. And I'm like, it's just, it's literally that easy. And that's where my uh, yeah. interest and my focus became because I'm like, people are like, it needs to be a laboratory where microprocessors are made and you need Tyvex and a negative airspace room. And, and I'm just like, no. People are like, you need assembly lube, and I'm like, Pfft. and then uh, people are like, you need ARP lube on head bolts, and I'm like, putting them in rusty and dry. I'm like, eh, it's yeah. not going all the way. Maybe I'll back it out, spray WD-40 in there, and put it back in. And then people yeah. are like, that head bolt is going to hydrolock the block and break something because you filled it with fluid. I'm like, shut up, whatever, blah, just blowing it in there. Yeah. And then everything stretch hardware in uh, in important places. But you just, you know, it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, same thing. Uh, I believe that too, that the Barra is so expensive to get here uh, that yeah. it's just not worth it. I think the Barra is somewhat similar to an LS, but even when they started pushing that power, they needed pistons, rods, a bunch of other things. Whereas uh, you and I have seen incredible amount of power with garbage LSs, like 
They look like snot. Yeah, like they have water and oil in them, and they look awful, and the cylinder bore looks like glass, and you could still make a thousand rear wheel. They just don't care at some point. Yeah, I know know that some of the ones I bring in are so bad that Brulé doesn't want me to bring them into the Yeah, people are like, don't even, Matt, you should throw that in the trash. I'm like, these are my favorite, the most ugly. I've had ones that look like they're filled with paraffin wax. That was the one that made a 1,076 rear wheel. I'm like, this they looks have, so awful. This thing is going to run its ass off. It's so yeah, bad they, looking. They, they want to overachieve because they have something to prove. I always, I say dumb shit like that all the time. I'm like, this thing, it's like a rescue dog, right? Exactly. It is ready to love you, even if you're not a good person, because it's seen so much abuse. Yes, pound puppies. That's that's the best. So I have a question for you. How? Because I, I very rarely do I do that. Now, I've reused stock head bolts a lot. Um, we normally do it on NA stuff, and I've run some boosted stuff at, on, with low boost on them. And the reason that I reused them is because we didn't have something else that I and I needed to get the test done. So I was putting the heads on. I'm like, I got stock head bolts. Those are going in. But how much power have you made um, reusing the stock head bolts? Like, I think that the stock head bolts are best after they've been installed one time, like from the factory, that's when, <laughs> that's when it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling inside that, that they're at their best the first time that they were installed. And then after that, each successive time, which I've done it a bunch, I've done it on Hondas and everything, each successive time you make the bolt worse and worse. And that could just be me feeling that way. But how much power have you made reusing the stock head bolt with these Turbo LS stuff? In my Colorado, where it made 1076, and after all of that, because people say the dyno pulls short, and I can understand that. I have an inertia-only yeah. dyno. When you're making that much power, it is short. So what I did is, I, after all of that, I made nine, like high nine-second passes with that car, and it never pushed water, ever. And I had reused those head bolts. If you go through the videos, it has had the same head bolts for like two straight years of engine rebuilding. I had broken pistons. I had bent rods i had chipped ringlands it had four different pistons and rods in it It had rod bearings from other motors that looked better than others uh at some point uh the cylinder walls were very glassy and i just rolled the crank until there was enough room and ran a three hone three stone uh uh hone tool in there from harbor freight that's like eight dollars in every cylinder because people are like it's because of this it's because of that so I think I reused the head bolts on that at least 12 times. And that made, <laughs> and that was with, uh, I, I detuned it. That car would make like 990 rear wheel and not hit a thousand. And it annoyed me so much. Nitrous <laughs> no, outlet. You. Chris Anderson worked at nitrous outlet around that time and he was watching what I was doing. And he's like, would you like some assistance with making the four digits? And I said, yes. And he sent me a wet plate. And then what I did is I put, a dry shot in the fuel and the nitrous port. And I used the purge solenoid and the main solenoid to do both stages. And okay. I'm like, you guys ever do this? And he's like, no. And I said, cool, I'm going to go for it. So, yeah. uh, Did you need two stages to get to a thousand? I just wanted to, my reasoning is to soften the hit. Okay. So I did, a lot of people might not know, you've probably explained it, stacking nitrous on an atmosphere is much more than what you jet it for. Usually the boost comes up quite a bit. It's just that you, like I had, uh, so I detuned to about 800 rear wheel, and then I smacked it with two 50 shots, like 35 yeah. jets. 35 jets 
It made a 313 rear wheel on two staggered 35 jets. Wow. So and then how much did the boost increase when you did that? Not at all, at least on the inertia hit. Okay. You you get a better result because you can concrete wall the damn engine. Yeah. Yeah, and we I'm saw assuming... that when I tried to do the nitrous as the intercooler. We saw we saw a big jump in power, but we also saw more boost from it as well. A little bit, a pound and a half or so, I think, more. And obviously, like, you're just doubling exhaust gas in some instances. So oh, yeah. something is apple. It's not really apples to apples because it's not just the motor at that point. But sure. uh, I have no problem. I learned a lot about stacking power adders because people are so scared of it. So I've always yeah. been like, what are you scared about? And people are like, it's bad. And I'm like, I want to do it more <laughs> now because you guys seem to have no clue. And uh, people always get scared. Yeah. When I, and then, like, I've, I've posted it a bunch of times when I know someone who's doing nitrous stuff and it's a wet kit. I, I, always, I always tell them, we don't have the right fuel jet, so we have to go up in nitrous to clear this, this tune-up up. Because I think a lot of people are so scared to spray. It's my yeah. way of just pushing them. And then they're always extremely happy with the result. But I'm always like... I know in my head I could fix the fueling. I'm like, we should go up in nitrous because if we do a fuel jet, it's going to be too much or too little with what you have. Yep. So I'm going to add nitrous to clean it up. And then they're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it. So whatever. Good night. It's 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 an air fuel ratio. So you can adjust one or the other. And why why come down in fuel when you can go up in nitrous to make it right? We do, we do that a lot on the nitrous kits. You just adjust the nitrous flow to make the thing that you want. And the other thing a lot of guys don't do, and we don't do this on the turbo nitrous things, but like on the NA stuff is guys want to run like 10 to 1 or 11 to 1 on nitrous. And we don't do that. We, we, we run a lot, a lot leaner than that on the nitrous stuff. And guys that are running big shots of nitrous, it's really impressive how nice they can make their power curve and their air, air fuel curve and all that stuff, even on stuff that's like a, four or five hundred shot guys that do it really well it's impressive stuff yeah and i think that's where people get into trouble is because a lot of these intakes are not wet flow intakes so they nope. want to the jetting out of the box is pretty fat and yes, if you're not watching it it's a puddle factory uh so it scares people but i run uh naturally aspirated air fuels with spray because it's so yeah. easy to puddle them my personal preference is like a dry kit on a holly is like the absolute easiest thing you could do ever because also when you engage the kit what i do on stock bottom ends i learned it from chris ortiz i'm not taking any credit for this but it works amazing is you can do an rpm ignition retard over the activation of the kit so immediately down low you yank a lot like if you know yeah. if you're going to hit it with 100 150 and you're going to yank two degrees to be safe you hit it with like a negative five and then ramp that in to peak power to a negative two and what you'll yeah. see also is instead of a shelf on the dyno where it just yep. beats the shit out of the rod and spins the tire, you get more of like a turbo that yep. makes everything happy. So oh, I yeah. learned that from him, and that's one of those strategies I implemented. And that's why I staged both of my dry shots. One came on at uh, 4,500 and one came on at 5,500, and they just bloop, bloop. So it wasn't nice. all at once on a stock bottom end with everything else, but... Oh, which is right. You're hard. That, that's hard on traction if you if you have it all come on at once. And I like the fact that you're doing a dry kit because that's very smart, especially with a long runner LS style intake manifold. A truck intake has like t three feet yeah, of I, runner. 
I did that, um, the airfield distribution on a truck manifold and we did, we've done it on a couple of others too. And when we did the, the air, the distribution on the water meth, same thing. They're not designed to flow fuel, but if you just flow gas nitrous on a dry kit and then add the fuel down there, the ejectors, that works really good. Yeah. I think people are always burping the, I mean, all those videos at the track are the best when people burp the intake off and they're like, nitrous is dangerous. I'm like, people are, just idiots and most of you can identify <laughs> with how dumb people are so poor, poor tuning is dangerous <laughs> the worst is people do it on like a button and they have a stick shift car and they come out yeah. and grab it they bog and they grab it and pop that's, Ooh, it. that's perfect time <laughs> pop people will spend a thousand dollars on a nitrous kit and won't get a bottle heater and won't get a window switch yeah and uh if you have that it'll last for 10 years on spray but uh you know so someone donated yeah, I, five bucks and asked a question. So we're going to jump right to him. Let's get that guy. So Brad, Brad says, LS Turbo and rear wheel drive swapping my 01 Buick Regal. That um, Nice. This is already good. Yeah. And he goes, uh, don't BS me style TH400 and Ford 88. I plan on running E85 with a good fuel pump and sell to run. I guess he's just making a comment. He's not asking a question. Dude, oh, you're no, no. five bucks. I misread what would be a good fuel pump and cell to run. Brad, if you can ask again, what's your horsepower goal? Uh, if you're already fuel, if you're fuel celled, you should probably just go straight to like a Magna fuel because I feel like a lot of single pumps, like uh, even like an AEM 380 or whatever it is, you probably have to yeah. stack them for a decent amount of, if it's a don't BS me car and you're going to have like a Gen 2, it's capable of like eight, 900 rear wheel through an auto you should probably have at least that much fuel to start because you're as soon as you get it on a roller and everything's right, you're going to want to shoot for eight. And if you have a single pump, you're probably not going to be able to get it. And in my opinion, I really hate the double 044 style pumps because you need to have the Y fitting. You need to have oh, yeah. hundreds of dollars worth of shit to hook up twin pumps and then you need to activate them or stage them differently sometimes. Literally, the, the 4303 MagnaFuel Pro Tuner 750 model is like 480 bucks. And he, like you said, he's already got a fuel cell, so he's got to have an AN fitting, a bulkhead fitting, something like that to attach it to. That's an easy deal. It'd be much better than trying to sink, sink multiple pumps or something inside that fuel cell. It just doesn't make any sense. You could do the Holly retrofit setup, which is incredible. And I didn't know anything about it till I got involved with them and I've used it, but it's the drop in six bolt or 12 bolt hat. That has a fill, okay. a return, a feed, wiring, a hat, a swing, like a an adjustable thing to go into the basket and everything. Okay. But again, if it's a big enough cell, you're still susceptible to slosh. You should have a lot slosh. of fuel in it. But if you have a sump, it's all going to go to the back if that's where you put the sump. But likewise, yep. if you're if you turn the car hard, it's going to not go to the sump and. You should just, if you have a high horsepower setup, you should not be running your car very low on fuel, in my opinion, unless you have a really good surge tank setup. But I've had a bunch of people who do surge tanks, and they're awful for whatever reason. that They didn't set them up right, or they bought a budget setup. So, blah, blah, blah. We, um, on our World Challenge car, I, I when I started, race, well, when I first started racing, I was doing show over stock, just amateur stuff. And then I, right away, because I was the best driver in the world, went into World Challenge racing. And on our car, we built a surge tank so that we could get every last drop of fuel and never have fuel starvation. So we had like basically a one gallon tank 
with the Ford ring and everything on it, like from a Mustang. And we had the pump down in there all the way at the bottom with a little deal built around it. And that surge tank was so small that it would never slosh. And so we just had lift pumps going up into that surge tank and then a drain to overflow it. So we could get basically every last drop because we wanted to make sure that obviously that we never ran out of gas and that we didn't lean out in a quarter or anything. And that seemed to work pretty well. But um, I think you're right, because we've run lots and lots of stuff, or at least the dyno jet or the, the chassis dyno side of West Tech. They get cars in there all the time that don't have enough fuel pump. And then they're having to tune around the fact that you have a dropping fuel pressure curve. And it's just not a good situation because then when you add enough pump or add a boost to pump or whatever you're going to do, then you have to have the whole thing retuned again. So someone else uh, just donated money and his name is Joe. And he goes, can you dyno test the new Holly 3500 Moonshot Nitrous Kit? Did you see their April Fool's video <laughs> I, on that? I did see that, the April Fool one. That's pretty cool. All right. That that would be all of it. Uh, I think we'd have a carb signal problem with that, right? That was a that was a really cool post that they did. Yeah, I think that was. I didn't expect them to do that. Maybe their media people are pushing that agenda. Either way, it was very good. I liked that they had like ten plates. Yeah. I'm gonna have to ask uh, Mark and Evan if it's if 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 those guys did that. I'm I want to find out who was responsible for that. I like both of those guys and. That would be cool to find out. People were saying like the radium surge tank and triple Walbara 450s are best. Uh, I agree. I'd like to try that. But I've also just done completely stock tanks with three 450s and never had a single issue. I just, yeah. I even had the Colorado and I had my 2500 truck with a 12 foot wide gas tank and the pumps are in the center and there's, it's easy to slosh them, but you just keep half a tank in the thing just why are you run yeah. it if it's a performance vehicle why are you why would you run it so low especially if you have like 35 gallons you don't want to fill all that at once most of the time anyway <laughs> yeah but, but I would you just... know how guys are though because i'm sure that you've gone through this too is guys want to have like i get guys ask me all the time what's the most boost i can run on pump gas and can i run it on 87 and can i drive around with my tank almost empty because I can't afford to put more gas in. I'm like, dude, I, I understand all that. I'm, I'm I'm there and I've been there. But you you can't get all of that. You, can, you can't get 50 miles per gallon or run 50 pounds of boost and run 2,000 horsepower and then detune it to run it every day as a daily. And, you know, they just want all of this stuff. And a lot of it's not very realistic. I was, uh, uh -oh. I was I was you typing a reply it. and I was mute. I didn't want people to hear my keyboard blasting them in the ear. But uh, someone makes a good point and they say, you know, I live in the mountains and fuel uh, like a surge tank fixed his fuel slosh. I I believe it. I said a surge tank is the best, but most people don't need it. Yeah, that's all I was coming from. Is that aspect is most people can sink three. I did it in my Colorado, and the opening is small, so people are like, how. I can't put three pumps in my car. I said, can you fit one? And they go, yeah. And I made what I called the fuel squid. And I staggered a pump and yeah. I staggered a pump. And then what I did is I shoved it in the back. Like I shoved it in the tank at a backwards angle. So the three sure. pumps were one, two, three into the back of the tank. And people laughed at that setup because it looked like garbage. And it had gray Parker push lock and some ugly 
a pneumatic fitting block on it and everything. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'd never had a fuel problem. I don't know what else to say about that. Well, were you trying to win a beauty contest in it or were, were no, you trying I'm, to get the motor? <laughs> look at my face. Am I trying to win any beauty contest here? Uh, so people donated again. So, uh, Mike says, are you planning on testing how exhaust housings affect power curves? It would be great to see the pros and cons of running various hot side configurations in the same engine and compressor. Someone else asked that farther down. It might have been him because he wanted to get it answered sooner. So I'm going to go get rid of that comment while you answer. You you might have done this test already. I've, I've run um, AR testing on a number of different turbos. The, the first one I did was way back in probably... Well, this is probably 99 or so. I did it on a Del Sol that we had on a B16. And back then we were running the little T3 turbos from the SVO Mustang. So we managed to get a hold of a, a 0.48, a 0.63, and a 0.82 AR hot side on this turbo on this B16. And we just turned it all the way up to the turbo basic till the thing would kind of stop making power. And as we went up and up in hot side because of that combination, we were, and I, I, I wish I would have measured back pressure back then, but we didn't. But we could see it in the dyno that as we went up in, in hot side on that particular application, we gained power. Um, we lose response a little bit, but we did gain power. We were testing that all on a chassis dyno. Shout out to Steve at Powertrain down in Huntington Beach. He let me run endless stuff on his chassis dyno and put up with me, which is no easy task. Um, and I've done I've done some uh, hot side testing on some bigger turbos on LS applications, too. And I think I have that stuff up. We ran a comparison between a T4 and a T6 hot side. And I want to say it was on an I, I can't remember if it was on an S475 or an S480 or that um, Precision 76, 75 that I had. But we did that comparison as well. But it all, it, it, and Matt knows this, it all comes down to what thing did you get to the, what thing becomes the flow restriction? Are you at the limit of the cold side of the turbo or are you at the limit of the hot side? Take a look at the boost pressure to back pressure relationship. If you, if you start having two to one or two and a half to one or three to one, uh, in uh, back pressure compared to boost pressure, then you're at a limit of the, um, hot side. And if you improve the, the hot side, you're going to improve the power output. The other thing that's going to happen that a lot of guys don't realize, it took me a long time to realize it, is that that back pressure also affects what's happening with the wastegate. So unless you have a three port or a four port where it will continually adjust and try to monitor the um, boost pressure, and it's, uh, even at some point you can't do it with a, a top and bottom regulated wastegate. So at some point it might not be able to do it if the back pressure gets too high but then you'll see changes in boost because of the back pressure, which which also throws another variable into the test. And uh, even more variables than that. What are your goals, and do you have a response over horsepower and all of the above? So you might yep. have a car that makes the power you want, but way too late. So putting that different, a much tighter AR might give you better average horsepower, but you might not go as fast as the drag strip. Uh, there's a whole uh, nuance there, but yeah, any more, I talk about the three port and the four port, uh, people are running more and more VS turbos that have such a broad range uh, on the backside and they spool well. Like my, uh, I always talk about how much I love the 7875, but that has such a scale on most of the LS motors. I like to tell people to 
put like a two pound spring in. I said, put in the lightest spring you got that you can coil bind with like no hand movement because then a four port will give you two pounds to over 30 pounds if you want it, if your backside is not getting restricted, obviously. So you can drive on the street with like 360 horsepower and then light it off to 850 plus. And having that dynamic swing is incredible. So, uh, cause a lot of times where people screw up is they put a 14 pound spring in on a 7875 and they put a four port on it, which makes it extremely sensitive to percentage. Cause people say that a four port is sensitive, but if you spring appropriately very low, it is not sensitive and it does work great. And those are tips that people are missing along the way or no one says. Yeah, it's hard for <laughs> four ports aren't magic. We can't go down below 14 pounds if you put a 14 pound spring in it. But if you go down in the, in the spring rate, that works really well. Um, and that's a good point. I just want to mention real quick that you were talking about this stuff being application specific. And it is if you want the thing to be responsive and it's something that you drive around town and you have a stock gamut or whatever, then you might be more interested in response. Our Bonneville motor, our two liter Honda Bonneville motor had less back pressure than it had boost pressure. That's because we didn't really care about the response rate. So we built it and did the hot side appropriately so that we had less back pressure than we had boost pressure. That's why we got the thing to make the power that it made because we had chosen our turbo, you know, for the, because we couldn't put power down in this Honda until the top of fourth year, which was about 162 or 63 miles an hour, which is when I could go to full throttle and not spin the tire because we had an open diff on it. So fifth gear is when it did all the work basically. And then Joe Simpson, this is my experience too. Uh, I had Joe Simpson on as one of the guests. And he says an AR change doesn't make as much of a difference as most people expect it to. I agree. It's like 500 RPM sometimes. Yeah. If you have a turbo automatic car, just get the big one and just let that thing eat. Because all people care about is top end on a turbo LS application when they don't get that power yeah. number they want. If it's a stick shift car and it has twins, I have seen... AR will make a yeah. difference. But if it's turbo auto car, just get your converter right. And I think like you said, a lot of people don't, re your combo might not be perfect the first time. You might need to get a converter restalled twice. You might need to change your turbo or intake or AR. Uh, people expect everything to work the first time. And I think I've made that a comfortable thing for a lot of people. So when people show up and it makes garbage yeah. power and we all kind of shrug, I'm like, it's something. I don't know what to tell you. I can't, I can't tune uh, extra horsepower out of it. And, uh, often we will pull charge piping and make a hit on motor. And if the motor is making yeah. awful power, I'm like, well, see how much the turbo added on 10 pounds. It was actually considerable, but your engine makes zero base power. So that's what we're struggling yeah. on. So your cam is off or something is total garbage or your intake gaskets are wasted. Uh, it could be something very simple, and then they're kind of mad that I don't have exact answer for them. But similarly, like when you go to your mechanic and you're like, it's making a noise. He's like, cool. Uh, yeah, I like when I get that text. It's making a noise. What do you think it is? I'm like, I don't know who you are or what the car is or what the noise is, or and I'm not magic. Um, that's And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important point. That's one of the reasons that I try to always run the motor – on the dyno naturally aspirated before I add boost so that I then know, okay, we also know that nothing's wrong with the motor, that it's not broke, that it's not leaking, that it's all kind of ready to go. And then the other thing that happens is 
if I run at NA and it's a fuel injected motor, I have a baseline tune for it, and then I can just scale that up. I can just double it at 14 pounds and triple it, and it'll give me a really good starting point for the extra fuel that I need to add under boost, and then we just take timing away. And then if it's not doing what it's supposed to, I can go, okay, well, right away, we can eliminate the fact that it's not the motor. We know the motor is happy. So what are the other things now that we have to look at? Is it spark plug gap? Is it coils? You know, what, what else is it? And let's look at other things now. But checking the motor off the list is a big thing. Yeah, for sure. The other, uh, what I wanted to add to that was, uh, yeah, similarly, if I put a motor on, uh, I hardly ever get to do uh, motor and then turbo. It comes with the turbo and everything already most of the time. Yep. But uh, similarly, on a VE scale, you, if you're close to 100, you can just drop 200 in up top. But most of these people are running a bass tune that I created. Most of them are all copying a setup I did, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's awesome, and it makes everyone's job easy and the expectation fairly level. And when it doesn't hit that, you yeah. know, something else is screwed up again. But similarly, I've had people with the exact same combinations have 400 horsepower difference, and that can add up in a lot hot side and amount of 90s you have on cold, hot, downpipe, everything. It's a culmination. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as you know. Where's a... There is oh, some... I, I... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, there's some decent ones in here I want to look for if you want to add to that while I look. No, I was going to say, I saw some of the questions when I was looking through the Facebook stuff, and one of the things guys brought up were, and I think that you may have asked this question, too, about spark plugs. It's about spark plug gap so we at some point during obviously need to talk about that yeah we should do that one next that's one that i asked uh recently and people were kind of like why do you care and why would you bring that up and that's a very specific question but my brain goes there i know i'm not gonna try to like be an egomaniac but i consider a lot of things like I just, I gap so many setups very tight because so many people have blowout issues that I'm like, a bunch of, I'm like, if this is going to make a lot of boost and a lot of power and you have everything is used junkyard, go right to like 18. And people's like scoff. They're like, they're, they reel. They're like, why, why yeah. do you want to make it so tight? And I'm like, so when you're garbage up and forward headers, uh, we don't have to reach into the 100 degree. It's 100 degrees uh -oh. out. We don't have to Shots reach into fired. your engine bay and burn our forearms continually trying to swap out plugs, blah, blah. Like, just go to 18, and then everyone's day will be easier, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But uh, I have often wondered, am I giving stuff up? Because uh, people say you should only gap what you need, and then similarly, people say only inject what you need. But if you have a good ECU, it has, uh, like a four-port, it has such a large dynamic range that you should just buy injectors once. You should put gigantic ones in because they have no issues on certain ECUs, and then you never need to do it again. So similarly, I'm like, just gap at 18 and never do it again. So my brain is like, is there horsepower I'm leaving on the table because I didn't... Uh, so what's the effectiveness of having the most gap based off of your combination? So that's the root of the question if people aren't getting it from my elaborate mouthing. Uh, I, I, I've run tests both changing plug gap. Uh, we've run a number of them. We've run plug gap on NA motors to find out what it does. 
we've run plug gap on boosted motors to find out what it does. And then I, I would 100% agree with you because, and, and this is going to disappoint a lot of people. I know when I had this conversation with Uncle Tony, um, because he doesn't do a lot of force induction stuff. So I don't sure, I'm not sure he understands it, but, and I was telling him exactly that. I said, like, when we run turbo motors, we run the gap down to 18 or 19. I said, because really for me, a, a spark plug is it either fires or it doesn't fire. We've tried split fires and E3s and every fancy designer plug. And I've also tried, um, one of the tests I did with Kenny Bell was, he had a, you know, you're familiar with his booster pump. Well, he also had a booster spark. So what it did was increase the supply voltage to the ignition system and increase the output of the coils. So we ran that, I think it was on a modular motor. And what we did was start going up in plug gap and so that we could get the thing to misfire with one of his blowers on the motor on the chassis dyno. And with that increased voltage output, I think we went up to the gap was like 70 or 80 thousandths, I think, before we got the thing to misfire. But when it did misfire, it loses power. <laughs> so not surprising. That's exactly what it does. But we didn't see any change in power going from I think we started out with the stock plugs were around 40 or 45. And then we went way up. And, and we were just wanting to get it to misfire. And as soon as we did, we lose power. And we see the same thing on LS motors. When we run tune with Holly, we'll put the dwell at four or four and a half. We'll put the plug gap down to 18 or 19, and then it won't misfire. If we go up and plug gap, it doesn't do anything until it misfires. And then when it misfires, we lose power. And, it, and on a turbo motor, if it misfires, you lose, you can lose a lot of power. So it could be substantial if you get into misfire. But I don't think you gain anything from going up in plug gap. And that's what I've seen also. Uh, obviously, if a combination makes 800 wheel and you lose a cylinder or two on that, it's 100 or 200 horsepower or more be just because of the loss of dragging the rotator around. So similarly, uh, I've seen, obviously, like I've seen, usually when it misfires, power tanks bad. And you can hear it. It just sounds awful. On a turbo motor, it's bad, yeah. I always think it's funny when I hear like an all-motor car rattle its face for no reason or a turbo car misfire <laughs> awful and people will come running over and they're like, wow. And I'm like, you didn't hear, like it sounded awful. Uh, I guess it like yeah, uh, maybe like me being naive and I have like a ton of years of experience where I can hear a miss and people can't. Uh, I've had people fire their car in the trailer in the parking lot and I say it ahead of time just so there's no hurt feelings. I'm like, you don't hear that miss at idle, like a significant miss at idle. Yeah. Cause I don't want to have a problem later when it doesn't make power and they want to disagree. Yeah. I'm like, you don't have a bunch of cylinders. So we need to get that first before we all waste yeah. our time. And most commonly they can't hear it. They don't yep. know it's a fender exit exhaust. It's loud, whatever. And then uh, they have a burn plug wire or something from stupid ass up and forward stainless garbage. So I cannot, I talk so much smack on that stuff and there's a reason why. Yep. Most of the time you don't need them. Most of the time they're frying everything in the engine bay. And uh, cast iron will actually hold better heat in my opinion. Up and forwards just blow a bunch of heat into the engine bay. It makes everything so hot. Uh, it's just scrubbing. Like headers will cool off faster. Yep. It's because they are shedding all of their heat into the engine bay faster at least in my opinion i don't i don't you don't do a lot of engine bay stuff so 
What was like? There was something else I wanted to add to everything no. you said about. Spark but I did, but I don't like those headers just because of the plug wires and the spark plug actor. Same thing. They're garbage. For you have to get the plug wire on to make any significant Is power. Our, uh, but I've done the same thing where the plug gap didn't matter, and that's why I tell people go exactly. right to 20. Go right to 20 before you even bring the car here. There's no point. Don't buy aftermarket plug wires. They're hot garbage. Go to AutoZone and get like 06 Silverado wires. They have a lifetime warranty if you're a dumbass and you burn them. You just take the whole burnt setback and get another. They work great. They never have any issues. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, similarly with that, uh, I've moved the dwell around a considerable amount on a lot of cars. And like you said, one and a half, three and a half, zero issues. Yeah. None. Uh, Calvin Nelson's car, uh, the Fairmont that he built, it was a stock LY6 with a sloppy stage two and 1218 springs and two cast VS racing 7875s. We made like 938 rear wheel through an unlocked TH400 on one and a half milliseconds of dwell. Wow. So no issue there. That's nice. People are thinking you need a ton of gap and a ton of dwell. Uh, it's just one of those things you don't need either. Everything can be this big, yep. human hair, and it's fine. <laughs> uh, as long as the voltage jumps the gap, that's all you're asking it to do. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Oh, this is a good one since we're, we lambasted about serious things for so long. When do I need to upgrade to ARP starter bolts? <laughs> you, I, I like to do those one at a time. I can afford one, and I just fix that one, and then later on, like I make a down payment, and I'll put the other one on later on. And then, uh, what is the most hack thing you've ever had to do on an engine slash repair? Beyond, well, we all know you'll be honest. Is that one for you or for me? Well, I guess it's for both of us. And I think, I don't think it's for both of us. Most people who watch know the awful things that I have done because I don't pull any punches or not show the awful things that I do. And I think uh, most of the awful things yeah. that I apply to engines are gospel at this point. Uh, so we'll go with you because they think you're the professional. That's a slight dig, right? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you've never seen me at West Tech in person. Um, a couple of the cool things that I've done, and and again, it's just a lot of times it's it drives the guys at West Tech nuts. But when I um, was running a I was running a supercharger on a Ford motor, and we had to space the um, we had to space the lower crank pulley out, and I didn't have a spacer that I needed. So we just took nuts and, and and stacked up the nuts. And I even I even went to the trouble. This is how professional I am. I went to the trouble of of, of miking the different nuts. I just grabbed a handful of them out of the bin and miked them because they're not all the same. They're not precision, obviously ground. And so I miked them all the same so I could get a stack of four that we needed and just put a long bolt with through these four nuts and then onto the dampener. And ran the and spaced the spaced the blower pulley out, and this was a blower pulley, mind you, not hub centric, not any of that stuff. Just yeah, really tight on the bolt, but it worked long enough for the dyno to get it work. And we do, you know, we do a lot of that stuff where we only put two bolts in, and and you know, all of that stuff is the the, the things that I've run, and it like I said, it drives those guys nuts. Whenever I put the motors on a dyno, I always use wire. I call it drive by wire because they want, you know, everybody wants to build a dedicated rod and a rod end and have it all look professional. I'm like, dude, I have to do 15 intake swaps. 
and they're all going to be in a different position. The throttle body is going to be different. The carburetor is going to be different. If I have this piece of wire, I just take this piece of wire, I wrap it around this really fast, and now it's working. It works perfect. And those are the kind of things that make my life easier. And, and uh, you know, you got to go to that stuff. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I've done uncountable, terrible things to engines, everything you can imagine. So it's. I think uh, it's funny. Joe Simpson chimed in on the plug gap. He says, I've never seen a loss of power on a tighter gap. On Honda stuff, we would run 13 on 60 pounds or so. As long as it will start and idle, it doesn't seem yeah. to matter how tight you go. And he said just the other day he had a car and a trailer that he sent home before they even unloaded it. It was running on six cylinders and they had no idea. And then there was an earlier question. One of the times where I'm like, hey, I wanted to ask something and I squirreled. Someone did ask a question and I'm going to jump to it in the live chat. They asked a good question. I'm going to jump to that instead of all of our pre-asked ones. And they had asked about ethanol content versus like pushing the horsepower or a bunch of things. And I have my own thoughts on that. I want to, should I, here's what I like to do sometimes with guests. I like to say my answer and then see if you can prove me wrong or if I'm retarded or if I have no concept at all. I like doing that where I will state my opinion and then you can be like, no way, that's dumb. I like to learn. So uh, there's a lot of talk where I'm assuming this is what can he's I just asking. Say that ahead of, can I say that ahead of time? What? That I'm clueless? Or what? Yeah, I just want to say it ahead of time. Sure. preemptive. Noted, noted. <laughs> I'm often clueless. Uh, oh, yeah, someone just said the whole plug gap thing is for boomers chasing two or three horsepower. Yeah, uh, we'll throw that out there. But uh, in my opinion, ethanol hits a peak octane limit at like 40%. I've seen charts also where they show the octane gain, and I've done this with horsepower too. Uh, it jumps significantly from 0 to 30%, and then it kind of levels up. A lot of my tune-ups, just to be safe, I, there's a 50% threshold. So above 50%, it's all in. And I only pull... Uh, majority yeah. of my tune-ups are E85 cars, majority of the time. So what I do is my base spark table is set up for E85. And then if it goes below to pump gas, it's it's pulling timing. And most of the time, it's overly aggressive. Unless someone's going to be doing a lot of pump and E85, uh, then I take the time to dial yeah. it all in. But I've seen nearly no gain from going to E50 to E98. And the only time, and I've had no one accept this test, like Ignite or whatever, or C85, which I don't trust those because they're gaming you, in my yeah. opinion. It's not pump gas and ethanol. What they're giving you is a formulated race gas and ethanol, and that is a joke. Yeah. Why don't you just buy race gas? Why are you buying $10 a gallon ethanol when it's most of the time $2? Someone's lying to you. I can understand if they oxygenate it and do whatever, and you can get 2% extra horsepower. And if you're in a racing class where that will give you the most and they allow it, okay. But no yeah. one has let me do an apples-to-apples Sheets E50 versus Ignite E98 C85 oxygen. No one will accept that challenge. And maybe one day I'll just have to do it myself. I'll have to order uh, a bunch of whatever people say is the best, which is also a weird thing to ask because everyone's is the best, right? 
So and just ask them. <laughs> I'd like to get a tank, like a can of C85, and ignite E98, and uh, one ethanol is one that people talk about a lot. Uh, Real Street Performance, yeah. which I believe Jay Meager say one ethanol is the best, but I think it might just have a higher quality control for stupid high. See, and this is where I may be wrong. A combination like that has a better race gas mixture because of high cylinder pressure or high boost. I know some fuels, yeah. if you look at a Sunoco sheet, this is better for high boost and this is better for nitrous. And I agree with some of that. Obviously, it's formulated for whatever you're going for. But I think people that have Subarus that say Ignite E98 is the best, I'm like, you're making 350 horsepower. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Stop. Yeah, how do you know? Uh, E38 for you is rocket fuel. You're fine. And I've seen similarly, I've made over, I've, my dyno will read 1500 rear wheel. And on three cars, I have pinned the dyno on like 40% ethanol. So I see no gain. I've done a bunch where we had very low amount of pump gas and we went to about 45% alcohol. And I routinely pick up a hundred extra rear wheel with the same amount of boost with a little bit more timing most of the time. And I have, we have watered it with even more ethanol to the point of where it's at 78%. And the amount of ignition it wants and the amount of power it makes is identical to 40-ish percent. I think 38% is the threshold in my opinion for maximum amount of octane for most street engines with my awful combinations. So Say agree or not agree and add your own to that. I'm done soapboxing. <laughs> no, I think that that's pretty accurate. I think that the the at least what I think is the the common thought out there is or the accepted value is that past fifty percent there's not a big gain. And I and I know for the stuff that I do, I anymore I, I used to use race gas on a lot of stuff. But now I use E85 and I just go to the pump. I don't measure it. I don't do anything. I just go get pump E85. I pour it in. We run it. We tune it. And so I don't care whether it's E85 or 75 or 70 or 40 or whatever the number is. I just run it and it does what it does. Um, that's me being lazy and not measuring it. But I don't think it makes any difference. The one thing I can say about is uh, I've talked at length to fuel guys um we have a good guy that guy that west tech works with and he's really really sharp and he's actually done octane detonation testing and stuff because he's he goes all the way back to the unical days and the one thing i tell you about the race e85 where they mix the the ethanol with actual race gas is the ultimate octane of that fuel is going to be different than pump e85 is so if you have a situation where you want to run 40, 50, 60 pounds of boost or whatever, and you run into a detonation threshold with regular E85 or 50 or 40 or 70, and then that can help you because you're running more boost or you want to run more timing, there's potential there. Um, but you shouldn't put that in if, if you're not going there. If you're running 10 pounds or 15 pounds or 20 pounds on an LS, which I do all the time, just with my eyes closed going over and getting the stuff for the two dollar and fifty cent gallon stuff over at the local gas station, it works just fine. And I don't think that there's gonna be any gain from doing any kind of race fuel in that sort of application. Yeah, so exact same what I said. I, I trust Real Street and I know they're yep. making 
on a 3 liter 3.4 liter stroker billet super engine they are making a unrealistic amount of power that most people will never reach and they find the benefit in that fuel and i can understand that yeah. but like i said similarly 99.9 percent .9 of combinations and people absolutely will never yeah. touch that amount of horsepower per cylinder versus nope. cost versus pass is approaching top fuel so no yeah they're not going to get there <laughs> so i'm assuming and do you get that kind of question i was gonna say do you get that kind of question a lot i get in my live feeds and and comments in the youtube channel in, in the channel as well I get these esoteric questions. I, I like I'm the stuff that I do is dedicated. I'm sure like you to like 95 to 95% of the regular people. They want to get an LS from the wrecking yard, put cam springs, boost in it, put an intercooler on it and away they go. These other people want to know, well, how was it, was it two degrees difference between running the air to air intercooler versus the air to water intercooler? And what happens if I neck down the tubing before the intercooler and expand it after? And I'm like, look, you, and, and, and rod ratios. Oh my God. Rod ratios and, and all these things that are, that are like, you know, they're this much of something way up here where guys will never get to like the, the RPM limit. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's the piston speed. That's what limit RPMs. I'm like, but we're not talking about tough fuel or Formula One or Pro Stock or, or NASCAR where all of that stuff could come into play on a 7,000 or even 8,000 RPM LS. It's valve train. It's not these other things. Oh, rod ratio and, you know, just all these things. It's a funny deal. So we had a, we have a question by Cameron Vick, my buddy, you know Cameron Powers. Yeah, Cameron, what's up? He donated four ninety nine, and he says, Richard, are there any professionals out there like you that are convinced an LS motor is a copy of a Win Windsor? And is that just a Ford purist thing? People, whenever you can tell someone's a Ford Nazi when someone's like, they just copied a Windsor. You're like, oh, here we go. You have no yeah. credibility, and anything you say is emotional. Well, I've had people, I had people send me private messages about this. Well, what do you think about this? You need to chime in on this, like, on this thing. I'm like, well, first of all, it's weird that you think that this is actually a thing, <laughs> that there's some sort of conspiracy that somebody from GM went, snuck over into the Ford building and measured the Windsor and then made the LS from that. I said, look, even if there was an engineer that worked for Ford and then went over to work for GM, which happens all the time, and they took information and made that. What difference does that make? That doesn't make the Windsor any better now because they don't even make it anymore. And it doesn't make it any more <laughs> of an industry standard like the LS is because everyone is using it and it's cheap and it makes lots of power. It doesn't really matter. And the interesting thing that I thought I was kind of uh, – I was kind of in awe and I was, I was kind of excited that they thought that I would have some kind of insider information into this, that I was like on the other side of the curtain of the conspiracy theory that all of this is taking place. I, that kind of stuff is really funny to me. And similarly, I want to throw this in there and then there's another donated question. So I want to answer that, but uh, someone might be joking here. or might be not. So I'm going to call them out. It says comb over racing is the guy's name. And it says, just run Q16, fuel problem solved. And you might have the same opinion. Q16 is the most volatile fuel, and it is the most, like, it'll disintegrate things. It'll ruin things. 
you can't leave it in anything. You need to drain it. You need to pickle the system when you're done. You need to flush everything because it will just destroy everything. And similarly to what I understand, Q will create deposits if it sits. Like it will, it like yeah. pulls things in and it rusts and it like, I don't even know how it works, but my buddy Frank has told me it will create like kidney stones in your fuel system. And then wow. your car has a stroke. Like you have to take everything apart. <laughs> it will That's literally cause a stroke. Like it creates yeah. balls of minerals or something. So yeah. I think he's joking, but he might not be. People might not know because people are like, oh, Q16, race car guys. Yeah. Race car guys are replacing shit every pass. That doesn't fix the fuel system on a street. Don't be SD yeah. build. Just wanted to throw it out there in case people are reading and consider that as an option. Also, Q is probably $30 a gallon. Oh, yeah. Um, we run Q16 a lot, and that's usually our go-to trick on generally on an NA motor. Just Sometimes smashing something, yeah. Yeah, but we if we are if we are have a big block, let's say, and we're at 894 horsepower, and we want to be at 900, then we'll replace the race gas that's in it with Q, and that will put us over the top because it's oxygenated. It makes more power. You have to rejet for it. It definitely makes more power, but you don't want to get any of it on you. <laughs> it's like the old Formula One fuels where they, they have such good photos of these old like Formula One stuff from the turbo era where the guys are putting fuel in these cars and the driver's like, don't spill any of that stuff on me because it gets in, like if it goes on your body, it rearranges your DNA. It's not good stuff, but it does make power, but it's not what I would choose to run. And they tell you not to run it on like on uh, force induction applications anyway, I think. Um, and, and it works good because it's really high octane. And if I like when we did all the big bang motors, I didn't run E85 or a version of E85. We ran not Q or even C16. We ran rocket brand 118 because I wanted to have as much octane as we could to make sure that we weren't hurting anything. Is that leaded or unleaded? Just to ask. Uh, it is leaded. They only had a hundred unleaded was the highest that they had. But the interesting thing is if you, and I've done this test a bunch of times, if we take race gas and we take E85 and run it at like 15 or 20 pounds, let's say run them both the same, same air fuel, same timing, the E85 makes more power. It, it always does that. It makes more power than race gas does. It makes more power than pump gas because you have obviously a lot more timing. But when we, like we were talking about with that E98 stuff, when you start getting up to where you need not 110 or 112 octane, where you need 116 or 118 octane, then you have to go to that. And, you know, there's a, but we wouldn't use Q <laughs> in that example. And then another question I had from a guy that donated, and there's a simple answer to this. Uh, it says, John Fanning, he says, do you think a stock 2008 Silverado fuel pump will do fine filling a gallon surge tank with twin 525s up front, Gen 2, 78 millimeter, 800-ish horsepower? And I don't know enough about surge tanks, but if you go on radium engineering, they tell you what you should have as a supply pump for a certain amount of surge tank pumps. And I would say the answer is, again, application specific. Are you, I mean, people would laugh, it's a 08 Silverado, but are you land speed racing or are you quarter mile racing where you would never drain a gallon in the surge tank? 
because the return hose from the fuel rails goes back into the surge. Yeah, and the other thing to think about, the um, the flow rate of that stock pump is going to go up dramatically if it's just used as a lift pump Zero to go pressure. into the surge tank. It'll have no pressure. So the flow rate's going to be pretty high on that pump. It, it might be double what it is. Yeah, if you ever look at a chart for fuel flow versus pressure on an in-tank pump, it starts up here and goes whoop at 80 pounds. It falls on its face. Yeah. So similarly, yeah. when I do a lot of in-tank pumps, I will run 30 pounds base because I know by the time uh, you get to 60 or 80, it's like a cliff. It's done. And that's a that's a good point. And I'm sure that you tell guys that all the time, Matt. If you if you have a choice, don't go with fuel pressure. Go with bigger injector so that it makes life easier on the pump because the pump can flow a lot more at 30 or 40 psi than it can at 60 or 70. And so if you can get the air fuel that you want with the big injector at 30 or 40 PSI, that's a much better way to go and much easier on the pump. Uh, where's a good one here? I wanna to switch to uh, not a fuel question. This is something I know nothing about that I would love to hear you elaborate on. And it's from Josh Lawson and he says, hey Matt, Ask Mr. Rich to explain the flat plane crank performance gains versus <laughs> downfalls on the LS platform and the longevity of high RPM usage. Uh, I wish that I was a crankshaft expert. Unfortunately, I'm not. I get, I, I, and I don't know if this is the same one. I get guys every live feed that I have and usually every video that I put out Somebody asks about using a flat plane crank, about wanting me to test it, and my answer is always no. The problem, the and, and only because of the problems associated with a flat plane crank. The flat plane crank, and this is something that Ferrari went through because they use that a lot, and also that Ford went through with their Voodoo motor, is that the the vibration, <laughs> I don't know if it's a second or third order vibration, but the vibrations caused by a flat plane crank are like tremendous. And so that's what limited uh, or stopped Ford from releasing the Mustang when they were going to, because they had to spend a lot of time trying to solve that problem. They sound awesome. I, I have one. I have a car that has a flat plane crank in it, and they sound fantastic, but they are very um, vibration prone. And, I, and honestly, I don't know what the gain would be in power unless the unless it allows you to run more rpm but i'm not i'm no crankshaft expert there's a lot in the chat that i'm trying to catch up on because i kept it up where the donation questions were uh someone yeah, had donated and just had positive things to say and i remember james williams from like ocean city maryland and like I don't know, like 2010, I had the Turbo 23 or 2500 truck. I drove to Ocean City and uh, he says, Matt convinced me to go Turbo LS and get HP tuners with Fairmont 1. Richard convinced me to go SBE with the Big Bang engines. And now I have two LQ4 short blocks and a Gen 4 bottom ends for and an LY6 for a future Turbo G8 Ooh. product. So that's good to hear. Uh, someone yeah, says... Someone says uh, flat plane equals evens the pulses in the intake. Well, I feel like that doesn't matter if you're shoving air down its throat. 
Might be wrong. And I don't think that a flat plane crank is going to change the um, the effective runner length because the reflected wave in an intake manifold, it's only runner length determined. And when that runner length, when the when the reflected wave starts, the initiation point is after the opening of the intake valve. So the wave travels up to the common plenum, rarefaction occurs, you get a, that, and that was, that was a negative pressure wave, and then rarefaction occurs, and then you get a negative pressure area, and then the positive pressure all, all runs, rushes in to fill that, and then you get a positive pressure wave going back down. All of that travels at the speed of sound, and the, when that arrives is all a function of the time it took for those two waves to travel. And that's a function of length. So when they're going to be effective, and by the way, most people don't know, you want them to arrive to be most effective when the piston is at or near bottom dead center. Because while the piston is rushing down, it's doing a really good job of drawing air in. So it's really, really effective as it's rushing down. When it gets down near bottom dead center, all of a sudden it's not very effective anymore. So that's when you want the pressure wave to um, arrive and help cylinder filling to add even more power. And we see that all the time. If you look at any of the intake tests, long runner intakes work really well at low RPM because the signal travels up and back and has time to do that. But as we go up in RPM, it can't make that travel and, and arrives at the wrong time. It's no longer effective and yada, yada, yada. I can talk about intake stuff forever and ever. I really love that stuff. Cool. Yeah, that is a, a knowledge bomb right there that I didn't know existed. <laughs> I always love learning stuff. People keep asking. We're going to ask this next out of nowhere. People keep asking about your 3800 stuff. When are you going to turbo stuff? Everything. We else. have that motor, and the problem, the reason that we haven't run that yet is because we haven't figured out yet. Uh, I think we did. We, had, we hadn't figured out um, what kind of ECU we could run it with. We couldn't run it with the Holly with the existing trigger pattern that they have on there. The trigger pattern is, is weird. It's inside the dampener, and it's not one that Holly recognizes, and we couldn't cut teeth out to get it to one that they recognize. Um, we couldn't get the, so what we're going to do ultimately, I think, is put, uh, and I need to talk to um, the guys over at um, ATI, because they they make a replacement damper for it. And if I get that, it'll have the right bolt pattern for us to put an external trigger wheel on it. And then if we do that, then we can run, because I want to run it with a Holly so I can tune it and do all of that rather than run it with some kind of ECU system that I'll have to have Eric or Ish from West Tech be with me to do the tuning. It's much faster if I can do it that way. I can do it late at night or whenever I need to do it. Someone in the chat asked something good that I get used to get asked frequently, but I feel like a lot of people on Sloppy know this already. And he goes, do you know anything about the Chinese head stuck kits? I mean, I think he means studs. Uh -huh. And uh, I would say that they are weaker than torque to yield head bolts. And I used to say this all the time, even reused ones. And you might not know, you might know that we had a guy with a, like a million dollar test bench. We all sent him new stud, old stud, ARP stud, head bolt, stock head bolt. We all donated the money and he put it into a rig where he tightened it at different pressures. And this entire yeah. write up, he'd made a, he made a PowerPoint presentation and supplied an Excel sheet on deltas and pressures and oh, many cool. other things. So he put them in a machine and he pulled on them until they broke or twisted or yielded. And he has, yeah. he has charts where, you know, they, they yielded and then they pulled and then the amount of, 
so that there was a certain amount of pressure from pulling that they were that they would just build more it took more and more force right yeah and then after it would stretch it would lose uh its strength and then it yeah. would decline and he showed the entire ellipse versus the amount of strength and pull it had versus the amount of yield and yep. oddly enough the stock reused head bolt placed first on a lot of that testing and people are was it able to was it able to stretch and then retain its strength after stretching is that yes it had that? some like elasticity and there's other things in that test because the other ones are so stiff uh, it's almost like having a brittle steel or something versus yeah. aluminum on an airplane that can flex a lot. If you ever look yeah. out the plane w wing when it's dancing around, <laughs> yeah, it scares the shit out of you. But something that's yeah. stiff would work hard and snap uh, and that would never wiggle. And also yeah. that wiggle is kind of a buffer to the cabin. If that sure. wasn't moving with the turbulent air, it would be beating the shit out of everybody in the plane. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Those are dampers. <laughs> People don't realize that, so that's a good one. And then, uh, man, where? How do we get here? I got lost already. Chinese head studs. It's a joke. Yeah. You're spending a bunch of money and you're studying the motor for actually a less effective clamping force, in my opinion. And a yeah. lot of what people do is because they're such shit porous metal, they snap the head bolt down and below the block. We would get one a month and someone would be like, what do I do? They broke a Chinese head stud in the block. Yeah. And another thing that I like to tell people is if you have a Harbor Freight torque wrench, which most people do, and there's nothing wrong with them, I have tested it. I have a $400, $500 Matco digital, and the Harbor Freight's identical with the click as long as you use it correctly. And I've said it a bunch, but it's probably worth repeating so people hear it if they watch this. You have to pull that with a certain amount of speed for it to click correctly, in my opinion. If you pull that torque wrench really slow, you're going to break a bolt because it won't click. If you pull it really slow, it will never hit the mechanical click. I don't know if you've ever run into that, but I, I pull them pretty rapidly because I've yeah. noticed, I'm like, this feels like it's way too tight. And then if you do it quicker, it'll click sooner than you would, you know... Uh, it, I'm like, I'm really pulling the shit out of this. And that's when stuff yeah. breaks. If you, cause people think they have to pull it extremely slow. Uh, no, that mechanism is cheap and you have to, you know, just pull quickly. And by the time yeah. it feels tight, it clicks. And I've seen people, I'm like, did you pull at half a mile an hour? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, that's where you, you can do it. You can, you can test it if you have one. Uh, try to tighten a wheel stud or something extremely slow. And if you test it with a digital, it would be significantly higher than if you pull it with any kind of quickness. You don't have to pull it at 100 miles an hour and try to throw it across the room. But you just you can't pull very slow. You can't be scared to pull on it. You want to make sure that you pull it in a level plane, too. A lot, I see a lot of guys pulling down when they're pulling pulling this way or pulling up. And that kind of throws the reading off. We did a um, – Chad Reynolds and I – did a, uh, and, and I think Brian Tooley was there when we did it too. We were doing a TV show called Wheel of Death where we would spin a wheel and decide how a motor was going to be destroyed. And so we did that. But one of the things that we did, we did the torque wrench challenge. So we had an LS and we had ARP head studs on it and we had to torque it to 75 foot pounds, but we had to do it without a torque wrench. So we, the guy that got the closest to that actual number, um, was the guy that won. 
and everybody got even the we we had a, a model that was part of the show and she was on my team and then Chad and Brian were on their on the other team and we I got her so that she could she was within three or four foot pounds of nailing it and mine was right on and Chad and Brian's were almost right on too. They were within one foot pound or two foot pounds. So we can just, you can, when, if you've done a hundred of them, you go, okay, like it moves about, that feels like about that much. And I'm sure you've seen that whether we had it at 75 or 78 or 70 or 84 or whatever, it, it doesn't really make any difference. It's still going to do the same thing. That's why I always recommend, and I think I have it in the wiki, there's a certain amount of, when you're reusing the head bolt, I use 65 foot pounds because people want to do, people for whatever reason want to do 75 to 100 on shit. And I'm like, not on that bolt. <laughs> stop. I put six, I do 65 and yeah. a lot of people I tell do the same thing and we have zero head gasket issues. And recently, uh, you know, I'm learning a lot and I do like coolant pressure and we see no difference. Uh, very recently, the Turbo 2500 that I did, because people say stuff about my dyno poles are short. And like I've said before, I can't really do anything about that without, you know, we're looking into uh, upgrading it a bunch and getting a load cell and everything else. But sure, I never, my coolant pressure was fine with the usual way I tune. It made 150 or 856 rear wheel on that truck. And... After that, I showed there was data logs of 13 pounds of coolant pressure, no matter what. And people yeah. were like, well, it's unloaded and that's garbage. So the one day I have videos of it, I made 10 0 to 130 passes in a 5,500 plus pound truck. And it had yeah. identical coolant pressure and it never went over 13, 14 pounds. So yeah. uh, it was very realistic. And I think a lot of people learned from it. Also, because like Motion Raceworks and Low Dollar sells them too, uh, they sell the cylinder head pressure sensor and temperature sensor all in one, which I think oh, is cool. a fantastic idea. But unfortunately, yeah. I see the data looks like an EKG because like you oh. probably know, my assumption is, is just, uh, this, the combustion beating like the vibration or just small yeah. amounts of combustion leak are causing and there's no way to average it in a holly that I know of. You can turn the averaging up extremely high to where it maxes yeah. out, and it still looks like an e like uh, someone having a stroke on an EKG. And in okay. my opinion, like you can't set a safety when your data it, like imagine trying to tune a car on a map sensor that looked like that. Yeah, uh, I've done a plen a plenty of mass air meter cars that are garbage where it's an EKG yeah. and the car will never run right. Uh, it needs a smooth sample rate. But it's interesting to see all of the differences there. And uh, I'd love to do more of like pushing till coolant pressure lifts. But in my opinion, I have, I have, I don't think I can think of a car where I've lifted a head. Yeah. On the, on the pressure sensor, on the coolant pressure sensor, is it reading maybe um, the pressure changes from the pump flow? Like if the water pump is spinning and it's and it's flowing this water in there, it's it's not a steady stream. You you would have pulsing in the water. So I'm wondering if it's reading that, if it's that sensitive. Because similarly, you know, the water pump is right there, and there's a 90, and there's a 90, and then there's a 90, and then there's where yeah. the coolant temperature sensor is. And yeah. It's very possible that it's just getting it's a bunch of turbulence, and it's just beating yeah. the shit out of the sensor. 
And yeah. uh, it's something I thought of too, or or I'm like, it's combustion or it's just, it's, you know, the engine swinging an incredible amount of RPM and beating up a bunch of horsepower. And then what I've always done is I get the eBay uh, coolant connection thing with the eighth inch. And I've yeah, put them, in, the, in the hose. I've put them in the upper coolant hose, and yep. and I get extremely smooth reading there. And I tried, you know, I wanted to tell people about that. Is everything I've seen from the cylinder head one is really noisy. So if you're thinking yeah. about, I think that that sensor was a great idea, and I was like, wow, this is a great idea. But all of the data is garbage because it's yeah. way too. It's all over the place. Uh, even if your sample rate's really high or low. It's all over the place. So, and anyway, where where do we start with that one? <laughs> tangent, tangent, tangent. This is what I run into: Chinese head studs, and then some other stuff, and then coolant. Uh, yep. Oh man! So there's uh, the live chat is incredibly fast. There's a lot going on. Uh oh. Well, someone donated five bucks, so we got to go over them first. Uh, Yep. For a drift car, for sustaining sideways angle for a long time, what would you suggest to prevent oil starvation on these turbo truck engines? And I know the answer to that. Taylor Ray ran into this problem a million times on his drift Miata. Nothing worked. He would spin a bearing no matter what. He went to a Aviad. Av- how do you pronounce them? A dry yeah, sump. Aviad. He went to like a 10-quart yep. dry sump. Zero issues. Also, the oil pan's this big now, and he can't hit anything. But yep. there's that... In the top of the canister, you would know better. I'm making an assumption. In the yeah. top where it dumps in is all sorts of aeration control to where it, yeah. it fixes the bubbles and everything. And the bottom of a 10-quart tank is completely solid oil. And then, you know, and then you can do the two, three, four stage where it's sucking up things. And then yeah. I also know uh, funny things about that where, like, you can do a mechanical fuel pump thing on the front of that. Or the back, because yep. it's all cassettes. Is that yep. the right word? It's all cassette style? Yep. Yeah, it's then, modular. Yeah. Like my buddy Frank does on his race cars, when they put the turbos all the way down in the bumper, there's another, I think it's like a low pressure, or a, a, it might even be the a, scaven- a third the stage to be yep. scavenged. Exactly. Yep. So I yeah, think, no, that works good. I think no matter what, instead of doing, if you think you're going to be doing any of that really high G-force sideways stuff, go straight to a dry sump because I think you're going to burn up a ton of motors. And I've seen that with Taylor Ray, who's a no bullshit guy. He just burned up a bunch of, I mean, and it took time and everything else. And I think uh, it wasn't even that expensive. He goes over the cost for everything he did. He always, he, he goes over that. He did an entire breakdown video that was itemized and it really wasn't that much. If you consider three, four engines, five different oil pans, it was it was underneath the cost of replacement engines and trying different oil pans and baffles and everything you can think of. Yeah, and and here's the problem because we get a lot of drift guys that come in. Eric from West Tech does a lot of tuning on their stuff, and especially guys that are starting out. You you say, okay, I'm going to get this two or three or four hundred dollar LS motor, and then you tell them that they need to spend a thousand or fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars or whatever it is on a on a dry sum system. A lot of guys won't do it, and they won't do it until they've blown up two or three motors because drift cars have obviously lots of change of direction, which is hard. And a lot of guys, they'll run up on, um, on sections of banked ovals too, as part of their drifting. So they're drift angling on, on a bank, which is really hard on stuff. And you can only make that work like 
with with the dry sump. It's really hard to do on any kind of wet sump. And most of those chassis applications require a pan that's a terrible dry sump oil pan anyway. So they have um, a lot going against them. And what's funny, there's a comment uh, from Comb Over Racing. He goes, wow, a dry sump fixed oiling issues? Really unbelievable. And to that, I will add the Corvette c6 z06 has a factory dry sump on an ls7 and people complain about oiling issues that are real so that's kind of a smart ass comment where i have a smart ass reply that's real so a dry sump doesn't fix everything as we all know an appropriate dry sump setup works better i don't know the issue with the ls7 but tons of road race guys talk about spinning can or spinning rod bearings the car has a dry sump why, why does it have oil issues? And then someone else makes up a good point. An accumulator will fix a lot of that too. I agree. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, but I understand how an accumulator works. And yeah. I think that's probably a good idea. Maybe if we build another super fast drag car, because they all dip at the launch or they dip on the brakes when you uncover the sump hard on the brakes. And yeah. it would be interesting to see something like that that suffers from... Well, my buddy Brett has that uh, third gen. It'll be interesting to see what his oil pressure is on his data logs at either end of the track or beginning of the track. Something like an accumulator might apply really well to his because it has a fantastic baseline. So, And on, on your, your comment about the factory um, LS7 motor, that's actually more of an external wet sump than it is a true dry sump. That's why guys that's, have Someone just said that. So that's yeah. where I'm going to learn something. Yep. Techmark just said, Matt, the LS7 is not a true dry sump. It's a damp nope. sump, not wet, not yeah. true dry. So that's <laughs> no, where the issue not. is, I guess. So yeah. it has like a little bit of a pan and then it puts it yeah. into a canister. So you can yeah. still on a long, if the, if the pickups are on the driver's side, you're doing a long turn to the left, you're uncovering the dry sump at some point because it has somewhat of a sump. Yeah. Just don't ever tell a guy that owns one that he doesn't have a dry sump because he's already bragging that he has a dry sump and that he has titanium valves and whatever other cool things. It's, it, it is an impressive motor. We've run them on the dyno and they make good power, but th- that dry sump <laughs> doesn't, doesn't solve all of the problems. Oh, Sean says he's a guy that donated and said stuff before he goes, my V10 BMW M6 also had a similar, not really dry sump. Yeah. And Those are some, cool motors too. And then someone says, uh, I used to run a Moroso accumulator on a drag car. It was cheap and it worked really well. And to that, I would say, did you have oil issues and did it fix it? Or did you just put it on and never have an issue? Similarly yeah. to like some stuff people say you should do, like ARP everything. And it, at this point, it, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter on a completely stock engine with a turbo. Just like people say you need rod bolts. Meanwhile, I'm over here swinging. Uh, Gen 3 6 liter 7400 RPM with boost in it uh, and it has completely stock reused garbage you know stock bolts that were you're, you know, you're gonna you're gonna break the rod before you break the bolt yeah I, I always say to people I'm like look at a destruction photo the big end is still on the crank yeah. it's still there look it's at the rod there. bolts they're smiling they're like hey we did our job what's up with the rod ARP rod bolts are AIDS with coronavirus. Exactly. People have, they have so much money to spend on things and they buy rod bolts. 
Anyway. Yeah. And Springs. <laughs> uh... And, and I, I love the guys at ARP, and I and and I know that you reuse all the head bolts. If I put together almost any turbo motor, any turbo LS, I almost always put ARP head studs in it. I've run boosted stuff with stock ones in that I've never taken apart before. We've done that a lot, but if I'm going to put them together, I put ARP stuff in it, just like I usually buy good wastegates because I want the boost control to be to be accurate. But I have run CX Racing or these cheap um, wastegates. But what I found with a lot of those, and I get this question all the time, is that they don't seem to be real consistent on like they'll rate the wastegate. Oh, this has a 10 pound spring in it. It's, it's, it's 10 ish. It's, it's 14, it's 11, it's whatever. Um, and so they're not very consistent. That, that's the one thing I do like about, and I've tried a few of them tile and we obviously run turbo smart on a lot of things. And Marty over there is great. And when I run a turbo smart wastegate, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And I'm not the nicest person to a lot of these parts. So I run it on the dyno and then I grab it and I just throw it over in the corner and then I pick it back up the next month or whatever and put it back on. So it's not treated like with kids gloves and it just works and works and works. And, and there are some things that I like spending money on and those, those are two of them. And maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm wasting money here. No, I, it all depends, right? Like I say to people uh, that I like to build cheap stuff. But then if you're not as mechanically inclined, you should probably spend money similarly. And then you're doing a lot of testing and you don't want the failure to be something stupid. So you use ARP stuff. And I also agree there's a time and a place when you need phenomenal stuff like expensive ARP stuff. But uh, for what I always speak to, we, uh, you know, I want to clear that up is majority of these people, 800 horsepower to the tire is well above and beyond what they would need. And all of this stuff is absolutely fine under that level reusing all yep. this garbage and like i said you're going to do a test where you want to make 1400 flywheel or more uh you don't want the failure to be a head stud or head bolt stock reused yep. one and then you tell people well this happened and people are going to be like you should have studded and you should have whatever so <laughs> yeah. they're going to say bad things anyways <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah i've been in that yeah. boat for many years so oh yeah a good one is what type of engine oil is your favorite? And that might be application specific. So we're going to make an assumption and say the first question is about turbo LS cars. I think that the, I think that the brand that you use is less important maybe than the viscosity that we use. We on an LS. Um, first of all, it, the LS that we get from the rec yard is lucky to get new oil anyway. And it, it would usually get whatever's cheap and on sale at the auto parts store. Um, a lot of times we have Lucas oil, which those guys are fantastic and they've given oil to the guys at West Tech occasionally and we'll use that. So we'll use a 530 or a 520 or a 540, something like that. And there are lots and lots of good brands. What I always tell people about oil is like I've used Royal Purple and Mobile One and, uh, Redline stuff, which was really good. Tim Kerrigan back in the day. Um, I, even in my Camaro way back, I used Arco Graphite, if anybody knows what that is, because they had a good advertising program. It was terrible oil. But, you know, I, and I've seen Matt recommend the Dello stuff. Um, I've never seen anybody show me a direct back-to-back -back test where one oil made something, like, last longer. Like, I've seen tests on um, different sorts of additive packages. This one has more detergent. This one has more lubricity or this, you know, I've seen that kind of thing, 
but we've seen changes in power from different viscosities of the oil. But if you test a good name brand oil that's that's 530 and a, another oil that's 530, they should probably be really close in power. And I don't know, we don't do ever do destruction tests for longevity for things where I think oil might come into play. Uh, I have, I have some, I'd actually like to learn more about that because I've always been whatever works, works. And a bunch of the guys, we did a podcast, I think it was one of the first or second ones with Hunter Tuned, A21 Bravo, and Squirrel Tuned. And they have all said that a specific version, I think Hunter Tuned, Hunter Tuned says Schaefer's, but it, it might be something else though. They said a specific oil works absolutely better in a turbo LS. There's better oil pressure. There's less problems with oiling with a specific one. And I can, tr- I, I believe them and I would like to try what yeah. that was. But, uh, because I run, I buy like Rotella in like yeah. the, in like a 10 gallon thing. Cause I, I run, I run, I change, I have 10 vehicles. So that's oh, yeah. like my fleet jug. And uh, I don't really have issues, but I do notice hot oil pressure is not great, but I don't have any issues again. Yeah. So uh, there's a whole caveat there, but uh, people. So did they tell you? Did they tell you why that particular oil that they have? What additive package they had that had that thing maintain its stability under temperature? I don't know, but a lot of you know they they like it, and Squirrel Tuned has gone really fast, and there might be a reason why. Uh, Oh, he says they all like VR1 2050. VR1 Valvoline VR1 smells better burning than other oils. <laughs> so I wondered I if we were going somewhere like that. <laughs> it would be an interesting test, and maybe I'll do it on my G, because on my G35, I have a pre-filter oil pressure sensor and a top-of-the-block post-everything oil pressure sensor. And what I've seen is a significant delta depending on temperature, day, oil pressure, and uh, health of the oil. As the oil gets older, uh, there's sometimes, there's 20% more, or there's 20 pounds more oil pressure before the filter than there is at the top of the block. And part of me is looking at stuff like this. uh, Does this determine a bunch of leaks in the motor that could be fixed, uh, worn O-rings, or is it uh, significant uh, clearances where it's spilling out, or is it just yeah. that the pressure spot on the top of the block is the worst place ever to get it because it's the longest run of the line? Uh, yeah. Are both of them important to figuring out something? Uh, that's something I'm very interested in, but you need a lot of I.O. on a car and someone that cares about looking at it other than me for no reason. But yeah. Did you do you look at the delta and to help you determine whether or not your filter is getting clogged and it's and the flow rate of the filter is going away? It's more I'm learning, but since here's the other offshoot of that is I run E85, and as we know, uh, short stops and starts it degrades the oil faster. So if you're not driving yeah, it enough, you're getting a lot of alcohol and beating up the oil. And I know. Uh, I used to only have the top of the block and I would get to a point where hot idle was less than 20 PSI and Mm. I would dump the oil out of the pan and it would come out like Nestle spring water. It was like no lubricity. And then I would put fresh oil in and then hot idle at the top of the block would be 40 pounds again. But similarly out of the pump, 
post-filter, it would be good still, but it was really bad by the time it got to the top of the block. So yeah. that's another thing. Maybe wherever it does leak in between the oil pump and the top of the block significantly increases because the oil is so broken down and it almost doesn't matter. It's just a thing. The oil is still getting there, but there's much less getting to the top of the back of the block, which really doesn't matter. Sure. Uh, that's something I'm learning for no reason. I don't know. It would be cool to ask people that maybe look at oil pressure in two parts of the block that they could add to it, but, uh, you know, maybe. So you and the one other guy in the world probably would know what that is. <laughs> I mean, probably like ProMod or F1 people know that. Uh, yeah, and... no, there's, there's going to be guys. Um, the one thing I can say for guys that are running E85, and you brought up a good point, is that because of that contamination, you would be much better off running a synthetic oil because it's much better at dealing with um, higher levels of contaminant. From diesels. Than, uh, yeah. From the particulate. Yeah, so it will last longer getting contaminated like that. So it should stay better for a little bit longer than a conventional oil will. But if you're going to be changing it a bunch anyway, then it gets more expensive. And then also people have told me that Rotella is a diesel oil and it's it's meant to absorb particulate and in, it's there's supposed to be more quantity of Rotella. So when you put Rotella in an ethanol car, it wants to absorb particulate, so it actually absorbs more of the alcohol than normal and breaks down sooner, which is nice. something I've taken into consideration also. Uh, there's plenty of people that road race and beat up oil way more than I do have told sure. me stuff like that, and there has to be some merit to that. So another thing, when I change my oil next, I'm going to buy like whatever Hunter or someone recommends, like the VR1 2050. Yeah. And I would like to run that and see if it takes a significant amount of mileage more to give me a giant delta between pump and top of block. So that would well, be significant. Yeah, let me know what happens. That's good stuff. Yeah, so if one oil, uh, I mean, and I can understand that Rotella is meant to absorb more particulate for whatever reason, or if it just does, I don't know. It, it's, well, it's, it's, it's diesel fuel, so it's going to probably have more contamination in the oil anyway. Yeah, so they say like just blow by and compression and diesel soot getting past the yep. rings, uh, and the oil grabs it or whatever. I don't, I don't know the science behind it, but I've had more than one person say that, and I've had many more people tell me that Rotella has significantly lower oil pressure than VR1 or something else. So it's something I want to test at least with one okay. car. This is funny. Someone just says out of nowhere, Matt Johnson, you guys have double-digit oil pressure at idle? <laughs> true, See? true, true. Uh, someone, yeah. now we'll, we'll bust off course because I think we're soapboxing too much on. People learn, but who knows, uh, you know, if, if we're just so off base, they get deer in headlights and they're not interested anymore. So what's uh, two questions by Anthony? He goes, what's your favorite band and what's your favorite movie? Uh, the movie question is good. Um, I can tell you that uh, everybody needs to watch every one of the Tremors movies. <laughs> There's about five or six of them because you need to watch uh, just specifically for Burt Gummer. So if you're a Tremors fan, you'll know who that is. You need to watch all those. A couple of movies that I always watch when they come on. One of them is Fifth Element, which I think is better than Blade Runner. Um, the other one is almost all of the major league movies. I, I like those. Um, I'm a big fan of all of the Marvel movies, so that that's all good stuff. 
Um, and the, so it was um, movies. And what was the other thing? Unmute myself here. Uh, favorite band? Yeah. Oh, um, I can tell you that the I don't know about my favorite band because I like lots and lots of different kind of music. Um, I can tell you that I did get to see uh, Bruce Springsteen second row center in the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Uh, and there's way more of that story. So that was awesome. Um, I got to see the Ramones in concert, which was very good. And oddly enough, I won tickets to see um, on the radio. I won tickets way back to see Elton John. I thought, I'm not going to go see Elton John. And I went to see him and he was freaking amazing. <laughs> so I, I like lots, but, but I would be equally at home going to see um, one of my favorite songs is California Love, um, you know, Tupac. And the, I, I would like to go see that too. That would be awesome. That's a you know, very good answer. So someone, Patrick Burke, just made a donation question, and I'm opinionated on this also. And it would be interesting okay. to see what you think, because I feel like you don't run into this at all. But it says, hey, Matt and Richard, since HP Tuners hates the little guy and Holly stuff is a tad too expensive for Junkyard, is there a future for stock ECU tuning little guys and open source projects out there? Well, that that's all Matt because all that I, I I've told people over and over again I'm not a tuner. I can tune all of my stuff on the dyno using Holly and and pretty good with fast, but I never use factory stuff. So Matt, I'm gonna let you answer this. And while you're doing that, I'm gonna you know refill. refill. Okay. Uh, so I'll be right back. I want to hear what you're saying though. Oh okay. Uh well I'll explain. Yeah, there's a lot of EPA stuff going on, and everybody is kind of. Uh, a bunch of header companies are just declining to make headers. A bunch of other people are totally taking everything off their websites about it. Uh, I have a very opinionated answer to uh, people say HP tuners is cheaper. I don't think in any way that's true at all because the Holly came out with the Terminator and I do everything cost effectively and there's literally nothing that's more cost effective than a Terminator setup. I don't think people are understanding. There, A lot of videos came out when Terminator launched, and they're like, HP Tuners is still cheaper. And uh, what I don't think people understand, uh, those videos have significant... They've just completely died off. They don't exist anymore. Because what people realized was all of the benefit you're getting inside the ECU. And to to hand that off, uh, you if you're... I would say integration is the best thing you can do. If you have a modern car that still needs OBD2 and inspection and everything else, you still need to like turn off some like reduced power mode and some other things in the car. The dash is going to be lit up, but if you do an integrated install, with like the 2500 truck that I did, it's controlling the ADE, it's controlling the drive-by-wire, it's controlling the engine. So everything else can be fairly unhappy, but it's going to run and drive fine, but you might have some messages in the dash. Richard's back. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult because HP Tuners, in my opinion, doesn't really hate the little guy. It's just that uh, the EPA stuff is squeezing them, and then the manufacturer is making ECUs harder to crack. Uh, when the Dodges first came out, the Dodges still, you need to send the computer out and get it hardware modified to be able to flash it. So it's just getting harder. The C8... No one has support for. Everybody's doing piggyback. 
And I think the piggyback is the future. So at some point, HP tuners doesn't matter at all. Uh, another facet of that is if you have a 2006 Silverado and you want to do a bunch of stuff to it, HP tuners is still worthwhile, but it doesn't have boost cut. It doesn't have closed loop fuel. It doesn't have directly usable flex fuel. If it's a PO1, it has flex and I've done a bunch of stuff like that, but it takes so long to work correctly. It takes like 20 minutes to completely add the flex fuel in. Uh, a lot of times that stuff, if it's a, most people are doing a swap anyway and not a, in a, like a complete stock truck. They're doing a swap in an older car because they have trouble with, uh, emissions and regulation and inspection in their area anyway. So you're getting like a, a pre OBD2 car and just putting a hood exit on it and a Holly. But yeah, people say that Holly is expensive, which is a complete null point at this juncture because people will say a holly is expensive but they will spend five six hundred dollars on a hp tuners setup and then they buy a wideband for 150 dollars and they buy a boost controller for 250 dollars and everything else associated with that and they simply have no benefit whereas if like richard probably doesn't do a lot of it but if you have a dominator car and it has a hundred inputs and outputs each one of those can be intersected with a table that controls something. Uh, a lot of people might not realize they'll have 1500 bucks into a wet nitrous kit that can't even pull ignition out of their stock computer car. Whereas a Holly, like we talked about, a timing ramp based off of application. And I think a bunch of people aren't realizing you can do a progressive nitrous kit. You can have the Holly control it. And it will progress all of it. And then there's tables in the nitrous output aspect of that that will do pedal strategies. If you spin and pedal the car, it'll apply another strategy to how the nitrous kit kicks on. If you're running four shots of nitrous, it will apply different pedal strategies or completely disengage other shots depending on the amount of pedal you have. Uh, literally, it's, it's stuff that you would Actually never... Control. Yeah, there's stuff that you would never think of going on there. And it's all, the biggest thing is it's all in-house. Other times what people are doing is they're having these systems exchange and there's a big disconnect or a delay or improper data going back and forth, or you're just dealing with it. Like, and I'm, uh, I've answered that. I've done that plenty of times where I've just done stuff to do it, but for the money, which is almost identical or less, by the time you add in a bunch of this stuff, uh, it cannot be beat for the money. And then if if you eventually turn this into a serious race car, if it's a Terminator X and then you want to have drive-by-wire and ADE, you're a, you're a ECU swap away. The harnesses and everything are the same. And then if you have a Terminator X and all of a sudden you want 100 inputs and outputs, you buy a Dominator and you plug it in. Uh... So it depends on what you're doing, but most of the time, uh, even running an OBD2 setup and piggybacking on a Terminator is a far better use case scenario because you want a data log. If someone has no clue what they're doing, jumping into HP tuners is the worst thing in the world because it's convoluted. I think I've said this every podcast when HP tuners question comes up, but I'll say it to Richard too, but... A stock computer is a federally mandated emissions control device where horsepower is a byproduct. If it thinks, for emissions reasons, that it needs to run a 9 air fuel and wash out your oil pan at idle, it will. 
because it has to because the emissions is the one the the first standard and then everything else is after that so if i haven't soapboxed enough about that point uh there's a reason why i'm adamant about it and also i tune these cars and also i hand them over to people and uh stuff like the closed loop fuel control works so well it's hard for people to blow up their motor and then also the biggest thing is when you have HP tuners and you build a setup like I give away the information and you load the tune in the car and it doesn't run and you have no idea why, Holly takes away 90% of the equation. You can do the Game Boy tune and it starts and drives. Even if a bunch of your stuff is wrong. I've had people drive to the dyno that had a three bar map sensor, but they had turned on the integrated map. So they had a one bar and they had a flex fuel sensor that's not enabled at all when you do a Game Boy tune. And they drove it to the dyno, and they're like, wow, it's never driven so good. And I'm like, you have two primary things on the car that aren't even working correctly. And you're like, starts, runs, drives, drove an hour to Matt's dyno. Uh, yeah, so imagine trying to do that with HP tuners. And then the other thing is, if you're data logging with HP tuners, and you're not an expert on the scanning layout. So Richard probably doesn't know this, but if you're scanning with HP tuners to collect data, and you have six things in the PID list, you're only ever getting six things of data. If you're data logging with Holly, you're getting every single PID in the ECU. So six years later, you can look something up that you think might have been an issue. It has it there. Meanwhile, if you logged RPM and TPS on HP tuners, that's all you have forever. That's the two data points you have forever. So when someone tries to draw a comparison for that stuff, it's it's unrealistic and... and uh, but yeah, it's getting, and then what HP tuners, and I understand what they have to do is they have lawsuits from employees. They have lawsuits from EPA pending. Like they can get crushed unless they agree to do certain things. And then newer stuff is so complex and it takes so many engineers and hours of their lives to fix it. They need to get that price they invested back out of you. And they're going to charge you $2,000 for credits to tune something. Wait till the C8 is tunable, and I, I cannot wait to see how many credits it costs to license with HP tuners. And they're taking so long that by then, Holly or Motec or somebody is going to have... Cyvex, who knows? Uh, this is all stuff that's plug-and-play on Lamborghinis that are expensive as hell and untunable. Uh, and they can satiate all of these incredibly complex stock ECUs and have uh, built-in standalone. That stuff is coming out before HP tuners, so now they're at risk. Uh, to why spend the money to develop something like this? Uh, you know, everybody's up in the air. So, anyway, I think that was ten minutes explaining to you, Patrick. I, well, hope I, that, I had plenty of time. I hope that uh, you know that gives sheds some light on these systems and what's going to happen. I can't speak on behalf of any of these people, but those are my opinions, and as you know, I'm strongly opinionated. Well, look how much the the when the everyone was working on the new um, ZR1 motor, the GM one, nobody could crack that, and the first guys to do that could charge an arm and a leg for tunes and credits for those things. It was just ridiculous, and it's going to get worse and worse as we go because the OEMs obviously don't want you doing anything to their stuff. They and obviously the EPA doesn't want you doing anything to the things either. They don't want you modifying the cars at all. And neither does the factory. And in defense of the factory, especially when you have a ZR1 or a supercharged GT500, that kind of thing, 
they don't want you doing that because what people will do is when you modify it, which obviously, you know, we're <laughs> we're all in on. But when you do that, you should take responsibility for it. So when you modify it and turn the boost up and turn the timing up and do all the stuff and you end up blowing it up and then you put it back together and take it back to the dealership. It's, I don't know. I was just driving down the road and it, and it blew up. Well, they don't want to 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 do warranties on cars that guys modified. So they're going to make it so that it gets harder and harder and then next impossible to do that. Or they will know that you did that and then you need to be responsible. You need to take personal responsibility for doing that because, you know, if you're going to modify it, you should own up to that. Yeah. And uh, so I would like to call out this guy real quick. And uh, uh -oh. he goes uh, a micro, which he means a micro squirt, a wide band and a three bar sensor and junkyard sensors is $700. Well, Try to get your average user to make a micro squirt work. They don't know how to get the firmware flashed. They don't know how to load a base tune. The software is convoluted. The wideband will not work at all unless you completely fully scale the wideband output. And then you have to make sure that it's correct because it's voltage scale output and it probably won't be correct. And this is speaking from experience. I've done it. I've been there. I helped research and development the micro squirt on the LS platform. And what you're doing is you're getting a lot of junk instead of new stuff. Because I'm not saying the microsquirt's junk, it has its place. But you're using all these junkyard sensors and everything. And you, you know, you think a deal, that's if you wire it yourself. A plug and play microsquirt with a wiring harness is $650. And then I don't know where you're getting a wideband worth a damn for $50. And I don't know, you're getting the sensors with the motor, sure, that's fine. But already you're at three quarters of the cost of an ECU setup that comes with a dash, with a wideband, with a wiring harness that plug and plays. I don't think you're understanding the significance of that. I can't believe I lambasted so long about all of that and you're saying that a micro is worth it at $300 less than a Terminator X. And what I said about the scalability, you can't take any of that and plug it into MS3, anything else, and then you still don't have closed loop and you still don't have, it has it, but I challenge you guys to make it work correctly. I've spent enough time on it. People can't use it. What I'm saying here is, is if Richard was a uh, zero experience boomer, he can put an LS in and he can, he can beep up, beep up, and the car runs and drives and he can drive it to a tuner. I yeah. challenge you again to do that with a micro squirt. It is, I'm not saying it's hard to use. I'm not saying it's awful. I'm not saying that it's no good. What I've learned over the years is no one can make it work. Nobody. Very short amount of people can actually make it work. The software is awful. One guy writes firmware. One guy makes software out of Java. Why does he write software in Java? Uh, the options based when you look at the screen, uh, it's like opening... Uh, a dictionary and you want to find one thing and you have to just page through options continually uh it's very difficult to compare them and for literally for the the percentage of cost you're spending on that and having all of those issues to essentially going to zero issues and here's here's another thing let's just keep going ask <laughs> go to 10 tuners within driving distance of you and ask them if they'll tune a micro squirt Go to 10 tuners in your area and ask them if they'll tune a holly. Go to a couple of your friends and ask them if they'll help you with a micro squirt. Go on drag week and ask them if they'll help you with a micro squirt. And then go to those places where people race and ask them if, if they have a holly and if they'll help you out. Uh, that is the, the, 
<laughs> the reality of it and the staggering realization that a lot of you may have at that point, the support is exponential. People will have spare parts. People with a tune will be able to help you. You can data log that and send someone a tune file and they can send it back. Not like HP tuners where everybody has to have it licensed to touch it. Uh, it's, it's difficult to explain that to everybody. Uh, try making a data log with a micro squirt or an MS3 and sending it to somebody and sending them a project folder with 65 files in it, uh, or, uh, the, the file itself for the tune, the MSQ. What do you send the person? What do they modify? How do you load that? Do you load the MSQ? Do you use the project file? Is the project file they're using to have the appropriate scale on the wideband sensor? It becomes, uh, this, people are deer in headlighting me because they didn't know that all of this existed, I'm sure. But if you have a terminator and you click wide, uh, click log on the dash and you log it and you send the tune file from the SD card, and the log on the SD card in the dash, someone gets all the information they need to see and they can appropriately write all of it because all the scale is the same, all the data logs are the same, all the tune files are the same. They can write you an update and you can plaster it in and you're done. Uh, you know, the significance of that is way over a bunch of your heads, not to talk down to anybody. So, were you talking down to me? Yeah, everybody. No, the Holly, if the, if I can make the Holly work, if I can install a Holly and put it on there and tune it and get it fired up and get it working and tune everything that I need to work, anybody can do it basically. And then people don't even get me started on this uh, Speedwino stuff. Uh, it's an Arduino with Megasquirt stuff loaded on it. Tell me one person running that effectively that's going fast, that runs worth a damn, that yeah. they might be out there, but dude, where are they? How do, does it exist? Similar thing. Like you have to do, if you just want to run your car, like if you just, uh, people always say like people need to learn more. They shouldn't have 500 horsepower car. That's so easy. Who the hell are you? And why can't like a whole burnouts and ice cream thing I continually talk about? Uh, why should you tell some guy he can't do burnouts with his kids because he doesn't have the time to be Richard Holdener on a dyno? Who has that time? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's your job. So th that's way more time invested than you would be able to personally unless you were homeless and someone wrote you checks. Ooh, that would be cool. Well, yeah, it would be very cool, but it just doesn't exist. But people have all this. And then, like, you know, I just don't think they're getting it. Uh... Somebody recommended a, a Cyberdyne Systems 101 for you, so I think huh. that one would probably work pretty well. So someone made a donated question, so we'll do that, and I'll try to ask you stuff where it's not me bitching for too long. Uh, don't get Matt started on tuning, guys. Jesus, don't get me going. I touch <laughs> enough of these cars to know that people... And then I give people a tune file real quick. Again, they don't know how to load it. They don't know what to do with it. And then it asks in a certain funny way, and they end up... They grab the wrong thing, and then it screws everything. I don't... Yeah, I can't... Mm. I'm I get. Thinking, um, I'm, I'm thinking, thinking that I should. Um, <laughs> I get five guys a day asking me to tune their stuff, and I tell them the same thing. But I tell everybody, I'm not a tuner, dude. I don't want to make your car. I said, go, go talk to Matt. I'm not. I don't want to make your car work like out on the road, do all this stuff. I said the tuning that I do is I can do this and make it start and do everything I needed to do on the engine dyno, and I'm only looking at 
it idles, it transitions from idle up to wide open throttle, and it runs across the top three cells at wide open throttle. I interpolate everything else. Just oh, the only reason that I do that is so when Eric comes in or Ish comes in or somebody looks at it, they look at the graph, um, that, that it looks fancy. <laughs> so it looks like I, I, I knew what I was doing. But it's really easy to do like, okay, I want it, I want the air field to be 12.8. Let's say it's a naturally aspirated LS and I want it to be 12.8. That takes me, for everything to be 12.8, takes me two runs, maybe three. I can, do, I can do all the tuning and the running of a naturally aspirated LS in six pulls. You won't get any more power out of it because we've already gone, I've done hundreds and hundreds of them. So we know what they do. We know where, they're, where they want to be. And somebody asked, uh, and this is a question I get asked all the time on tuning. And so I'll tell you guys how I tune it because there's lots and lots of guys out there that, and I'm sure, Matt, you got to get this all the time with as much tuning as you do. There are guys out there that will argue with me about, <laughs> about the tune that I ran on a motor that they know nothing about, that they weren't at West Tech, that they only know what I, the information that I gave them on a video. But what we do when we tune is I'll put the motor on the dyno, we'll start it, we'll put very low timing in it, we'll tune the air fuel to, if it's an NA, like uh, LS, a 5.48 or 5.3, we'll start tuning, we'll start leaning the motor out, we'll start at 11 to 1 and start leaning it out and go, okay, it doesn't want to make any more power past 12.7 to 1. Then we'll start adding timing, okay, it doesn't want to make any more power past 29 degrees, let's say, and it'll have less power at the torque peak and below, but we'll put a curve in it. And, but we can do it with a fixed timing curve too and go, hey, look, if we put 29 degrees in it everywhere, it, it doesn't like that at 3000 or 3500 wherever. So it, it will, it will create a curve for us, but we just start adding timing until it doesn't make any more power. And we start taking away fuel until it doesn't make any power, any more power. And I don't care what those numbers are. And that's what guys want to argue with me about. Well, it made more power if you'd have made it 13 too. And I'm like, you weren't there. And you don't know what that number represents. And I don't care what that number is. The dyno tells us and the motor tells us, okay, I'm not making any more power. And honestly, I don't even have to look at what the number is, what the airfield number is, or what the timing number is. The dyno just told us that when I went more timing, it didn't make any more power. When I leaned it out more, it didn't make any more power. So it's done. Unless you listen to some very special guys on the, on the internet, which you know who they are, Matt. Unless you listen to those guys, those guys can come tune another 30 or 40 horsepower out of it. Yeah, it ain't happening. <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I say it, I say it till I'm blue in the face. Uh, and when I, especially when I do a turbo pump gas LS car, uh, I'll start at a 10.8 and then frequently yeah. the car won't misfire. It won't have any problems. And putting it to an 11.8 does absolutely nothing. And I'm sure you have done this. But the first time I did it completely wrecked my reality, having eight wide bands on a car and an engine dyno. <laughs> it's scary, yeah. <laughs> Once you see that, you can't unsee it. And I've said that yep. many times. So now yep. in a turbo car, eight cylinders, one downpipe, my brain is like, if I have a 12.0, one of them might be 13.8. Yeah. Because I've seen it. So I push, I will add fuel until there's a giant delta Drop. where it loses power because yep. this person's going to road race or they're going to highway race a Honda Civic in their 25 race truck. Yep. And uh, the only thing where I've seen where there's a decent gain is on E85. I change the target air fuel yeah. because it does not like to beat pump gas. If it's not misfiring, 
it's good. 10-0 air yep. fuel, 10-2 air fuel. It doesn't really care. Uh, but then E85 is a little bit, very few cars I run into are fuel sensitive where an 11.0 and a 12.0 make significant power difference. Yeah. And that might be because of majority of the cylinders are tanking, s similar. But, uh, E85 car really does like, uh, maybe race gas cars 12.0 most of the time. Uh, and then, yeah, they just don't seem to like a fat mixture down low, but that's, it's such a percentage thing. It's a percentage game that you play. And then if it's not enough, it's not worth chasing. And a lot, I think a lot. But I've similarly had people disagree with a lot of what I'm doing. And yeah. I don't think they do anymore. I, I would say most of the people that contact me that actually make it through all of the... When I have time to reply to 100 emails or when I look at someone and I'm like, this person sounds needy and I can't yeah. work with exactly. someone who's needy. I don't have the... I don't have the time to get back to someone that, that is like a high-maintenance girlfriend. Uh, and no no offense to them. There's some people that are just want to be really involved. And yeah. usually those people are very incorrect or they've been coached by someone that doesn't know. No yeah. offense to them, but they just don't know. And they want things, but they don't, they don't understand that the more you argue with someone that's tuning your car, the more they're not going to want to work with you. Uh, you either know them and let them do it or shut the hell up. And then yeah. similarly, uh, I don't care anymore. I have learned, I have a, not that I'm a person that worries much anyway, but I've had people that are like, it should make more, it should make more. And I'm like, I'll gut this thing right now. What do you want me to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll gut I can this make thing. more. I don't care. Uh, I just do it anymore. Some people are very disagreeable and I'll just dust the motor. Blah, yeah. gone. And I'm like, huh, there, there it is. And then people, same thing with the drive shafts. Some places are like, I never throw drive shafts. And I'm like, well, there's some people that say the drive shaft's fine, so I throw it across the room for them. Yeah. I probably do 10 a year, and I think I'm already at two this year already. So there's people that will argue. They know better. So I'm yeah. like, cool, you're the expert. You're paying me. So if that's what you want, as soon as I start talking like that, then they're like, Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'll knock the head guys. Okay, I've right reached the point. That's, that's too much. If that's what you want, if there's what I want to do, and then there's what you want to do, and you yeah. have the money, so I'll do what you want to do. As much, I, I'm only going to explain to you that it shouldn't be done so long until I just give you what you want, which I don't, you don't interact with people on that level, but some people just want it to come apart. They're not yeah. happy until it comes apart, and I can tell those people right away. And uh, yeah. it's taken me a while. I used to, like I, I, used yeah, to be, I used to be kind of shy about it, but anymore, like someone starts to give me resistance, and I'm like, "Okay, you want it to run like shit, and you don't care if it comes apart, right? Is that where we're at? Because I'll make it run like shit and make it come apart real quick. We'll just end yeah. the day early because you want the rods out." And they're like, "Oh, I don't mean to," and I'm like, "Well, that's the you're being kind of pompous and a jerk off, so." Uh, yeah. I'm gonna be a jerk off back and say that you want sounds like you want the rods out, so I can deliver that very quickly and we can end the day fast. Oh yeah. And I can go get a coffee and wait for the next person that's coming today. Oh, I don't. Oh, I'm like yeah, okay, yeah. It seems like you're very pushy. So I, I've, yeah. I've told plenty of people to leave too. Like I've had very disagreeable people. I'm, you have to. I'm like I'm not. I'm definitely not the person for you. So why don't you just leave? I'm not gonna charge you a penny. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> 
the we we go through that sometimes at West Tech and and more Steve Brule has to go through that because you'll you'll get guys that have a supercharged motor on them and and Steve will tell them okay look here's here's so you guys do that if someone run. sorry to, so if someone has a complete combination and they need it dyno tuned Brule people will pay West Tech to go over it and tune it. That, that's what they do is they, is engine builders and customers will bring motors to West Tech. They will dyno them. They will tune them. Steve's really good at that. Um, and they'll bring stuff over and you'll get guys that occasionally Steve will tell them, look, we normally run this kind of timing and this kind of air fuel, especially if it's on pump gas and it's a boat motor because he's, he loves boats and he loves big blocks and he's really good at making those work. He says, this is what we do. And the guy's like, well, it needs to make more power. And Steve's like, look, Okay, you can tell me if you want me to turn it up from 30 degrees to 32 degrees. But when we do that, that's your decision. And the thing that happens next is on you and it's not on us. And so he tells them and, <laughs> you know, and the, and if the motor breaks, the motor breaks. And, uh, you know, and so he, he actually lets them make the decision to, to break something if it's going to go that direction. And lucky for me, I don't deal with customers like that because i just do my own stuff but um so if i if i am talking sometimes i talk to myself and then i convince myself to add more timing and then i can only blame myself for adding more timing when i break something yeah and uh please leave richard talk <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> that's why i said i need jamie here to like smack me every now and then uh i know i told lisa, I told lisa to come in and, and uh, tell you that she wanted to meet jamie Oh yeah, we'll we'll come out there one day for that. That's not a joke at all. We we'll definitely have to do something sometime. Yeah, they can talk while we to... grandstand about engine bullshit. <laughs> Are you going to LS Fest? What in West? Yeah, no, not West. The LS Fest back where you guys are. Uh that's that's a good question. I'll figure it out. I'm definitely not bringing anything. If I go, I'll just fly in. Okay. But that's a, you know, maybe, maybe not. Because the last couple times it was more of a job than it was fun. So. Okay. My other issue with that place. No, no we won't go over it. I've talked too much. <laughs> Underdog Performance made a donation and asked a question. So we're going to go over that. He's building an 06 Colorado, a Gen 4, 4.8 with 243s and a 224R cam. Dry direct fogger kit with Terminator X, TH350, 8.8, highly considering building a D-stroke 6-liter with a 4.8 crank to run in the same truck. And you have made a particular video on this, which I enjoyed because I knew the truth, and I'm glad you confirmed it. A D-stroke <laughs> is a joke. Just, there's no point. There's no point. It's a lot of money and a lot of work. Go ahead. And that this is another thing, like when we were talking about when I had to sadly tell people about the 243 and the 799 heads versus the 706. It's the same discussion that I disappoint all of the people that want to do these D-stroke motors. Um, for this guy, if he's going from a 4.8 to a D-stroke 6 liter, that's actually a step up. He's going to make more power. But if he just goes to the 6 liter, he'll make even more power. The D-stroke the motor is really cool, and I know why guys love like a DZ302 as compared to a 327 or a 350. It's a really cool motor, and if I had a 69Z28, it would have a DZ302 in it. But you will make more power if you run a 6-liter instead of a 6-liter with a 4.8 crank in it. If you're doing it just because you think that it's cool, dude, I am behind you 100%. Just know that it's not. It's going to make less power. The turbo is going to be less responsive. It's going to make less torque. It's going to do all the things that it does 
worse than it would if you just made a six leader. Yeah, it's just, again, like the D-stroke up makes sense because you're gaining some uh, cubes. But everything else, people take a 6-0 or an LS3 and knock it down. And you said piston speed and all that garbage doesn't matter. Uh, no, not in, not in this range. Someone did ask this question, and it's, it's come up a bunch of times, and I think it's in my thing here. I'll have to look for it then. Uh, well, uh, his relationship with West Tech and how that exists and wh how, you know what it is. The, the only relationship I have with West Tech is I test there, right? And I've been testing there since... I, we have to be going on 25 years now. Um, <laughs> they always tell a story about me showing up um, with part of a five liter engine in the in my car <laughs> and then showing up to dyno that day and having to put the rest of the motor together and to put it up on the dyno and run it. But I don't own West Tech. I don't work at West Tech. I'll, all I do is test there. Um, well, one cool story though, I did, I did, when I lived, I used to live in Vegas and I used to drive from Vegas to West Tech, which was actually a shorter distance than I drive now because I live in Northern California and I have to drive down there. So it's a 900 mile round trip to go down there for me. So I go down there and stay for a week or whatever and dyno test as much as I can and do, and do things and do videos. But when I was in Vegas, I had a, a 1987 Chevy Sprint Turbo, one of my favorite cars because I did a bunch of stuff to it to improve the fuel mileage. We set a bunch of land speed records, oddly enough, in this one liter three-cylinder turbo motor. But I had to run a Honda B-Series. We were doing testing on that at West Tech. But I didn't have a truck or anything to take the motor that I had for my shop in Vegas to West Tech. So I took the seat out of my Sprint Turbo, took the B-Series Honda, set it down on the floor of my Sprint Turbo truck now, and just use the um, seat belt to harness everything in. So I'm driving down the 15 freeway from Vegas to West Tech with my arm resting on the Twin Cam B Series with a big turbo hanging up in the window. People are driving by, looking at me, and they're like, what the heck is this guy doing? It was pretty awesome. So that's what I guess people might be confused at. Do you work for West Tech? Uh... No, no, I don't. I live in Northern California. They're They're in Southern California. So you just like privateer engine stuff? Yeah, I just I, I'm just a customer of West Tech. I just go down there and test. Oh, but okay. I am kind of like I am kind of like family because I'm I've been there longer than anybody except the guy that owns West Tech. See, I didn't even know that. I honestly didn't know that. So I guess that's what people were asking for sure. Yeah. I'm oh. the guy that they I'm basically the guy they couldn't get rid of. <laughs> You're like. God, this guy's here again. That's they, every time. It, it, to give you an idea of my relationship there, they made me a shirt that says F and Richard. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I said it so many times, they just had ended up making a shirt. <laughs> That's what I was just saying. Oh, God, that guy's here again. That's what people say about me when I come in. Oh, no. Yeah. Today's going to be a bad day. That guy's here. Oh, yeah. So there's a good one here from my buddy Kenny. And he says, uh, a real question. Does Richard have any experience with PI and DI phasing? So injection phasing, like start of injection and end of injection points. For um, direct injection motors? Or, I would say answer both. regular injection. I would say, because uh, I've done a little bit of that since the Holly, because it makes it very easy to control uh, yeah. injection timing. 
Uh, the DI yep. stuff to me, I have almost no interest in learning direct injected stuff because it's so complex. And what I think is funny is high horsepower DI stuff has port injection yep. on it. Yeah, for a good reason. <laughs> so, and then a lot of us understand the downfall. DI makes sense, I think, because of emissions. Yeah. And it's it's not really the greatest, uh, in my opinion, also because of like EGR stack up and a bunch of yep. other things. Uh, anyway, have you done and, that? And not, and not cleaning the backside of the valve and all that. I, I've done some, we've done injector timing sweeps on LS motors and various just different kinds of motors. If you look up at my channel, there's a video where I compared um, basically carburation to fuel injection, to batch fire, to sequential, to individual cylinder to find out, you know, cause like we were talking about Matt with the, putting 802s in there just I I remember telling Brule after I did that test and then I did it carbureted and fuel injected and and with a single plane intake and a dual plane intake and I remember after doing those tests with the 802s I told Brule I said I'm never doing this again I said there's no way that this motor should even run there is a two air fuel point difference between some of these cylinders this thing should have blown up long ago and I never want to look at that again because I don't want to know that I just want it to work but we did do, when I was doing that test, we did try altering um, the the injector timing. And I didn't see a big change in power. And I almost never do that while I'm testing on the engine dyno because I'm never looking other than when I did engine masters and that was carbureted. Um, we're never looking for that last little bit of power um, because I didn't see big changes when we tried adjusting it the couple of times that I tried doing it. I'm, I'm not saying that's not there. And I'm not saying that other guys might not do it. And on other applications, it might not be beneficial, especially on direct injection, which I've only run the L83 on the engine dyno. And Eric from West Tech did all the tuning because we were doing a factory ECU on there. Um, he did figure out a way on the factory ECU to make it a speed density. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because I don't like the factory ECU taking what I call countermeasures. So you want it to go to wide open throttle and run a sweep like we do on the dyno, but it decides, hey, look, this torque limitation, you've activated that and now I'm gonna shut the throttle. So we wanted to take everything off, look at the throttle body, know that it was going to wide open throttle and not use the mass air. So he figured out a way with the factory ECU to be able to run speed density so that we could watch the throttle and know that every pass that it was opening at wide open throttle. But that's the only testing I've done on a DI motor and we didn't um, do any injector timing sweeps. So I've, I've talked to like Jeremy Formato about it and I'd have to talk to other people that I know that do DI stuff. Uh -huh. but majority of them say there is a benefit in horsepower difference between start and end of injection angle but what i'm interested in is if you have say you have a 5.3 right this would be a cool test l83 ict billet has yep. adapter plate for a 5.3 to do ls7 manifold yeah what I've i'd love those. to see is with the ls LS7 manifold, if you tuned it on DI and you had your SOI, EOI, perfect for absolutely perfect high amount of horsepower, only peak numbers, blah, blah, blah. 
turn off the DI and then tune it with an LS7 with locked injection timing. Yeah. What's the delta? Because uh, people talk about huge gains on a DI, but is that motor with port injection making very similar horsepower without the added complexity of a DI system? I think I would suspect that with port injection, because of the charge cooling, that you might see it make more power. Um, that might be a possibility. The thing that I'm worried about in that test is, are you still controlling variable cam timing when you're doing that? Uh, you so you would have to. Otherwise, you'd have to turn it off on both of them. That's Yeah, I would like to see as close to apples to apples as possible. What yeah. I have seen, uh, and I think Kenny has said this and some other people have said this before, with phasing port injection, there is some power to be made, obviously, because it's spraying right when the valve opens. I don't under, you would know more about the valve events and spray events than I would, but I have personally seen this where I have a car that has a Holly and it has completely locked, uh, phasing. And okay. then I've entered the cam information and used their calculator. People have whole write-ups on how to do this correctly. I just haven't had the time to do it. I think I should do a whole phase test on my all-motor G because I think an all-motor car is easier to see uh, than it Good is for a turbo yeah. car. Because repeatability of an all-motor car is almost identical every hit. I mean, I've had turbo cars do the same. But either way, I have seen gains uh, like 10, 30 horsepower by phasing the injector. And the way someone explained, it might have been Kenny or someone else. Uh, I think Dan, my friend Dan might have said it too you have to be under a certain amount of injector duty cycle. Because if you're high on injector duty cycle, it's spraying the whole time the valve is opening and closing. So you're losing the phasing effect. So if you yeah. have a large enough injector, you have the window where you can spray where you want. And they all say yeah. it's about half, 60% or 50% of the injector. So if you have okay. a large enough injector and you're below that, the phasing is beneficial. And I have seen that on turbo cars. I've done a bunch where we do phased and not phased, and they pick up, and it's quantifiable. They Three runs in a row with no phase, three runs in a row with phased is good, but I've seen similar where they don't, but I'm starting to understand if it's high injector duty cycle, that's yeah. where it doesn't work because they're spraying all the time and waiting for the valve to open. So that's all, that's well, what I've learned. I, I, yeah, I can understand that, and that makes sense. If you're at... Um... If you're at 100% duty cycle or whatever, and, and you're spraying as the window, I, I always liken it to a window going by. So if the window's going by and you're spraying the whole time the window went by, adjusting that's not going to do anything. But if you're spraying only part of the time that the window goes by and you can move that up or down, then I can see how that can make more power. Um, it would be interesting to test. I'd like to see that stuff. That would be cool. Oh, man, someone's making a question that triggers me so i'll ask it and we'll just laugh uh -oh. how laggy would twin gt45s be on my 48 express van and i just am the i just hate gt45s now i wish they didn't exist i've used them but there's that was the only option back then everything is way better get the gt45 um the cheap ones the ebay ones it's just the world's yeah. most awful turbo it's like that uh had sex didn't care meme where it's made boost don't care yeah so we have a, we have donation questions, and one of them, uh, Mr. Wilson, it says 4.8, uh, whatever, mild cam in the 220s, SCP-1500s, through a T-56, 
Will a Walro 525 get me to 600 wheel on 93 and 700 wheel on E85? Uh, billet 7875. Well, 1500s are overkill. Everyone buys the 1500s. Brad and I have made jokes about this. Everyone wants a 1500, even though they'll never use it. Uh, yeah. It should be fairly easy. Is it the Gen 2 Is that billet? Enough? If it's a stick shift car, it just it just throws it down because there's no loss, essentially. Uh, I would say an auto is like 30. You would know better. Have you ever done a chassis versus flywheel test continually from West Tech to a chassis? Yeah, a couple, a couple of times. I would estimate it's 30% average on an auto and 18% on a manual. Um, in in my opinion, it's not a percentage. We We see percentages going from a bones like a factory rated power output versus the number that they make on the dyno because those are fairly regimented tests so we can see what they do but it's more of a like if you think about it this way here's the example that i always use so if it's a strict percentage if we have a trophy truck motor and we have a trophy truck motor that makes 850 horsepower and then we put it on the chassis dyno and it's going through a Turbo 400 trans and a nine inch rear end and a big drive shaft and 35 inch tires. And so it makes, let's say it makes 650 at the tires. Then we, <laughs> then we take the, and so we have whatever percentage that is. Then we take a Honda D series <laughs> four cylinder and put it in that trophy truck. Are we going to get the same percentage loss in that drivetrain from the Honda motor? And you're, you won't, because what will happen is each one of those things take a certain amount of power. Then there's an increase in percentage based on the increase in power from the motor. So a nine inch takes a certain amount of power. The trans takes a certain amount of power. The converter, the big tires and wheels, especially, because we know that when we go from a big giant tire down to a smaller one, we, we have a change in moment of inertia. We have a change in the amount of power that it makes. So I don't think it's a strict percentage. What we normally saw when we did stuff, and also the way that we test it on the dyno, like we don't test it the way the factory does. When the factory rates a motor, they have, it's the way that it came in the car. It's not rated at the wheels, it's rated at the flywheel, but they run that motor in a dyno cell with everything on it. So all of the accessories, they all have load. It has the air conditioning. It's run at a given temperature. It's run with a factory tune. It has the complete exhaust, the cats all the way out the back. Everything on it is the way that it runs, and that's what it's rated at. When we run one on the dyno, it has none of that stuff on there. So the difference between the way that we run it and what you might see on the chassis dyno is different than what you see as a percentage from the way the factory rates it and the way that you would run it on a chassis dyno. Plus, like I said, there's different there's different percentages for automatics and manuals and also different kinds of automatics and different kinds of manuals and different kinds of rear ends. If you run it through an 8.8, it's going to be different than a 9-inch. The tires and wheels, all of that stuff make a big difference. So I always tell people it's not usually a strict percentage. It's almost always like a power number, um, but you can estimate it. And, you know, if somebody says it's 20% or 30%, the problem that people have is, 
and, and engine builders will do this. <laughs> they'll build an engine for a guy and he'll put it in his car and they'll take it to the dyno and it'll make 350 horsepower at the tire. And the, and the guy will go, yeah, there's like, there's like a 30 or five or 40% loss from the chassis dyno. And the guy that did it says, oh, okay, well then that makes, means it's making this amount of power, but it's not really that much. It's the guy trying to lie and say that the motor makes more power. So that's my soapbox on the uh, percentage of chassis dyno and engine dyno stuff. Well, I, I guess we'll we'll circle back. It, it'll make 600 wheel on 93, I believe so easily. And he's asking for only 700 on E85 reliably. And even if it's a Gen 1 billet, you could probably make 600 on pump and easily 800 on E. Uh, my only issue is I haven't done a lot of Walboro 525. So yeah. you just data log your fuel pressure and your VE. If you have runaway VE and fuel pressure up top, it's not going to hang on that. And it depends on your ECU and a bunch of other things. But uh, a bunch of other people made good comments here, which should be said on this, that they did injector phasing. And they're like, if you have a car that smells at idle really bad, like burns your eyes, phasing will get rid of it. If it's phased correctly, it'll get rid of it. And uh, part throttle drivability and tip-in and throttle response will improve because there's no puddling at that point. It sprays yeah. when the if your if your events are correct. Let's caveat. It's way better on all fronts because there's no there's no fuel sitting on the valve and drizzling in. Uh, and as we know, like most of the time, wide open that doesn't matter because everything's especially turbo carts all flying around. It's getting blown yeah. around by a leaf blower turbo, but uh, and at that part at the part throttle, we have lots of window and not very much spray, so we have a lot of room to move that around and adjust it. So it should make more of a difference under those kind of conditions. And that's what we see too: is smell and drivability are much increased, and sometimes it's like a free twenty horsepower. So if it works correctly, there's no reason not to, but uh. So there's another pay question that says I'm building an 81 AMC Eagle with an LS 80E and an NP241 transfer case. Ice cream and burnouts. Has Richard ever done anything with GM Ecotech four cylinders? Oh, well, that's funny that he just said he was doing that. But there's someone else that asked about Ecotechs actually, and they wanted to know everything you have done or made with Ecotechs. I, I haven't run any Ecotex on the engine dyno. The guys from, um, oh, they're an LS company down in San Diego. They've run a couple of them on the engine dyno. And then we have a guy that comes into West Tech that has a Fiero with an Ecotech in it that he road races and he does very well with that. And I've been over there when they're running that a couple of times, but I have almost zero Ecotech, um, experience. Uh, funny enough is like a day or two ago and I might have, I shared the results. I don't know if you saw it. I'm not going to, you did see it. I'm not going to expect that you see the thousands of garbage that I post, but, uh, I did, uh, the guy that actually bought our old house built a lemons car. It's a Omni and they put a two, four Ecotech in it with a stock ECU. And I did tune that the other day. And I was surprised it made more than I guessed it would make. Uh, I thought it was a 2-2, but it was actually a 2-4. So uh, I'll game that response. Big block. Yeah, big block. But uh, I estimated 140 or 140 front wheel at least, and it made 171 to the tire. 
Uh, I was surprised with that. It was completely stock, essentially stock airbox because the mass air meter is in the box. Yeah. And it had like a side pipe. But really, what is that doing at that point? Stock exhaust manifold. So, but yeah, okay. I was, that's, that's my limitation of what I've done. Uh, my buddy Brett DeLong had a turbo Ecotech for a long time that was tuned on a stock ECU, which is like an Atari. Uh, and then what they did, they, the, the things they did for fueling wide open were just outrageous on that ECU because it had no fueling based off of pressure. So I think he had an FMU on it and then they just fixed bottom nice, end, old school. which is what a lot of people did back in the day. And I, That's what I had on my Mustang. There was nothing else to do and that worked. So get it wide yeah. open and try to trim the meter down low and what the hell else can you do? But I would have loved to seen. Now that's a practical application, in my opinion, for like a micro squirt, controlling sure. the fuel and spark, and leaving the stock computer do everything, and wiring it in for three hundred bucks, and just putting on a wide band and getting it going, because your options are limited, and if you rip out the computer, blah 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 blah, and something like that, that's perfect. It's perfect for a micro squirt, and I would love to see the amount of average or mid-range gains and top-end gains we could have gotten with a micro-squirt added to a completely stock ECU setup because you could even build a DT connector that swaps all that over and you could mess oh, with yeah. it. And if it starts being a pain in the ass and you're mad, swap it back over. Yeah, there, there's almost no loss in playing with that system unless you burn a piston. But... uh we're we're going to be running uh, one of the micro squirts. It's either a micro squirt or mega squirt on the 4200. Um, Mark did a harness for us and got all that stuff together. So that will be kind of cool. I'll, I'll, you know, I want to obviously keep Calvin in the loop and and because um, I I think what he's doing with those cars is awesome. Yeah, he's done uh, gold box micro squirt and I think some stock ECU conglomerate. So someone said something funny, Matt. I remember when you ran a seven oh six head and one eight sixty two. That I did run two different cylinder heads, but it wasn't a seven oh six and an eight sixty two. They're they're the same cylinder head. A lot of people might not yeah. realize. What I had was a completely stock eight sixty two and a ported uh two forty three two forty one out of an LS one. My friend yeah. bent valves on a stock LS one car with ported two forty ones and. I had torched the cylinder head, acetylene torched the cylinder head out of my one Fairmont, almost wrecked the block, and the cylinder head was just blown out. And I had his cylinder heads laying around with bent valves, and I built a conglomerate of not bent valves into the 243 and threw it on that night and took the car back out. So there was a different chamber size, and there was a different amount of uh, porting and no porting, on an LS1 intake, and I made 711 rear wheel with that car on a Mustang dyno. But yeah, it wasn't even just 862 and 706. They were wildly different heads with one had porting and one was filled with EGR garbage. But sure. uh, yeah, funny. But actually, I told my buddy Frank when I was up there at the dyno, I was like, hey, I melted the cylinder head last night, so I put a 241 on. And he's like, oh, you put 241s on? I'm like, no, singular. I put one 241 <laughs> yeah. on. And it's ported, yeah. and it's just a mix of valves from one cylinder head to the other that aren't bent. And he just stared at me for a while, and he's like, what? <laughs> and oh, yeah. then I, I dynoed it, uh, air fuel conservative, and made 7-Eleven through an auto. And he was like... It works. It's a head. It's, it's a cylinder head. People don't realize. Um, 
So I got, I got a quick story about something like that. When I, I was running my Mustang in the Silver State, we ended up hurting it. And I hurt one piston in it, so we took it apart. And I had a Weissco, you know, because back then you had a supercharged motor, so you had to run an eight and a half to one piston in it. So that's what we had. And I couldn't afford to go buy another one, but I knew that Kip at Turbo had Weissco pistons for his, and he had a couple of spare ones. So I went and got one from him. Um, unfortunately, mine were 30 over, and his was a 40 over. And also, they were different dish sizes. The guy at Pacific Performance, Rick, shout out to Rick, thank you for doing this, <laughs> took a ball hone and ball honed another 10 thousandths out of it to fit that other piston that was different, hung it on the rod, and put that back together, and I went and ran that, a, 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 I don't know for how, it was never balanced, it was a different piston, it was a different weight, it was a different compression, it was a different bore size in that one hole, but it, the piston goes up and down and does the stuff that it's supposed to do, and it worked just fine. And it worked fine for a really long time. I think I probably had, I think we had eighty-five thousand miles on that motor, and we probably did that at about thirty-five or forty, maybe something like that, with the Vortec blower on it. And when when we ran, when I ran the Vortec on it, like I I ran when I ran the Silver State the first time, we had a, a Pro M meter. 24 pound injectors, a big Bosch pump in addition to the in the tank pump, and then we had an FMU. And so I had a fuel pressure gauge in the Mustang, and I ran flat out for 42, 42 minutes, I think, something like that, um, except lifting at one spot on the narrows. And the fuel pressure gauge was pegged at 100 psi, and everyone says you can't run it at 100 psi because the you know the injectors will break and all that stuff. But we did it for 35 minutes straight. And the guys from Kenny Bell had hooked up a data logging to this, and they said something's wrong with the data logging. There's, this is showing that you were at, you know, the TPS was at wide open throttle for like 34 minutes and 43 seconds. I said, yeah. I said, that's, that's what the silver state is. I said, when, as soon as we get up in the gear, we're flat and we're like that for until we hit the narrows and we lift off a little bit and then we go wide open throttle again. So the things that people tell you that you can't do, which is what your channel is all about, you obviously can. Someone has a good question. It says, uh, can you talk about your 3800 performance business you used to own? Yeah, it was called Ram Air Technology, and we specialized in the 3800 Series 2, basically, supercharged V6s in the Regals and the um, the Pontiac Grand Prix. We also did some stuff. We dabbled in the like the the 30 3.4 liter twin dual cam stuff the previous generation and then we did some stuff like i built a turbo kit for the 3400 grand am too we just merged the exhaust manifolds and had a turbo sticking out of the hood and did some of that stuff but we did a lot of things back then we had you know we did porting on the blower and big throttle bodies and pulleys and all sorts of normal things um and that was that was a lot of fun then uh we'll do a We'll break it up with a non-serious one. This is funny. Scott M. says, I'd like to know how much Italian Richard has in his blood. His hands say 100%. <laughs> What's that? I do gesticulate. Yes. A scoozy. A scoozy. Yes. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. I have never done a... Um, Ancestry.com. Yeah. I, I know. We know that there's Norwegian, but it, there has to be some Italian, right? Do you still do Ninja Warrior? 
I, I was wondering when that was going to come up. Um, no, I, I do not. I mean, I still try to work out. I've started working out again. This COVID thing has been, I'm sure, bad on everybody. It has been bad on me. So I've started doing that again. And I tend to hibernate during the winter. I don't like the cold weather. But when the sun comes out, then it reinvigorates me. But I did Ninja Warrior for a couple of years. And um, that all started from me. I used to watch the stuff way back before it came on TV, back when it was in Japan, the Sasuke stuff. And then we were watching it one time on TV. I was watching it with my boys because they love it. And we, um, the, they just said, hey, why don't you do this? And I'm like, you know what? That's a that's a good question. I, I need to work out. And because when I first started working out, I don't think I could string three, three pull-ups. And then by the time I got done working out, um, I set the record in our gym. I did 40 pull-ups in 45 seconds. And I used to do weighted pull-ups like you'd string the, you know, the, um, the weights on you and chain them and stuff. So I did, we did lots of crazy stuff. I built a salmon ladder in my backyard and a, and a whole rig so that I could do nine foot laches and, a, a slack line and all kinds of cool stuff. It was a lot of fun, but it was really amazing to see what those, the young guys could do. Um, I waited in line. My first time was in De in Denver and I waited in line for four days or yeah, four days. It snowed. So, it was, you know, we were like homeless people waiting in line for the walk on line. And then in Venice, I waited in line for eight days. Um, and that was cool because the guys actually came out and we're going to do a, a profile on me. <laughs> and here's where I got burned. Um, they were going to do a competitor profile. You know, you see that where they highlight one of the guys. And so I, I had a big party at my house for everybody because they came out and they did a big filming thing because I was catching snakes and rattlesnakes and all kinds of stuff. And they did a big deal. And then I had a big party at my house and then they never used me. <laughs> So I was on the cutting room floor and I had everybody watching, waiting to see how famous I was. And it just didn't work out. But I do love it and it's very cool. But I haven't um, competed in, in quite a while. But the one thing I have to say, one thing about this is that I didn't ever get to get on TV. But my son did. Um, my, my youngest son, Owen, we have a photo of him doing a Ninja Warrior thing on the couch. And in the background... Ninja Warrior was on and Brian Arnold was on doing one of his runs. So my wife posted that photo of him doing that. And then Brian Arnold contacted us and said, Hey, I, I really want to use that photo, um, in my, in one of my, um, in one of my videos. And we said, yeah. So basically when Ninja Warrior comes around, my son's way more famous than I am. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a good question. I didn't know if they were joking or if that was a serious question either no it was a it was a lot of fun those guys were did amazing stuff here's a good one what's the quickest car you have owned for yourself um i never did a lot of drag racing so probably the i'm thinking it had to be one of the supercharged mustangs um, that was like a, it, it would go, it was set up for road racing. So what we would do is I ran in the Long Beach Grand Prix. We, I was racing the Bridgestone supercar series and we were a support for like the Indy cars and all those guys that were there. So I actually got to be in driver's meetings with Mario Andretti. And, and the coolest thing though was Paul Newman, cause he was, he was actually in the race racing against me for a Lotus, but that car with a supercharged five liter deal, modified one. 
we took it to Terminal Island before we took it to Long Beach for the race just to make sure that the motor was running good. And I think that that thing went 129 or 130 in the quarter, um, just spinning the tires the whole way. I think it went 1220s or something, but at 130. So it was making fairly decent power, but not. I, I've driven lots of nine and 10 second cars, but none of them were mine. So I was muting my keyboard again while I smash out 300 words a minute on my clicky boy. Nice. So someone, uh, Kenny, uh, talking about PI and DI phasing, has said, uh, with newer coyotes that have PI and DI together, I've played with it a lot, and it always makes a little more. So similar to what I was saying, it's yeah. worth something. Uh, it's not sure. wild, but then like I, like I said to you, it would be cool to, can you, Kenny, can you completely change? Can you turn off DI and just do port on those cars? That would be a great scenario. It has both, right? Like some of the Subarus have PI and DI. It'd be cool yeah. to completely disable one of them if the system doesn't completely freak out at that point. If it doesn't nanny you into not being able to do apples and apples. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, the LT5 has that as well. <laughs> so there's two things about this. We'll jump to this question just for fun, and then we'll go back to a serious one. Uh, this guy named Small Tire Mafia says, how tall are you both? And then Chris calls him out and says, Small Tire Mafia, that's exactly what someone with a name like that would ask. <laughs> wow. They're, bat they're battling it out huh, in the comments. Yeah, Chris, uh, you know, is more opinionated than I am sometimes. You can completely, oh, you said, this guy says you can completely change the percentage of what it's doing at what load on dual injected coyotes. So that's a good question. Could you zero out PI and then 100% DI and could you do back and forth? That's Kenny, you should do that. Well, oh, so, I'm sorry. Kenny, you should do that on your motor. <laughs> Small, uh, small tire mafia says, ouch. So I would say I'm 5'10, maybe 5'11 with shoes on. I'm, um, I'm six foot with heels. Jeez. But, but the heels have to be really tall. <laughs> no, I'm, I think I'm only about 5'7. I uh, I mean, they asked about pizza, so I feel like we could answer that hey, seriously. So this is, these are good ones. These are two that I put together because I feel like they coincide. It says, is intercooled methanol worth the weight penalty? I'm assuming non-intercooled versus intercooled because I would say almost 100% of people do. They ditch the intercooler once they have methanol. And yep. then someone else asked a similar question. Have you done pre-turbo methanol injection and how does it perform? I've seen changes of your compressor map when I had a turbo Honda. I pressurized washer fluid reservoir off the turbo, which my Fox Body guy, I didn't know about this. My friend who did a lot of old school Fox Body stuff said the same, and I didn't realize it was a thing. But then after hearing it, I realized it's a good answer. So they pressurized the washer fluid bottle. So when boost yeah. would come in, it would spray out one to one. Yeah. Uh, instead of running a pump and everything. And I'm like, man, that really got me thinking about making a, uh, a closed system with no pumps or anything. Like, how simple is that? So you have a big nozzle, and when boost comes in, it pushes it out. 
Yeah, as long as the as long as the container can take obviously the pressure that, it's, that you're applying to it. I've seen guys crack some of those plastic ones trying to do that, but it works pretty well. People people are saying pics of heels. My buddy Chris says, "Can we have pictures of your heels?" And uh, but yeah, go um, go. Have you done a bunch of methanol stuff, like a hundred percent methanol, and is an intercooler worth it? Blah 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 blah. I actually don't have a lot of methanol experience. I've run, I've been there and been doing the dyno when uh, Mahovitz has been there and run some methanol stuff. One one thing I can say about that is that intercooling definitely helps, regardless of what 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 it is. It, it help, helps on a methanol combination, on an E85 combination, on a blow through carbureted combination. It always adds power. But most of the guys that I talk to that are drag racers get rid of the intercooler not because they know that it doesn't work. Um, or because it gets rid of the safety factor, which I think it does, because those guys that are running methanol are running really, really high boosts. So they're running charge temperatures that might be 400 degrees coming out of the, the turbo. But the methanol works so well in cooling the eventual charge temperature in the chamber, and they know that they would add power with the um, intercooler, but most guys at that level would be running a big intercooler, a big ice tank, a, the pumps and everything that's necessary to do that. And they just think that it's kind of a wash in the trade-off between the weight and the power gain. Um, I've never, be hard for me to correlate that on the dyno. I mean, I could tell you how much power that's worth, but I don't know, you know, at what level is that ET change and weight and mile an hour and stuff? What, what, what does that equate to on a, like if we change the weight by, a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds on a 13 second car is going to be different than a hundred pounds on a six second car um, and different power levels and stuff. So I, 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 if you have an answer to that, Matt, maybe you have a different answer than that. I'm getting outclassed there with that question, but I believe uh, Jace Nestor or Frank Solderidge would know the answer to that. And my assumption would be that most of those guys running really fast have no intercooler at all and they yep. would know better at that point whether an intercooler is worth it or not so we'll just make the assumption that it's not worth it at all yeah and i think that you can in some some places may some sanctioning bodies may even not let you do this but if you take and move like they were talking about if you move all of or a portion of the methanol injection, like where you're injecting it, the farther away you get it from the valve, the more charge cooling you'll have. So if you use that like one injector or something like that in the charge pipe going into the intake manifold, they're all going to have some sort of fancy Hogan-esque sheet metal kind of billet manifold or Wilson or something. And so if they're blowing into that and you have the introduce the fuel in the discharge tube between the turbo and that, then you can get lots of charge cooling and the intercooler obviously becomes less important. Some places won't let you do that. Um, you're worried about maybe a fire. And the question about introducing it before the turbo, um, I would worry about the amount of methanol that they're injecting into the turbo and also the longevity of the um, impeller and stuff because they don't like to have uh, water or fuel being injected into them. <laughs> the blades don't like that. They run at really, really high speeds. I know guys do it, but um, I don't think the turbo lasts as long. That's my opinion. Matt's all muted. Yep. 
I was just slamming my keyboard. I wanted to make sure. People are like, it's not that intrusive, but I think it's, if you're talking, I don't want people to hear me clicking away. I feel like it's a li little bit disrespectful, even though it might not be. I don't want to be overshadowing your audio with my clickety clackety. Uh, Nobody's listening to me. <laughs> I'd like to hear more about the, when he raced world challenge cars, how they did, how tough it was, campaigning, and etc. If he wants to throw in a recommended cam for a mild-built endurance race LS6, I'm all ears. <laughs> well, we, we wouldn't have raced LS6s in World Challenge because we were running, unfortunately, Mustangs, <clears throat> which that goes all the way back to me buying my car to run showroom stock. I have an 88 5-liter LX, which I still have, original owner, bought it in 87. <clears throat> But, and then after doing that for about a year, I thought that I knew everything it was time to go World Challenge Racing. And I went with the guys from Bear Racing. So Boris Ed was the other driver who is, who is like nothing but fantastic, was awesome. Uh, and, and one heck of a driver too. And the guys from Bear Racing are awesome. And we did, uh, road racing all around the country. We got to run lots of cool racetracks, um, Elkhart Lake and Road Atlanta and Dallas and, um, Lime Rock, and it was just, it was a, it was a really great time. We were outclassed, at least I was, because the, the car that we were in was not nearly as fast as some of the other cars. And I, as a driver, was, you know, as you might imagine, not nearly as fast as some of the other drivers. Um, but the Mustang was, and here's a quick cool story. This is how cool, like, car guys are. And I'm sure that a lot of guys out there will fit that bill. But we were up at Mostport, Canada running a race and we blew the motor up. And in fact, we had, I think that was the race where we had most of the motors out. One of them out of all of the cars had all our motors out. One of the tow rigs had the, had the motor out. So, and it was raining. It was a, a big, it was a lot of fun, but we, the, my motor was out. It was broke. One of the guys from the stands who was a customer of bear racing said, I have a motor at my house uh, in my car. If we go get it, I'll loan it to you for the race and then we can take it back out. I'm like, dude, I'm all with you. So I went with him, took off with some guy I never met off into the Canadian countryside. They pulled the, they stayed there, pulled the motor out. I went to him. We pulled that motor out, brought it back, put it in the car, got it running like two minutes. I had to start in the, in the paddock basically while the car started. And I think that that might have been my best finish. I think I finished like, I want to say fourth or fifth or something, not because I was a great driver, but it was a, it was a street course with real big walls and stuff and attrition just kind of took a soul. So I just went out and kind of like cycled around. This wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the super powerful motor. It was a street 302 and I was in a Mustang and I just went out and cycled around. I'm like, dude, this is going well. This is going well. This is going well. And I ended up, that was a great race, but it's an even better story. And that's the thing that I want to say about racing. And then, and then Matt can answer some questions. Um, is that whenever I get together with people and talk about racing, I never talk about championships that I won or races that we want to win. It's never about that. It's always about the weird stuff that happened while we were going to or from races and when cars tried to fall on us and when we caught stuff on fire and when we crashed and fixed the car with duct tape and when people felt sorry for us because we had so little money that they came over and other teams actually came and gave us food. So I have lots and lots of stories about that stuff. That's funny. Uh, my buddy Chris, this is a good question. I want to ask this since he asked it. 
and he goes, we go, we go back and forth about this every now and then. And he goes, Richard just mentioned car guys. And does he feel like a car guy is the same as an enthusiast? Because he makes, I'll uh, preface, he makes the argument that an enthusiast is kind of like the asshole and the person that doesn't understand the background and the person that, uh, is entitled so when something doesn't go their way they get mad they write bad things on the internet they're not understanding that they're the jerk and yeah. uh an action a car guy is more or less like knows what you're going through knows whatever knows you and ask like funny thing exchanges a story instead of being like can you tune my ctsv and can you not rip my seat and can you not like it's kind of like a jerk right they're a jerk more than they're understanding or having an understanding of car things and i think i uh, led you on that one enough well i i think that that's a i think what he's kind of describing is that there's a hierarchy of car people so there are people that you know are new and there are people that are maybe not as nice as they should be and don't understand as much as they do and have an imbalance i say between their attitude and their ability but i think what he's describing is not just car people he's just describing people if we got a bunch of football players in a group there's going to be jack wangs and there's going to be nice people tennis players or golf players or republicans or democrats or whatever any group of people they're human beings so there's going to be some of them that are not people that I would want to associate with. And there's going to be lots of them that I would want to associate with. And the one thing I have to say about his comment is that the other thing to be uh, maybe a little bit more gentle with is that there are people out there that don't know what some of us know. We all went down different paths. So we all learned different things. Like I don't know lots of stuff that Matt knows. But if the two of us were standing out on a road, I could point to anybody on the road and that guy's going to know something that neither one of us know. Not, and that's not a matter of being smarter or dumber. It's just that he went down a different path. Maybe he studied marine biology or molecular, molecular physics or something. It's something that we don't know that we didn't ever go down. So the thing I want guys to do is <laughs> try to remain calm <laughs> and try to help the guys that are new coming into this industry so that we can get more people. I mean, the reality is that the, the car industry is very, very tiny relative to the number of people that have cars or to the people in the world. We're, we're a very, very tiny minority. And the, the EPA is trying to get rid of all of those people. So, uh, you know, we want people to keep coming in and making the making this industry better and sharing information like Matt does, like I tried to. Um, there needs to be a new group of Richards and Matts and everybody else that continue this, before, you know, when we're not doing it anymore. So and the only way to do that is to, you know, be open to these people, even if you're trying to steer them the right way. And I think about this because when <laughs> I told Matt about this earlier, when I was in my 20s, I knew everything. I was the smartest guy in the world and knew more than everybody and also had no problem telling everybody that all the time just walking up to strangers and saying that um and you know we we get better as i think as we get older and get more experience and learn more we learn that we don't know very much and so those guys that are new you got to help them along that path and get them to that point so i'm, I'm not i'm going to take my soapbox and i'm going to set it over in the corner of the room and i'm not i'm not going up on my soapbox anymore <laughs> 
No, I 100% agree. And uh, what people might not know is uh, I believe I'm 100% at fault for that at times, too. And I think the older I get, the more I see that. And I think part of me is a coin toss of what kind of mat you're going to get for the day. And uh, I will give myself a shallow excuse that I deal with so many people that are being a, a troll or completely fact-free that oh, uh, yeah. my response, sometimes someone's trolling and I give them like a two-paragraph thing and they're like, just joking, bro. So the next person asks me something that sounds dumb, I kind of unload on that. It's not fair either way. And I also think that getting, I think part of what I do is making car stuff accessible. So there yeah. are people, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I have grown a lot in that aspect and I have much more growing to do. But it's tough running a, like, a, again, another excuse, but such a large community of uh, trolls at some times to gauge that. But there's plenty of times where someone asks a simple question and I let it in and I give them a valid answer. And uh, again, like I want to, obviously with what I do, I want to help people and get them more involved. Uh, the more, I always say to people like, if I can help someone get into this and they take off and they take everything I've said and run away with it, and then they can teach me something in two years, that's fantastic because I don't know everything and you know, you don't know everything. And it's all about enabling those people. And then there's other people that just make it worse. Uh, so like I said, once a month, someone will write an email or a long post about how they had a carbureted big block and they were scared of fuel injection. And what I showed them and what they did is, you know, now they have something starts, runs, drives in the middle of winter. It makes nine second passes. It has no problems. Even if it did, it has a $200 engine. Uh, that's, I always make posts and I say, that's what keeps me going. That's the reward. Yeah. Uh, even if it's one out of a thousand people that just try to throw me under the bus, it's still worth it to, for that guy to write something positive. So, yeah, again, I can totally 100, I don't know if it's, it's my chemistry or what it is or that I met so much resistance getting into cars because of my abstract way of approaching cars and people. And again, it's probably personality traits. And I, I think part of what I do is off-putting, but I go straight for facts and things right away. But again, part, part of it is that, and part of it is maybe some kind of off-put cocky thing where I want to be better than somebody, or at least know more, or teach them something. But it's, sure. it's rewarding. Uh, every now and then I call somebody out, and like I just did with Doug at Motion Raceworks, I said a bunch of, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's the way I make friends or what, but I said a bunch of inflammatory stuff about him. And then luckily someone tagged him and Motion Raceworks and everything. And he reached out to me first and said a bunch of nice stuff. And I'm like, God damn it, you're being nice, you know. Because <laughs> yep. I've run into plenty of people. It's 50%. It's 50% if I'm going to be a jerk and it's 50% if they're going to be a jerk. So I appreciate the when they reach out and they're not a jerk. I think I do that too as long as it doesn't sound like they're being a child, even if I'm being a child. Yeah. But back in the day, I'm like yellow bullet. Uh, when people posted oh. videos of us impacting stuff on, and then yeah. everyone's like, "Yellow Bullet's gonna tear you to shreds." Eight pages later, they were all my friend, and they understood yeah. what I was about. I was like, "This is out of context. This is just what we do. We're not experts. This is fun. 
And they're like, yeah. oh, okay, all this stuff's cool, you know? Yeah. They, they get it. But, uh, similarly, like, uh, I've had a bunch of, like, small feuds with people and it has gotten better or worse. And part of that's my maturity and their maturity. So it was nice to see, uh, Doug was super mature about it and I apologized to him and everything. Uh, and I posted that I did. And, you know, at the end, he even goes, let me know how I can help you out. And I'm like, you're a jerk. You're a real jerk for being so nice. And I, I did similar things like, um, I met Cletus a few times and I was such a jerk and he was so nice to me. Uh, part of it's like, I don't know if it's I want to be somebody or I secretly respect them and I just stuff comes out of my mouth that I think I'm joking and it's actually offensive. There's obviously something going on up here yeah. that it doesn't, uh, and then, uh, some people find it endearing. Other people hate it. Whatever. I'm definitely not normal in that aspect, but some people appreciate it because I will ask or say things before I think about it. Yeah. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not good. And I could admit that. But uh there's plenty of times where I've given I have to respect that I've given them so much trash and they're still OK with me. I'm like, uh, I appreciate your ability to absorb what a jerk I am. <laughs> Well, you have to. I mean, if if they can do it, maybe eventually you can do it, right? Yeah. So. Uh, I I met I met Garrett. I met him at one of the LS Fest, and he was he was. I was surprised that he knew who I was. I obviously been in the industry a little while, so but I was surprised that he knew, and he was he was the nicest guy. I thought I thought he was really cool. Um, my other question to you is: I have two questions. One, if there's anybody out there, um, I, I wanted to ask you the question first about the. Dodge Omni with the Ecotech in it, because I want to do a Dodge Omni with a K series Honda in it. And I want, I want to know if anybody out there has any idea whether that will fit and then what trans and axles and things that I would use with that. Cause I would love to have that combination. I love the old Omnis, but I would like to have it with a K series. I also want to do an Omni and do all of the stock stuff. And I plan on doing that as well. Um, but my question, so if anybody out there has any of that information, please chime in or send me an email or whatever. But my question to you is you've been doing this a long time and you're becoming, you know, as you, as this goes more and more, you're becoming more and more successful. And I want to know if you think that you're becoming more and more of a target, especially because of what you do. So if you started Slavia Mechanics and it was the way to do everything cheap and then you become more and more successful and then you don't have to do everything on the cheap how <laughs> how much of a problem is that for people that were following you and how much of it is people that just don't like seeing other people become successful because they haven't so let me know yeah and i see that happening uh more so now than lately because when I started this Mustang project I had like 40 people that want to help and I made jokes about it in the last couple of videos where I say the longer I take to build this the more I get for free and if I just take 10 years I'm going to have a quarter million dollar pro mod at some point and uh, it, I like seeing I made points about this uh, even from the beginning where I like seeing what people can do with money and I like seeing what people can't do with money but what I don't like is people with money saying people aren't allowed to have stuff that is cheap and fun. 
And then I don't like seeing uh, people join Sloppy thinking that it's like uh, an award ceremony for people to do things awfully or unsafe. Yeah. I don't like that. So there's a lot of that going on. There are certainly, there's a giant joke that I'm going to rename it to Fancy Mechanics. But at the same yeah. time, uh, I enjoy, obviously, the heart of what I do is economics. But at the same time, if someone's going to hand you stuff, uh, for money to test, why would I say no? I've garnered enough attention where these people, and frequently I have people on the show or like, uh, even Brian Tooley is like, I have unlimited resource nearly and unlimited knowledge, but I've lost sight of economics and pe what people actually want to buy or can afford to buy. So yeah. he's like NASA and I'm like, you know, not NASA. I'm the Russian space, uh, <laughs> whatever association. Yeah. So yeah. what they are, what they're learning for me, which is ironic is bringing it back, reeling it back in. Because when I, when I started getting into cars, like all Chrome pieces and garbage was the thing and no one knew what they were talking about. And I think now it's gotten better. And, uh, Maybe it's just because people are learning more about what actually works, or maybe it's part of me calling everybody out. Uh, that's yeah. healthy or unhealthy, right, is where I stand there. Uh, what's nice about what I like about what I do is I live on an island, and I don't have a business, and I don't care about uh, credibility or if people call me a jerk. Uh, I'll call everybody out and how they respond or how they can combat that or show evidence of says a lot about them. Uh, and also I'm kind of free from it. So there's yeah. plenty of times where a shop owner sees something wrong, but he can't say anything about it because he might, he might face so much backlash and internet negative reviews that it closes his business. So then there's someone like me that I can say all I want and people can take it seriously or not. And it doesn't really matter. So, yeah. but then at the same point, I can't say that because I have, this swarm of angry bees that I can stir up and I have to be conscious of that also. Luckily, there's plenty of people in that are like, you are a jerk. And I like, I appreciate that because I did the, I said that I was all wound up about motion race works and I just typed something like I wasn't thinking. I just, I do that all the time. And, yeah. uh, everyone's like, dude, Doug is the nicest guy in the world. You're being an asshole. And I'm like, I appreciate all this guys. And then out of nowhere, he reaches out, blah, blah, blah. And he's super nice and same thing. Like Jeremy Formato from Faster Proms, super nice to me in person. And I was like, I had six jokes loaded up that were mean. And uh, I, I'm walking around kind of pacing. He's saying hi to people, being super nice. And I'm like thinking about what I'm going to say. And Cameron Powers and I were there. And I'm like 50 feet away waiting for my chance to move in and say jerk things to him. And he sees me and he goes, oh, man, sloppy, blah, blah, blah. And he like, he invites me over and I shake hands with him. I really like what you do. I watch all your videos. The thing about blah, like he actually watched them because he mentioned things. And I'm like, yeah. damn it, Jeremy. Like, why do you got to be he's so a, nice? Shut up, Jeremy. I'm going to say angry things about you now. And I was totally like, what do I say to this guy? Because he was so damn nice. And, uh, yeah, that stuff happens, but, uh, I think, you know, similarly. Did you, uh, ask, him, did you ask him if he had Spintron data? No, I didn't get to ask him that. I don't think he has one, but, uh, but what no, a Jeremy, super nice guy. I met, I, met, I met Jeremy. Yeah. And actually, uh, 
I have his cell phone number now, and I helped him a lot with his. Uh, he this is like the first Holly car he's ever had. Is that Crown Vic? Yeah, and I helped him out a bunch. And similarly, he's mentioned me in like the last four videos that uh, I've helped him, and I'm like, why you gotta be so nice, Jeremy? Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, don't get rid of all the things that you're going to say because you might use them later on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where are we? I'm going to look over the comments quick because I didn't look at it. Fancy mechanics. Blah, 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 blah. I miss the... See, then people say they miss certain stuff uh, about fanciness, but what I like where I'm at now is... Uh, I really only had access to budget things. I don't have a, a ton of money to build cars. So what's cool now is people are throwing high-end stuff at me, and what we're learning is what's worthwhile. And I've said it before yeah. on other radio shows where uh, what's – I always hate to admit it, but I have influence on these companies where they are reeling back and they are making more worthwhile products and then, like I said, the other thing that I do is people are like, you buy shitty China things. And I'm like, well, what we've learned is Americans can make a better product for cheaper if they just learn what people want and how to, like, there's plenty of that going on too. And and the other whole aspect of it, I've been able to bring up a bunch of businesses that are American-owned that people do support now because no one knew about them. And it's all because of posts or people... Uh, saying things or being in sloppy or, or you know, I'm a jerk and then yeah. they're not a jerk and then they send me their product and I'm like, you guys are real assholes for giving me stuff for free after I... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think, you know... Now I feel bad. Yeah, exactly. And then I use it and I'm like, well, now I understand it and it is fantastic for the money. So, uh, yeah. you know, we all learn and I can... You know, some people might be like, you're backpedaling or you're getting paid off. And no, obviously, like you said, the older you get, the more you learn. And then like uh, my wife has said it a bunch of times, like, I wish Matt wouldn't be such a jerk to people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can't say much about that other than maybe one day I'll grow out of it or maybe I won't. Oh, yeah, like I people get, are. Um, oh, I go. I was going to say, I get that all the time where people say, oh, yeah, you're testing all this stuff and, and you have to say nice things about advertisers because they give you products or they're paying you or whatever. Well, first of all, nobody pays me anything. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sleeping on the floor at West Tech. But if I test something for somebody, they send it to me because they know I'm going to do an honest job. And the other thing is, if I test 10 of those things, which one of those guys paid me? <laughs> so this conspiracy theory thing is it's really, really funny. I mean, I love a good conspiracy theory myself, but and I told you earlier in the in the chat here that um, there are several times where I've been guys have tried to have me fired because of the things that I said in the stories that I did when I tested their product, when I compared it against something else. I said, this one does this and this one does this. Or they're like, you need to fire Richard because I'm an advertiser. And he said this about it. And I'm like, look, here is all of the data. You show me where one thing that I said isn't accurate and the, or, or let's redo the test. Let's go right now. I'll, we'll redo the test. And I mean, I had people like trying to jump over the table and strangle me. It was, um, it's really good stuff. So people, uh, one of the people that asked the paid question was, 
I bought, well, they said, uh, I bought a Terminator X Max because of you. Other people have said, Matt, you're our honest jerk. And then, uh, 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 what is another one says, bravo for switching to fancy wiring. That's one thing I'd love to bring up. See, that's something I learned is I would do messy wiring, but I was like, whatever, it, it works. It's messy, but it works. And what I've learned over the years, Holly has supplied me with a, I showed him in the last episode with all the wiring, uh, Troy and Devin. Uh, those specific yep. crimpers and de-pinning tools, what I learned is that's faster and easier to de-pin a connector than it is to cut it and put butt connectors on it and try to... And yep. the big thing is what I learned is when I did that wrong, I kept making it shorter and crappier. And now I'm like, I'll <laughs> yep. just, I'll move the pins. And if that didn't work, I'll move the pins again. And I have the stock yep. connector with no splits in it, no... And if it was loomed and everything, I just pulled the pins and moved them. The loom didn't move. Yep. I didn't. So I have learned that that hundred dollars worth of repinning, depinning, and crimping tools was fantastic investment. And that's something oh, yeah. where I would have been like, I don't need that. I have an AutoZone crimper. I have the red butt connectors. At the you know. Yeah. Well, and, and as you get as you get more successful, your time is going to become more valuable. Yeah, I and learned that too. Then also, like I say, I just buy harnesses now. Like I used to make a garbage thing out of like a 30-inch micro squirt pigtail and a stock ECU and whatever. And now I'm like, I just want one that's done. I just want to plug yeah. it in. I don't. I'll spend yep. the extra. I don't care. Like. Oh, yeah. And uh, oh, one of the other people, she had asked a bunch of questions, and she says, "Why is everyone from Pennsylvania mean, or why are Northeasterners mean?" And I think it's our weather. I don't want to give a blanket statement. Our weather is like over a hundred degrees, 80% humidity. People are dying from heat stroke. And then it goes right down to like burn your face off cold. And now it's not extreme. People in Canada and stuff are like, that's not cold. We had negative whatever. And people in Arizona yeah. are like, that's not hot. We had whatever. I've been to most of those places and cold there is different and hot. And like where you are, Vegas, California, Hot has no humidity. It doesn't even feel hot. Yeah. When you're in Pennsylvania and it's like 105 degrees and 90% humidity and it feels like you're dying. And then yeah. it goes to neg, it goes to like 18 degrees and 40 mile an hour wind and three feet of snow every other day. It makes you a miserable person. <laughs> oh, and of Pennsylvania, especially, I think, uh, not all of us are that mean, but we have. Uh, people coming in from every state where it's too expensive or too restricted and moving in on us. And now we're like a hub and we're all warehouses and we're just mad at people all the time. It's easier <laughs> to just see somebody and be like, get out of here. What are you here for? We don't want you here. Because uh, a couple of years ago, Jamie and I flew to California and drove home as part of like a neat like uh, trip across the states. People everywhere are so much nicer than up here, and they drive. So People complain about drivers everywhere. I knew when we hit Maryland without seeing signs. <laughs> Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, as soon as we hit, we were coming across the PA. As soon as we yeah. got here, six tractor trailers on a two-lane road roll racing each other. Nice. I was like, here we are. Here's Pennsylvania already. Here, here we go. And that was the whole way in. 
uh, ridiculous. Yeah. That did not happen anywhere else. I don't care how much people bitch about it. This there we're the worst of everything up here, and I think it just makes you. I think that's why I'm such a jerk. Is I've just grown here my entire life, and I've just being a so jerk is being a jerk is easier than it is being nice, or at least being a jerk immediately as a joke. I guess we all jerk because we're or we're all. It's a joke for us to be a jerk first. It's how you say hello yeah. up here. Texas, everyone's super nice. Everywhere else, people are just nice. And yeah. then you get up here and people are like, what the hell's your problem? And that's hello. That means hello. And it's just right. so far off of what people have learned or expected. Uh, we are all jerks and we're just jerks to each other. Matt, stop soapboxing. Okay, that's a good one. That's a good comment. Soda or pop? <clears throat> what do you call uh, it? I just had some of that. No, do you I, call I, it? Uh, I, I call them frosty cold beverages, so I don't know if that's either one of those. Uh, this one's like a 5-3 turbo question. That's so exhaustive anymore. Or a, or a cold drink, if you go back to the um, Cool Hand Luke stuff. Oh, we did Ecotech questions. That's another one. Uh... Well, this is a decent one. I guess we can, you know, you, I'll have you just flagship this one. When building a car, at what point does the decision between 4853 and 60 become negligible and just grab what's cheap and throw it in becomes the answer? Power, weight, chosen sport. Well, and I think you've covered this a bunch in a lot of stuff that you've done. I think the most important thing there is to get it done. It doesn't matter that you, you can wait forever. And, and, and I get people that are trying to decide on drives me nuts. What's the best cam? I don't know what your definition of best is, but they all want to have, they want to talk for hours and weeks and months on the camshaft and then on the push rods and then on the rockers and the trunnion upgrades and everything. Just get a motor and put it in and get it running. If you decide that your turbo four eight or whatever the first motor that you got from the wrecking yard isn't enough. If it's already running and working and driving down and you're enjoying it and doing burnouts and going to get donuts or whatever, and that's not enough, then you already know how to change it. It's really easy. But don't spend a lot of time figuring out which one of those is best and then trying to find the 6.0 instead of the 4 and the 5.3, especially if you're looking at any kind of power level below a 1,000 horsepower. Just grab one of the motors and then add boost and a cam and springs and pump and injectors and you're on your way. Don't worry about all that stuff. Yeah, I always I always say the same quote is get the most complete engine for your money in your area because prices you can't tell someone, oh, 300 people. Every time you talk about a cheap motor, everybody in the comments is like. Got my LY6 for $50. And some guy's like, I traded a yeah. case of beer that was $12 for a, uh, an LS3. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Ship me one. If it's, I'll pay $150 freight. If yours is 50 bucks, I'll just buy it yeah. from you. No, I want two grand. Okay. Uh, if they're $50 in your area, then yeah. Anyway, I want to buy 30 of them. People get locked up on that, uh, analysis paralysis thing. Similar like when someone starts building a car and they take too long and they're like better turbos came out and they spend all their money on buying better turbos trying to sell the others. The car is nowhere near finished. Yeah. Uh, and I say to people also, just get the motor in. Freiburger says something very similar. It doesn't have to be right. It just has to be running. 
and I can't agree with that more, uh, just put the damn motor in. Even if it's man stock cam, stock injectors, stock manifolds, put it in. Make the car move. Because everything after that point is, is a cakewalk. Yeah. Doing a cam, hanging a turbo, what a, it's easy. It's easy as hell. Injector upgrade, especially if you have a, again, a Terminator where you're like, beep, boop, beep, boop, injector change, beep, boop, beep, boop, for a Lady E. Uh, yeah. That's not easy at all, though, according to everybody else. But yeah. Same thing. I've said it for years. Uh, and I especially love to use 4.8s because people are like, it's a small motor. It's worthless. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing more I like to do than make people eat their words, and I hope people do the same to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, we did the pre-turbo. I guess we're going to ask people. I'm going to start doing We're running out of pre-done ones, and as I'm looking, a bunch of them are the same. Oh, there was a good one that's not in here that I remember. Uh, what are your passions or hobbies outside of motorsport and cars that you enjoy? Well, obviously Ninja Warrior was one. That's, but, but the thing that I go do that when I'm not doing, um, car stuff is snakes. I go catch snakes. As a matter of fact, I probably will have fairly soon another channel dedicated to that. So I may catch a hundred or more snakes a year. And I've been doing it since I was five and I'm fascinated by them. And I, most of the snakes that I catch here are rattlesnakes, unfortunately, because they're, they're not fun to play with. We're looking for other kinds of snakes, like king snakes and gopher snakes and racer snakes and ring necks and, and garter snakes and, and sharp tails and stuff. But around here and where I go, we see more, um, northern Pacific or western rattlesnakes than anything else. And so I like to go and do that. I, I like going out to not just the catching snakes, which is cool, but also being out in nature, like being away from all of the, oh, God, I have to get a video done right now. <laughs> or I have to, to, you know, take a motor apart or rush down to West Tech or whatever I have to do. Um, I like going out and being away from all that and going and looking and being out there with turkeys and coyotes and all kinds of stuff. And then the process of going and looking for snakes, I do that. Um, we also go and, you know, we I, I, we have a boat, so we go skiing and fishing and camping and that kind of stuff, too. People are going nuts about the snakes because my, there's only, like, one thing, one animal in the world my wife does not like and is afraid of, and it's snakes. So it's funny that you were like, snakes? So I was, I was, at least my wife, my wife does not like them either. She will not even really want to look at them. <laughs> Yeah, we if we go through the pet store and I show my kid all the reptiles, she's like, see, see, guys, I'm going to go stare at the birds. Come over when you're yeah. done. I don't want to yeah. see any of them. Uh, oh, there's some good ones coming. Potato R33 is just the man with r r random comments towards the end. There's a good one here that I'd like to bring up, though. It's lengthy, but I think it's worth talking about because no one else has said it. Uh, it may have already been done, but at what point do you reach diminishing returns with intake air temperature? Maybe non-intercooled air-to-air, air-to-dyno water, tap water, ice water. What has a greater power potential on a Turbo LS, C16, or E85? That's a fuel question. I think we went over that. C16 is yeah. better. Unless it's a C85 mix. And then, uh, what if a, what if it's a blow-through carb? Is there a difference in IET and everything else? Is there a good way to monitor IAT under the throttle body if it's a blow-through carb or sniper without measuring with a wet bulb? 
Have you ever dynoed backwards from 7,000 to 3,000? Only purpose it could serve is to see how curves react to a gear change. And do you have a Patreon, you know, for gas money? So that was a lot. So is there, wow. I will talk about IAT first. Okay. The, the IAT stuff, um, that's an interesting point about measuring it under the carburetor. Um, because you have, you, you, it's hard to get the temperature right, in my opinion. And the guys have brought this up a lot that when we're measuring it, we're measuring it. Yeah. Getting a type K thermal couple and getting moisture on it. Is it, is it accurate? Would it be more accurate if we measured it down in the port? We know that a carburetor is changing the temperature of the air. It has to. Um, we also know that an intercooler does. And so, in my opinion, I'll give you the way that I approach these kinds of questions is it's real easy to figure things out when you look at extreme examples. So if we take and look, we know that when we put ice water in an intercooler, the motor makes a lot more power. It, it always does that. And, I, and we run ice water in our Bonneville motor. We had at 17 pounds, we had a 54 degree charge temperature because we had 32 degree water going in and, and cooling our charge temperature. So it worked very well. We had a 10-gallon cell. We put drinks in there. So we had drinks ready at the end of the Bonneville run. So ice water is very good. Um, the blow-through carburetor works good, but it works even better if you run an intercooler on it. The colder that you can get the air, the better. And there's no diminishing return at any of those levels. And I'll show you an extreme level to give you an idea how much charge temperature helps when it's even colder than that. So when the guys ran the um, compressed air supercharger at West Tech, so what that is is a big cylinder with a valve on it, and it's all computer controlled, so that they can introduce compressed air, basically boost, but with nothing creating the boost other than compressed air, which the energy obviously was off somewhere else when they were compressing it. But they were able to effectively double the power output of the NA motor at seven pounds. So think about that. We all know that the Holdner power boost formula, you you double the power output at 14.7 pounds because that right now we have 14.7 pounds of atmospheric pressure. If we double that atmospheric pressure, if everything is right, we can double the power output. Well, they did it. They doubled the power output at only seven pounds because their charge temperature is below zero when it's introduced into the motor. These guys were, and because of that, they can run full NA timing. <laughs> they didn't even pull timing away. Uh, it was amazing what they were able to get away with because they had such cold, cold charge temperature. So I think that there's no limit. I mean, maybe if it was negative 200, maybe then that would be, we would reach that, we would reach that limit. So I would try to get the thing as cold as you can. You'll keep getting gains. Uh, but as we went to in the, um, the M1 comparison, at some point it may not uh, work from a weight versus power gain standpoint. And that compressed air supercharge thing is a perfect example. All of those cylinders and stuff would weigh a lot. And so it would be best maybe for, and obviously it doesn't, it won't last very long. So it'd be best for drag racing or possibly Bonneville at, at some at some given power level. Um, and the wet bulb thing, I don't know how we get around that unless we were to shield the the the, the sending unit or something maybe. In my opinion, that works great uh, because if you have a car that has like water meth, you want to know if it's wetting it and causing a artificially cool temperature, 
if it's not working, you're going to get a much higher temperature and it's easier to translate the tune in between. So sure, I, I always tell people, put the IAT sensor, if you're sprint, if you're largely doing pump meth, pump water, pump water meth, put the meth nozzle before the IAT. And people's argument is that it soaks the sensor. My argument is when you see the IAT fall when you come into boost, that's a tuning advantage. Data point. If you have sure. no clue, if the IAT is the same and the methanol is coming on and you have no, uh, someone might completely disagree with me and that would be fine. But from my, from what I look at from a tune, I want to see the meth knocking the IAT down. So you can be way more aggressive since it, it's controlling it on pulling the timing if it doesn't work. Sure. And then, the, well, we saw the, the thing that worried me about the water meth injection when we did when I did the test for engine masters and I did this stuff beforehand, which is why they want to do it. Is, yeah, exactly. On on those long runner manifolds, we just don't see equal distribution, so we know that it's not lowering the charge temperature or changing since we're using meth or changing the octane as much in that cylinder as it might be in others. So, you know, I, that just scares me. Yeah. And what I always say similarly, you can't, I like to do a small nozzle and you can't always trust it, but it will buffer your pump gas tune up uh, respectably, in my opinion. Uh, if you're going to lean, you can lean on a pump gas tune up, but frequently people might not understand those, those tanks get mixed. And if you yep. happen one day, there it goes. So yep. that's why if it's a pump gas car, I'm very conservative because you might have encountered this if you do a lot of pump gas tuning. At least in the Northeast, pump gas has gone way downhill on octane limit in the last five years. It has crashed. It's almost 87 at this point. So I don't lean on pump stuff very hard at all anymore. And, uh, you know, I frequently tell people uh same thing. And, and someone had asked, and it's, it's important, it's worth noting, uh, E85 or water meth, or E85 and water meth. In my opinion, uh, if you're running E85, throw away the water meth setup. It's totally useless. I, I you're getting so much more heat scrub and alcohol percentage in the cylinder on the injector that you would ever benefit from spraying water meth. And like you said, you're getting unequal distribution and you're trying to wet flow a dry intake and blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, uh, and then also... Uh, when people say E85 versus water meth, E85 is, you can get much more power out of it. It's a joke than water meth. Oh yeah, we, we, we've done that test. It's, it's a lot better. It has more octane. It has charge cooling. It, it makes more power just putting the E85 in. It's, you know, it's kind of a better deal. Yeah. I always do the hierarchy. It's pump gas and then water meth and then E85. And for guys doing crazy stuff, it's race gas and, and methanol. And then also, uh, someone just said, with Holly, you can change the target air fuel based on IAT and E85 and everything. That's a good thing to mention. I talked about it on E85, I changed the target, because there is a small window where target air fuel. And what I sure. do is when I tune a car, I look at that window. So if it's no different, for, uh, increasingly, three-quarters of the cars from an 11.0 to a 12.0 will make a good enough amount of power to warrant the air fuel correction change and some sure. of them won't at all but then uh 
Alan here mentioned that you can offset the target air fuel versus IAT. Like if IAT starts getting hot, you can just start dumping more fuel to try to compensate. But normally you pull spark, but it would be interesting to see that test back to back a target air fuel versus an intake temperature test. What's safer? That's a, that's a tough, that's a hard. That, that's what I was going to mention. That's why I would do it. I'd be more interested in it. If the IAT is going up, that it just is safer at that point. I'm less worried about making the power than the thing not hurting itself. So if we have to dump fuel and or take timing away, I just want it not to break. I have done back to backs and the air fuel doesn't really help the ignition helps yeah so that might be application specific but at least turbo ls turbo honda and a bunch of other things the ignition has to come out or it's going to blow up adding fuel it doesn't care it's going to pop you can have a 90 air fuel and too much ignition and heat and it's going to lift a ring land crack oh, yeah. a lower ring land if you pull ignition yep. it won't do that to, to yeah. obviously to a certain point but uh someone has a good question uh, there's some other like funny ones, but I'd rather ask good questions because everybody learns from them. Uh, where was it? I just lost it. Uh, oh man. Here's, here's one of the questions that, pe and that you may be able to help answer this too, that people like to talk about is, and we went over this in one of the live feeds that I did, and that's people choosing their camshaft based on the peak head flow. I had a good conversation with Brian Tui, and we're going to go over this when I go back and see him. But so, for instance, if you take a LS cylinder head and it makes peak flow at 600 valve lift, people say that you should choose your camshaft based on that 600 number. So you should have a 600 lift cam, and they think that if you go to a 650 lift cam, that it won't work with a with a head that flows best at 600 valve lift. And so that got like a hornet's nest stirred up of people saying, oh, yeah, you definitely have to do that. It's just like guys choosing cam timing based on the intake to exhaust flow relationship of the head, which I disagree with. <laughs> um, you know, once once you get to a certain exhaust flow percentage, then you go to a single pattern cam. And neither one of those things do I agree with. Uh, I mean, I'll just say to this, the guy that asked real quick, there's not much talk on pre turbo meth injection we talked about that earlier for a while yeah. so i don't remember what time but you can scrub through this and look for it but uh, we did talk about it and then the what the question i was trying to find is someone talked about plug reading and i actually have an entire sloppy wiki page on plug reading uh people can hate it or not like it uh but what i have what I have quantified in photos and results uh, works out for me. I don't know about you. I would say, do you do plug reading and how do you look at it and what's your process when you do do it? I, I don't do a lot of that. I, I will if normally when we go to plug reading, it's because we may have had a problem or something. And so we may take them out and look at them. But usually I, I'm pretty trusting of the air fuel meter and we really have a pretty good idea where timing should be for most of these applications, which is another reason that I tend to run the NA motor before we run the boosted motor because, and I, and I don't do as nearly as much um, pump gas boosted stuff as you do. So I don't, I guys ask me all the time, what's the most, what's the most boost I can run on a, on a 
pump gas motor. I'm like, well, you shouldn't be trying to do both of those things. But when we're running um, these boosted motors, I'll run the NA motor. And then like an LS, I always use that as an example. Okay, that motor wants 29 degrees of timing or makes best power at 29 degrees of timing at the horsepower peak. Okay, so now I know where that timing level is NA. And that gives me a pretty good idea where I'm going to be at timing for a boosted motor plus the several hundred motors that I've run under boost where we've run timing with them and where we kind of know where they should be. Um, and so I don't, I don't know, I don't ever valid or very rarely would I ever go validate. Okay. We ran this at 11 and a half to one and I ran 23 or 22 degrees of timing at 15 pounds of boost with E85. I know that that was safe. And I don't usually go in and take the plug out to look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's still working just fine because we we kind of know that it does. Um, Brulee is really good at reading plugs because they've done that for a long time on big blocks and stuff. So we, so we can look at it, know how far back the coloration is on the ground strap and and on the tip and, you know, all well, of that stuff. But he's old school. He doesn't have a lot of data. So their data was the plug. So yeah. that's what their go to is. And then. I would say, sorry to interrupt, but like someone has a quote in here. Uh, if your tuner doesn't look at the plugs, he's a computer guy, not a tuner. And that's from Steve Morris. And I, I laugh that it's, it's true and not true. Cause like what you mentioned, Steve yeah. Morris is on the high end of the spectrum, right? Oh yeah. That guy probably no, I has. I watch his stuff all the time. Yeah. I love what he does. He probably has 802s and eight EGTs. You can't compare yeah. that to a 500 horsepower don't BS me turbo LS car. And then like you have said about other people that say you absolutely need to use a timing light, you abs... And then what you and I run into is the last 100 cars we touched took the same amount of ignition. Yeah. So how can they be off eight degrees at the crank if they literally all run the same and make the same power, other than cars that are total horseshit, of course. Yeah. Uh, and there's something else yeah, I'm wrong. I think that can't happen, but but <laughs> the amount of times that it does happen, like it's never happened to me. It's a, yeah. that's a tough point to argue. Uh, I would say yeah. it's for people that like to make excuses, maybe. Yeah. Not knowing, I mean, knowing what I know, if someone has to talk about that stuff, it's because they couldn't produce a result and wouldn't tell the customer it's garbage. Yeah, something's wrong. You need to fix this or, or just blatantly. I think it's people that can't say, oh, I don't know what's wrong. I would tell someone, yeah. I don't know what the hell's wrong with this. It's not making what I would expect. That's for sure. Yeah. And then, and again, another reason why I run NA and then boosted because I can tell what it's what's supposed to happen. And then when it does, it does. And and like the thing with Steve, he's like the real deal. He's a real guy. I, I know what he does and love what he does. But there's no way that what I'm doing correlates with what he's doing. And like you said, I don't have to go out with to my 5.3 that's on the dyno with a single 78.75 Gen 2 turbo at 15 pounds and read the plugs. I don't have to do that. I already know what it's doing. I already know that it's right. Does Steve Morris chassis dyno a 300-wheel horsepower single cam Honda? Probably not. <laughs> That's why he's looking at plugs. Uh, when I'm yeah. really pushing a combination, see, yeah. I from what I do and what you do is they give up the delta quick, and that's it. Turbo yeah. or timing gives up quick, and then you move back. 
at least yeah. on a Turbo LS, that window is so big for yeah. when it quits and when it blows up that you should be nowhere near it. It takes like a turbo car, stock bottom end turbo car. If it quits making power, if it takes, I mean, Stop. you're going to see a big delta. It's I've talked yeah. to people and I've said 30 rear wheel per degree in a sweet spot. And then when it's yeah. 20 and then it's five and then it's zero yeah. and then it's less, it's making less horsepower because of pumping yeah. loss. And then you break. throw, <laughs> you throw four more in it. You're probably going to knock a lower. Yeah. But that's so far beyond the gain. And then similarly with most, most decent Chinese turbo setups, it's going to be 20 rear wheel per pound. As yeah. soon as that falls, the turbo's done or something else is done. Uh, all of the above. And then pump gas cars, if I get anywhere close to needing a single digit amount of ignition, that thing is done. It's octane yeah. limited. It's a garbage. Uh, but if it makes good power, a lot of times a good turbo will overcompensate, obviously, that octane yeah. limit. Because people will put too small of a turbo on or too cheap of a turbo that doesn't have good whatever. Not enough magic yeah. flowing out of the turbo. So yep. ideally, like like you said, the number doesn't matter. Unless you're building something strange and you have an external crank trigger and something else, obviously that should be checked. Distributor car should be checked. Something with a crank trigger, like what what you and yep. I would do is run it through a whole sweep of conservative to aggressive and look for yep. the payoff. And if it's not enough, you shouldn't rob the bank. Yeah. And what? I'm what what Steve is looking for is not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to get that last quarter of a degree. And he might be because he's building a race motor, and that's fantastic. But I'm never there. <laughs> I'm never going to look that close. The horsepower per cylinder and money invested and everything is gigantic at his point. So to make a broad statement like that, I'm sure if I talked to him, he would say the same. I'm not tuning yeah. a 300 horsepower D-series Honda. In the same respect, uh, I think I was going to say this in sandboxes or uh, soapboxed forever. If it's a, if I'm really leaning on a setup, if it's someone I know and they want to lean, there's some people that just, like I said, aren't happy until it's got every one horsepower. Yeah. Well, I'll pull back cylinder plugs because they're the farthest from the water pump, in my experience, the hottest ones. And when it's sure. on a holly or something similar that's sequential, I'm already pulling ignition and Fuel, I'm adding fuel and pulling ignition to a percentage in the back. So sure. what I like to do is if it's not total asshole to pull the plugs, I will put a fresh plug in the two back cylinders and then we will make a hit and I'll shut it off as fast as I can without putting a TH400 drum through my calf. And then we'll pull <laughs> yeah. those plugs. And then according to the sloppy, I have the whole sloppy wiki there. When you start chasing the bend, it's done. It's done. Yeah. Uh, so it might be gaining in the front, but it's not gaining in the back. When you when you come off the plateau and you're here, that's where yeah. you're... This is 30 horsepower, 30 horsepower, 5 horsepower. So on a streetcar, <laughs> I go back. We, we figure out... If someone's yeah. like, I don't want this to blow up, I'm going to thrash it. It's a drift car. I go back here. If someone's like, I'm going to yeah. make a pass and let it cool off for two hours and I'm going to check all my plugs, we'll maybe go here. But most people, I'm stopping at the the top of the tabletop if it hits the bend we're done yeah. and if the two if if uh the back two cylinders not the back two this way but leading back you want to see because they're the farthest so i want to see them almost match because i'm already softening the back cylinders so they both should yeah. be 
consistent, but that's only when I'm really leaning on it. Otherwise, it's totally not worth it. And the numbers at the dyno, almost 100% of the time, show the plug strap. Like, it's funny when guys are talking about a plug strap, but I'm like, I have so much data that it's almost irrelevant. Unless we're learning a new combo or something else, the ignition amount, yeah. the air-fuel amount, it's all there. It's it's not voodoo. It's it's flat-out numbers, math, and science. Like, it's it's there. It's very easy once you find the pattern to apply it, which is why I always joke around, like, people think I know a lot, but I'm like, it's it's just what hasn't blown up for me for the last 15 years on a fact sheet and I apply it, it's all there. Yeah. Similar yeah, to long, like top fuel. Long, long listen to <laughs> Similar to like top fuel, they put the wrist pin in a thing and they measure how out around the wrist pin is, how squished yep. it is, and they adjust their timing on that. It seems crude, but they have almost no other data because the, the top fuel car just wrecks like everything in it. So. Oh, yeah. There's, it's hard to measure because, like, coolant pressure and everything else is probably... They don't have coolant in that car, do they? I don't know if a fuel car has... Maybe in Maybe the heads. Not. I don't know. But they're just wrecking the motor in one pass. Yeah. So yeah. how do you measure... I mean, the car goes a certain mile an hour with wrecking the least amount of parts, and that's what you dial in. Yeah, and they have they have way more power than they could ever put down... So they're just managing traction control through the clutch to get it to put as much power as it can down during the quarter mile. I would say like 90% of their tuning is the motor staying together and the clutch. Yeah. That's what they always say. Like, it's all in the clutch, whatever, the rest of it, yep. big whoop. Uh... Oh, people were saying like balancer might not even be at TDC, rocker deflection, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so that's stuff that I just consider. And I'm going to tune it on the dyno anyway. I'm going to give it what it wants. I don't care necessarily what a, a $50 timing light and what I thought I checked as the intake opening and closing event and my actual TDC on a... I, I don't really care. Uh, nope. You know, if it's not glowing the header at idle... And it's not blowing yeah. up wide open. I don't care. <laughs> no. You can't convince me otherwise. I don't care. Oh, someone says a Dodge Magnum five nine for a Big Bang setup. I, I agree. I, I even and before I do a Big Bang, we could talk about this a little bit too. Before I do a Big Bang, I want to do a three eighteen and a three sixty Dodge Magnum, and I want to I because of my conversation with Uncle Tony, I want to swap the pistons on at least one of those so we can check the um, pin offset on the piston to see if that actually is a, a performance trick that, that actually works. And Someone literally I, just mentioned that in the chat. Yeah, and I've, I've, never, I've never tried it, nor has anybody that I know of at West Tech or Freiburger. I talked to all those guys that are like, I don't think it should change anything. But we, you know, we, we should try it. And that's what I told Uncle Tony. I said, look, I've never tried it. I said, and I know that it's changing a few things. Um, it's changing where the piston is relative to the camshaft opening. You know, I said, it's not by a lot. I said, but it's affecting things and it should affect the thrust load. I said, so there are things changing. But I want to see if it actually makes power like he's saying. And so I said, look, I'm going to test that on the dyno. I'm definitely going to try it. Quantify a result. 
Yeah. Or if you want to say it, if you want to sound smart, smarter than quantifying a result, see if it's good is the base model. <laughs> yeah. And then quantify a result. And then what's the delta? Because people, yeah. it's all that's the same what, thing, that's, guys. That's all that is, yeah. If someone's trying to make you feel dumb, ask them to re-explain it. And if they laugh at you, it's because they don't understand it and can't explain it. Exactly. I frequently like to do that where someone says something and everyone goes, yeah. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, p please explain it as if it was three. Yeah. And if you can't do that, then you don't really know what you're talking about. Oh, I'll just make a comment that all the Dodge motors suck. and It'll rile everybody Mopar up real bad. Wow. Why don't more people do it? Gen 3, all the newer Hemi stuff aside, because a bunch of people in Sloppy are making almost what LS stuff does, in my opinion. Uh, no one's really pushing that envelope because of the cost. But uh... Yeah, I did a big bang on one of those, and the Hemi has cylinder heads that are every bit as good as an LS. So the early on guys doing the Hemis were blowing them up, mostly because he didn't do ring gap. And and there's some an argument to be made, the fact that the, the crown on the piston, the ring land is thinner than what other stuff is. But we were able to go over a thousand horsepower with a junkyard 5.7 Hemi without any problem at all. And ported heads, even the early ones, which are the worst ones, flow really well. And a late model head flows as much or more than an LS3 head does. So they're really, really good. I mean, there's a lot of potential there. Um, I, the guys from Engine Masters ran a 5.7, an Eagle 5.7, I guess and put a cam in it and that thing did amazing <laughs> it has a dual runner intake they put a camshaft in it and i want to say it made like i don't know 525 or 530 or something like that with a cam upgrade it was pretty impressive yeah i think similarly though where i talk about boomers regurgitating things that have no sound information about them is the same with the hemi stuff because everyone says it's made out of glass and then you got a guy on sloppy public that's like i have a micro squirt on a 5.7 and i made they made like 460 on pump and then he made like 640 on e and he's been racing yeah. it for a year and similarly yeah. i feel like they're just behind on the tuning because the mopar stuff's more expensive or more limited than i think than yeah. silverado and whatever engines and people are just and the the tuning stuff just doesn't exist for a lot of dodge that's that's decreasing yeah. more now in my opinion but prior, people just didn't touch them, and they were expensive, and people would break them being ham-fisted. So similarly to when the LS stuff came out, and people say dumb shit like, can't run more than eight pounds of boost. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Which means absolutely nothing once you learn anything about that stuff. And now people are taking a 99 Silverado motor and making 740 wheel and running eights in a Fox all day long on a yep. motor that can't take eight pounds of boost. Uh, you know, opinions have changed. And same thing, like, I've had people tell me the Ringland doesn't exist. And I'm like, why are you pounding the Ringland out of it? Yeah. It, why, why don't you stop jackhammering the Ringland then? Uh, you know, I can understand yeah. uh, when you buy an aftermarket piston and it has a fatter Ringland, it has a wider tuning window, and it's harder to knock the top ring out of it. But it doesn't matter that if it's on pump and you heat that top Ringland so much, it catches and folds it anyway. Yeah, it's no different. That shouldn't be your goal in your tune, anyways. <laughs> it shouldn't be to break Ring the top. Ringland is not your tuning measurement. Thing. No, you're, no, you're way that, over. That be the weak link. 
You're way over. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, where's a good one? The IAT one we already talked about. Have you ever run a dyno backwards, like loaded a motor all the way down? That's an interesting question, I think. Remember what he said? He uh, said something about it... starting at 5,000 and loading it until it goes to like 3,000. And... I don't I don't know if it would do that. We could do stationary loads at every RPM if we wanted to do that. Like we could we could do a wide open throttle load at a stationary load at seven and then one at six and five and four if we wanted to do that. I don't think I don't know if the dyno will go the other way. It might not plot if it's decelerating, right? Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I've never I've never tried that. I could on a dyno jet, I can plot over time. So yeah. I can plot over RPM, so I it might work backwards. That's a good question. If I could change the load enough to decelerate the motor, but that's like a tricky, yeah. you'd almost need a custom sweep setup because what a dyno yours wants to see is progression. So you're going to say yeah. a thousand RPM per second, say. Yeah. And if it's not doing that, it's probably going to quit or unload or do something funny. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd, I'd have to ask Brulé if we can adjust the numbers so that it's lower at the top and higher at the bottom to see if that's possible. I think that that could be done on the loaded Superflow chassis dyno. Although, again, I don't know why we would do that because I don't know what he's trying to show by loading it backwards. I guess like that. he's trying to see if the horsepower would be different, but I don't think he understands how much load you can generate with your water brake dyno. Yeah. Is that yeah. I've seen it too, and it, it totally freaked me out when I first did that eight. 8 Y-band, 8 EGT, blown Hemi motor, and an LS2 at uh, Ray Barton Racing Engines, which is funny for how how funny I am with no preconceived notions. I went to Ray Barton's, and I didn't even know who he was. People were, like, yeah. scoffing at me, like he's the greatest Hemi guy ever. I'm like, well, I don't really yeah. follow any of that. I don't really know who the guy is. Sure. So uh, I don't know. And then it was really funny to see. I have videos of that, like... Uh, whipple blown late model hemi like it's at 2000 rpm and the blower the throttle body like a like a 90 some millimeters like whoa and the engine yeah. tone is the same 2000 rpm all you hear is more blower noise and the throttle yep. staring at you like this and you're like it freaks you out like what is yeah. going on this is scary it's unnerving running it like that yeah, you're just staring at the blade on a blower car and it's holding it. I'm like, it's probably going to pop. Like, how can it just hold it? But, yep. And then that's also something I've brought up before, shit-talking on you, Richard, where you, you talk about spooling and power percentage and power over the curve, where I'm, I'm like uh, a load-based water brake engine dyno can artificially load turbos. Oh, it, it definitely does. The engine dyno is the, and I keep telling people that the engine dyno is the worst place to try to do a change in spool rate test because we're artificially loading the turbo and making the turbo better than it is because it never sees that kind of load on a chassis dyno or on the street or out at the track. Even if you're on the two step or power braking or whatever, it never sees what we do on the engine dyno. And that's why I tried to explain to people. They're like, yeah, we want you to test AR ratios. And I said, look, we're going to see if there's a big change, we can see that because we can correlate like, okay, we loaded it at 2000 and it made three pounds of boost and then rose up to 10 pounds and then carried 10 pounds. 
And then now we loaded it at 2000 RPM and we changed the AR ratio and it went up to four pounds and then changed it. Okay, we can see that. I don't know what that's going to do on the street or on the chassis dyno or at the track because there's no direct correlation for that because the engine dyno is not a good place for that. Yeah, it's tough for you to tell people. People asked a bunch about like twin turbo combos and a bunch of things. And I don't really run enough twins to give anybody solid advice. And yeah. then essentially, like you just said, you don't have a twin turbo Fox body with a T56. You can't give them advice on in with a with a T56 and a 28 inch tire and a 355 gear ratio. What's going to have <laughs> yeah. more punch in fourth gear at a 60 roll? Yeah. Do you have rolling anti-lag? Do you have whatever? What size is the converter? How well? Do... Yeah. There's a lot going on there and, and people with similar combos. And then I think that that gets lost in translation. The, the more information you can give somebody about what you're doing, goals, like I always say, goals first, and then yeah. a, a stairway to your goals is the most important thing. Uh, if you give some, if you're like, I got a four eight, what what twins are best? And the, the blankness. Well, let's talk about what singles best first, and then we can talk about twins. the blankness in both of our stairs is exactly yeah. the answer to that question. What the hell yeah. are you doing with it? Are you land speed racing? Do you want response? Does it have an auto? Is it T56? Are you road racing a 700 horsepower twin turbo 4.8? Anyway, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, where did was you it? see the, did you see the video that I did on the, I did a cool comparison between a, a twin turbo and then twin remote turbos, even though, as we talked about, an engine dyno is not ideal to show changes in response rate, but I added like 14 I feet. I did see that. Feet. Yeah, to simulate that. So we know, yeah, so we know that there is a difference between the response rate when you add 14 feet of exhaust tubing to your turbo to make it remote. Apparently two cars back is, is, is how far I made it. And that again, if you have a big auto and it's a drag car and you're up on a trans brake, doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. There's a bunch of tests I read back in the day. People might be able to look them up still. Zombie SS on LS1 Tech was okay. one of the pioneers of rear mount turbos. And everybody was like, this is a joke. You're stupid, blah, 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 because there's no room in an F body. He had like a 01 SS and yeah. he had a TH400 or something else. And people are like, you're stupid. And he had giant exhaust tubing and long tubes because that flows the most amount, right? When he yeah. started off with a smaller turbo and started to learn more, and then he did iron manifolds and like two inch all the way back to a T4, and then he got a big T4, like a T4 80 millimeter, and it just got better. It spooled faster and made more power. Like he just kept learning and providing results, yeah. and uh, people were still like, "You're lying," or "This is dumb," or "Why would you do that?" Blah blah blah. And he actually found some benefits at some point because of it's not. On an F-body, people are putting the turbo flat against the rad, so they have no fan solution. And then yeah. the turbo is digesting like 300-degree air between the engine, Which is perfect. the hot side, <laughs> and the radiator yeah. that has – it's the fans are push, and they're blowing hot radiator air into the inlet of the turbo. And then oh, the yeah. intercooler piping is up front where everything's hot. And as far as the rear mount, you know, it would actually get an intercooler effect running on the piping – 
blah, 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 blah. A lot of people, that might be their first induction to that. His topics might still exist on LS1 Tech if you look them up. But uh, a ton of, I read all of his stuff uh, back then, and it was very, when people talked about rear mounts and said how dumb it was, he was someone showing how capable it was. So I always admire sure. that. Um, I know the guys from HP Performance, when they were doing their stuff out of Roswell, they, they got a lot of guff on their modular kits because their modular four kits, there was no room in there. So they ran their turbos up um, basically in the front like bumper area and then and then went to the air-to-air intercooler from there. And so they had a big length of pipe going from the exhaust manifold up to those turbos. And everyone said, oh, that's too far away. That's going to be laggy. It's going to be all these things. But But it wasn't. It worked pretty well. Yeah, and a lot of those cars, the application sucks, and putting them somewhere sucks. And yeah, they're you just do what you got to do. Well, yeah. Another one is, what's your most spectacular spectacular fail on a dyno? Um, I haven't had the the Big Bang, the Gen Three Big Bang that we did on the six liter, um, blew stuff up pretty big, but. Probably the best one was when we were doing the wheel of death thing and where we ran the motor without oil. So we went in and ran the motor, went out wide open throttle, like 5,000 RPM. And I walked into the dyno and I undid the drain plug on the oil pan and just let all the oil drain out. And it was amazing how long the motor ran without um, having any oil in it. <laughs> it was also amazing that it still showed some oil pressure, like three or four pounds of oil pressure from the pump still spinning, but with no oil. So we think that that was actually just air pressure in there because the pump, you know, the pump still had oil inside of it basically. So it was still sealed fairly well and it was spinning. So we think that it was just pumping air pressure in there, but the motor lasted like 91 seconds at wide open throttle with no oil pressure and eventually blew up and it shot stuff out and, and caught the headers on fire. And did, and so that was kind of cool. Um, the other one that we did that was really cool was dropping BBs down the carburetor at wide open throttle. And I set up targets back behind the headers so that the BBs would go down through the headers. And we were hoping to hit bullseyes. We should have used really small headers to get some velocity up, but we hit the target a lot. And it took a lot of BBs to finally like hurt this motor. Cause what would happen is this was an iron headed motor. So we dropped the BBs down and they would hit the piston and the, um, the quench area on the head. And they would smash and then they would flip and then they would smash again. So a bunch of them came out and looked like key stock so that they were no longer BBs. <laughs> they were little, these little bars and it was awesome. But I can tell you that the, the BBs that, that motor lasted a long time. But if you take and drop a stainless like five sixteenths nut down a small block board at wide open throttle, it has catastrophic effects. So the thing that we were all worried about, like from back in the day, is dropping a nut or something down the carburetor. We did it at wide open throttle and it found its way in. It broke the camshaft and the timing chain and a piston and a rod. I mean, it just did, it destroyed everything. It was awesome. A uh, similar, a uh, funny thing you say about a nut is we dropped a nut in an uh, intake of one of my friend's cars and that cylinder lost compression and the nut was stamped into the top of the piston and it shot yeah. a nut like a 10 millimeter nut into the oil pan as one piece. And it was sitting there in the top of the piston. You could still thread uh, a bolt into it, but it was nice. leaking all of the combustion down. 
Oh, wow. How funny is that? It was fine. Everything was fine. So it, it, it did like a cookie cutter thing through the piston? Yeah, it just, and it knocked that, it knocked 100% of the surface area of the nut out of the yeah. piston. Oh, nice. And remained flat. Perfect. We were like, what the hell? Like, you could almost just screw a thing in and pull it out. Uh, interesting. Well, you could, if you just screwed something in from the bottom, then it would work, right? Because then you'd fill that hole and you'd be all good. That's a great suggestion. We should have just put a <laughs> a thing in there and Loctited it and shaved the head off of it. Fuck Dude, it. You'd, you'd have been a king if you would have done that. Huh? Oh. Uh, there was another one. Oh, Richard, how much power... Do you, oh, I'm sorry. I was reading it wrong. How much power do you like your daily driver to have? My daily driver is a 2002 5.3 Chevy Silverado, and it is 100% stock. So how much ever that is? Well, I guess they would say, like, if you had, like, what's an ideal amount of power if you could have anything as a daily is what I'm assuming that's about. Um, I, again, I think we would go back to whatever application it is. I know if we had a daily, but if I had a daily Mustang or Camaro, I think the amount that I would want in that would be different than a daily truck. Like if I had, if, if I could, if I had a transmission that wasn't made of glass in my, in my 5.3 truck, Cameron, are you listening? Um, then I would put, uh, and I had a turbo on that. I think if that thing made 500 at the tire, um, or, or somewhere near there, and 550 or 600 foot pounds of torque. I think that that would be a lot of fun in a truck as long as the transmission wouldn't break. And I had my Mustang, which was a daily driver back in the day, was probably less than that. And it had a Vortec on it. So it had, it didn't have anywhere near the torque that a, um, that a good turbo deal. I remember thinking back then how cool my Mustang was, you know, cause I was young and, and I had the fastest car in the world and it probably made 400 or 450 at the tire on a good day when the belt wasn't slipping. And it only did that at the top of the RPM range. But I remember the first time I rode in a turbo car, I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is kind of what it should feel like. I don't have to wait to have seven pounds of boost at 6,200 RPM. I can have that like at 3000 and that's like awesome stuff. Uh, yeah, similarly, I guess what my answer to that would be is 500 rear wheel in most cars is the most you can use unless you have a very applications. If you have a twin turbo Lambo on drag radials that has traction control and MoTeC, and that's not a good answer for a daily. And then I would say a 300 horsepower front wheel drive car is probably the most fun you can have. And there's anything over that is smashing transmissions and everything else. So I had a, a turbo D series Honda that made 303 tire. It was, it was awesome for what it was. And any more than that was a complicated to put down or worrisome to keep putting that amount of power through or a total risk of police and accidents you might incur on your own. And then like similarly, I had that turbo Colorado that I did the don't BS me build on and on low boost, it would make 450 wheel. And that was enough to make people who I would take out for a drive in it absolutely shit their pants. And I could do a thousand foot burnouts in it. And it was 450 oh, yeah. through an auto. So, and that was in a truck that weighed like 3850. So you can make more than that. And you can try to use more than that, but it's, it's very hard to use it. And it's not many, it just does a burnout harder than it does with uh 450 or 500. So. Uh, that's my answer to that. 
my I had a um focus with an F Max turbo kit on it. It probably made 225 or 240 or something like that at the tire, the way that we had it set up. And that thing was super fun to drive around on. It was awesome. I loved it. So someone made a comment like just just change the SN with 308 gears. That makes it spin worse in my opinion. Uh, giving it a ton of mechanical advantage and too much gear ratio to eat up when it does when it does spin makes the car worse. And then other someone asked uh Gen 4 rods versus Gen 3 crank. People are always worried about the balance. What are your thoughts? I'm I'm actually going to do a video on that. We're going to I'm going to go in with the guys at LNR and we're going to weigh and balance all of that stuff. So I should be able to tell everybody the answer to all of that to find out if they have to rebalance it. Um given the story that I just told about putting one odd oversized change <laughs> different design piston in my 5 liter, apparently it's not it's not a big deal. But um I want to weigh we're going to weigh the um Gen 3 rods and the Gen 4 rods and the Gen 3 pistons and the Gen 4 pistons and the 4.8 rod versus the 5.3 rod and the different cranks with the different um, trigger wheels on them and stuff. And so I should have answers to all of that stuff pretty soon. So people were just asking quick about my... Uh... My gear ratio comment, and they're saying, like, uh, is that why you put 456s in Jamie's truck? Well, on low boost, it made, like, 450, and it was an NMBS truck, and it had, like, it had 20-inch chrome wheels on it, and they weighed, like, 100 pounds each, and then they were, like, 33 inches tall because of the rim was so big, and it made 400 horsepower, so it would do, like, 130 in second. And it would just take so long to accelerate. Why wouldn't you put a shorter gear in? And then people, are, in my opinion, are scared of gear ratios too. Yeah. So, and then they're like, oh, and there's a big myth that people just regurgitate. And it makes me upset when I hear it is like, oh, I got to get longer gears to load the turbo. Uh, yeah. All you're doing is slowing your car down, putting it in a gear ratio that does 200 in second. How is that going to make your car faster? Uh, gear yeah, it for the use. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with all motor. If your car traps 118 and it's a race car, you want to gear it for like 125. It's going to get there as best as possible and peak power, everything else. So uh, that truck would be no fun at all if it was going 130 in second. It takes forever to do anything you want it to do. Meanwhile, if it gets to the usable RPM sooner and can utilize that RPM sooner, easier, it makes everything easier. So, yeah, people were, like, scared shitless when I put 456 in, but reality is that it drove amazing with 456 because it could actually yeah. use the RPM band. Well, with too much gear, you're having to run a bigger RPM spread, and if you can narrow that RPM spread with a gear, you're gonna, it's going to accelerate quicker. Yeah. And then, yeah, my, I mean, my thoughts on the Gen 4 versus Gen 3 mixing is... It doesn't matter at all. I've done it so many times with no problem. Again, uh, if you have time and you're worried about it and you can spend the money and you give a shit, and I'm scared that like if people spend so much time on it, they're going to cause a failure because they touch too much. Yeah. 
that's another issue I tell people like you shouldn't have touched all that because now you maybe created an issue and they disagree with that but taking all the magic out of it yeah the more you touch is the more and I laugh about it because I have that that summit stroker and I have all this expensive stuff and it's been difficult to get like the converter to fit and the billet flex plate to work correctly. And I can't wait until I run into like a amount of issues with trying to make all the fancy stuff work. And then yeah. if it loses oil pressure and like six dyno hits, uh, you know, <laughs> you know what a waste it would be. And I think about that all the time and I'll say it out loud, but, uh, I see people spending a ton of money and not getting the money out of it. And yeah. what I do see is people buying a crusty 4.8 that looks like it was in the bottom of a pond making 800 wheel for two years. Well, and I can tell you from running the stuff on the dyno, a motor that I put together, like I built a 427 LSX motor, I didn't even want to dyno it. I didn't want to put it on the dyno because I was too worried about it breaking. It's too, and too much and money. I go get from the wrecking yard, I don't care about it. Let's put it up there and run it. Let's put nitrous on it and boost. I don't care. Because if it breaks, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars. But if that motor breaks, that's probably $10,000. You know, I don't want to break those. Yeah. Well, we have a good one from Codeman Rose just asked, can Richard go over smaller twins? Do you do a bunch of twins, though? I, I have run. We've run a bunch of them recently. I've run a bunch of um, cheap, the uh, TT3582s from the guys at um, Max Speeding, which worked out pretty well. I've also run that same turbo from the guys at CX Racing. And we've run, um, well, the two S475s, those are pretty big. But we're also, I, the guys from Max Speeding also just sent me some GT3076s. So I want to compare those to the GT3582s and see, because the GT3582 is about, is like a 1,000 horsepower, 1,100 horsepower kind of combination. So it's right in the same wheelhouse as a Gen 2 7875 or an S475, an S480 kind of thing. So guys want to know, you know, everybody wanted to know, well, what's what's more responsive, a small twins or the single? And I'm like, it doesn't matter because if you size the turbo right, whether it's two of them or one of them, they're going to do the same thing. But guys don't want to hear that because they've been fed the same thing for years. Oh, two small twins, you know, little Little turbo is much more responsive and less wheel weight and, not, you know, all guess, of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, similarly, he just said go over twins. And he says, why has he not maxed out his last GT35 setup, even like T04E stuff? And then he says, Matt, do you remember Chad's third jet setup that went nines with 57 millimeter units? Uh that car was pretty tricky. Like, I think it was because it was really light. It went yeah. nines fairly easily. It had a peaky power band and some other issues. But what it kind did, of car was it? It was a third gen that was, like, completely Swiss okay. cheesed out. And it had... Yeah. And when he bought the turbos for it, I'm like, these are too small. It was, like, two small T3s, like 57 yeah. millimeter, I, he says here. And if he was researching it, he would know better than me at this point. And the issue there is it took, like... 25 pounds on these small turbos to make any significant amount of power and down yeah. low they didn't really there's a lot to that but i will say that like cameron had a bunch of effective twin turbo setups like a 5.3 with twin uh gt35s and what's funny is i don't really know what gt35s they were they were chinese ones so were they yeah. 60 were they 67 were they twin 57s what was the backside 
I don't know, maybe he could fill me in. And then what yeah. he did was he went to a six liter and then he swapped on uh, like 60, 70s or something like that. I can't remember either. And it did okay. extremely well. And then I talked him into doing a single billet 8088 from VS. And that's what he went almost the fastest with okay. uh, versus the two. But he did say a 5.3 with GT35s, whatever ones he had, was like yeah. a light switch average power all the time. It was very good. Yeah, you can see the video that I have up on that. I think I ran it. I ran it with a 4.8 instead of a 5.3. But the the GT3582s, are, we've run singles of those on other applications, and they're a 550 or so uh, flywheel horsepower kind of deal. You might get 600 out of them on a, on a really good motor like a, a Honda or something. Um, and two of those on a 4.8 or a 5.8, I think would might even be a better application, but a 4.8 or a 5.3, is going to be like a thousand to eleven hundred horsepower maxed out, and then then you'd start running into. I think you run into on that application. You probably run into compressor and hot side at about the same time. All at once. Yep. I mean, I'm really curious to see. I'm going to have that. It's like a 360 inch six inch aluminum motor yep. that I built with Summit in my engine builder, and then yep. Varen provided those mirror image dual ball bearing billet 68 uh, 6762s. Okay. And then they're V-band inlets, so that area is a little bit less effective. But I bet it light switches like 1100 wheel. And then I would like to see how well that does and then swap them. Because he says he has 7070s coming out. Okay. So it would be cool to swap those and see the potential. But I wanted something that makes like a really wide average power. Since it's sure. like a, it's a stroker stock bore motor. And uh, yeah. applying a bunch of torque on a stock bottom end is a big no-no. So it would be interesting to do something that makes like phenomenal torque and horsepower at an early RPM. So Do you have a four-inch stroke in that? Yeah. Okay. It's a three... What's the stock one? A 368 or 378? Three, uh, three six twenty two is a stock stroke. Yeah, mine's like a 3.7-something because the bore... I got the block for free because it had, like, completely rusted out cylinders. Okay. And one of them he had to cut, like, five over because it was so bad. Because I wanted to do a thing with them where I do drop-ins. And I still okay. would like to do that one day if they want to still, where you get, yeah. like, a 4.8, and I just do completely drop-in rods and pistons at home and then slam it. But okay, didn't work out. Uh... It says, is hot riding and car culture truly at risk, or is SEMA and the lobbyists need our money to line their own pockets? I guess that's, are they taking donations to try and save? I don't know. I guess it's like an <laughs> EPA versus SEMA question. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I'm I'm not, I'm, I don't have a voice for SEMA, so I'm not the guy to ask about that. I don't, I don't think that, I, I think that you should be way more worried about EPA yeah. than you should be worried about the people at SEMA. Who cares the about? The RPM Act is important. Who cares about bubblegum welds at SEMA and 28-inch wheels uh, when, you know, the government is restricting your right to make a 95 Mustang a race car? Yeah. One of those is really dumb. Well, one of them's dumb and one of them is like encroaching personal yeah. rights. Uh, another one is, 
Do you remember when Han data went after tuners? I don't know nothing about this, honestly. I'm I'm not familiar with that. I've and I've used Han. I've known Doug for a long time. I used Han data way back when it was the S100 stuff, and gone all the way through the generations. I used Han data in that um, land speed record Civic, and but I didn't know that they were going after people. Did they go after people that were? That were pirating their software, like maybe the Chrome guys or somebody. I don't know. I don't know what that. I don't know what it's about. And he wasn't very descriptive, so it's hard for me to apply an answer to that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Another. Uh, this is decent. Uh, well, they just. It's not a question, really. Uh, he says. What drove both of you to do what you do as far as the amount of time you spend sharing information with the rest of us motorsports enthusiasts? And you guys both save us a ton of time, money, and headache compared to the old days of slopping an Edelbrock and carb to gain 20 horsepower on a small block Chevy. <laughs> well, obviously, we're doing it for the money, right, Matt? <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting paid to talk shit on everybody all day. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think it's important. I, I I've... From the very first time that I started doing car stuff and, and looking at like magazines and stuff, um, I wanted to know if what the, for me, I want, because I have an advertising degree, I wanted to know if what the advertisers were saying was accurate. And so I thought when I went into the, that business that I thought that it was our job to make sure and tell the readers at that time and now viewers what, what is happening? What is the real deal? And I thought that that was my job. Um, as it turned out that, <laughs> that that was not my job. And, and unfortunately, when I first started working there, I thought, okay, when I, when I now go on, cause I had written freelance for a while before I got a job on staff. And when I got a job on staff, I thought, okay, this is going to be cool. The guy that like runs vet magazine is going to have an L88, like in his office that he knows everything about. And the guy that does the hot bike is going to have a Harley Davidson in his office that he's going to know everything about. And same thing for the Ford book and the Chevy book and all that stuff. But none of that was true. And I was, I was a little disheartened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he asked what I think too. And that's similarly to when I, when I got into cars, I knew nothing and I just knew what I could see. And what I saw was people, what I always say is the regurgitation of stuff that no one actually knows about. And I'm not afraid to ask questions. So when people would say something that didn't make sense, which is I'm skeptical, even with my friends saying things. And I would be like, why? Why does it do that? And I was met with much hostility and uh, <laughs> or that it was a secret and no one wanted to tell me. And then I would yeah. throw back at them, well, you have no idea what you're talking about then if you can't quantify or explain it. And that was made people mad too. And uh, so we would do, you know, dumb things with cars and we eventually learned how to do at this point good things. Someone asks also, this is good, uh, what's, what's a back pressure limit? What's the ratio you should run away from? And you can, I mean, uh, we went on length at that with uh, Robert Young's podcast. Yeah. The turbo um, guru. Yeah. No, Robert's good. I, I used one of the turbos on the K24 on the Honda deal because we want to make a lot of power and we're going to do a big bang on that K24 on a stock bottom end JDM deal. And that will be a lot of fun. And Robert's a pretty knowledgeable guy. And I know, I think that this is another question where guys want an absolute answer. Like they want to say, okay, if you're at 2.65, 
pounds of back pressure per pound of boost. That's the stopping point. I, I don't, I don't think we see that. I think that you see, um, as you turn up a factory stuff, like the most I've ever seen is we've been over three to one on, on back pressure compared to boost pressure. When I did that Honda turbo application, that's what we saw. We got really, really high in back pressure. Um, but what the other thing that people don't realize is when we, when we trace a back pressure curve, like when I monitor back pressure on the dyno, the back pressure starts out low and, and, and rises. So it gets greater as RPM goes up. If, if your boost pressure is operating correctly, um, it will go up to some point and just kind of level across. So a lot of times they cross at some point. So before they cross, there's actually less back pressure than boost pressure. And then if they get, if the back pressure gets really high out at the top of the RPM range, you might see lots of back pressure. So where does that get bad? <laughs> like, is it good at 3000 or 4000 RPM? And does it only get bad at the top? If back pressure is higher than boost pressure for the whole way and is two to one or three to one, um, I don't know that I've ever seen that. So I don't know. What, what do you see, Matt? What kind of limits are you talking about? Honestly, I don't have a lot of good answers because I don't, I've only recently started looking at back pressure and uh, usually the cars that I touch, uh, more and more of them are Terminator, but a lot of them are input maxed out. So people don't care yeah. about back pressure. I've only recently started looking at it. And Robert said that it depends on application and turbo. Uh, some turbos don't care about back pressure and they will just go and go and go. And uh, others will significantly drop off. Uh, he was talking about like road race Evos that love to have two to one. They love to have back pressure. They light off faster. And then he, uh, as far as he goes, he builds a turbo to run at two or three to one depending on the application. He knows it's going to have significant back pressure and uh, he sizes the compressor and the map correctly to deal with it. So it is a wide open question. I would say that if you have a Chinese turbo setup and an LS motor, uh, they do make the best power under two to one. You can see when you're encroaching two to one, the horsepower per pound drops off like a rock uh, if back pressure isn't good. And similarly, I have seen some setups with a one to one quit they have a completely one-to-one -one. sometimes on my turbo truck uh, i never diagnosed the issue that the three-quarter ton 2500 i was testing out the 80102 80 millimeter billet 102 turbine and it just wanted to die off at like horsepower per pound was phenomenal the thing made like it made like 474 rear wheel on four pounds and then it made 721 on 12 or 13 pounds to the tire through an 80e and a 14 bolt and then up towards 22 pounds it only made 850 so it fell off significantly and uh, my back pressure was under one to one but i couldn't make any more power per pound i don't know why uh, it could have been a assortment of things but what i saw there was uh, back pressure is important but it's not end all so that's the the more you know the more you know you don't know answer yeah. I used to be like two to one gospel. And then Robert's like, some of my shit loves three to one. And I'm like, man, my stuff that at this point doesn't like one to one. doesn't matter. It's under one to one. My drive pressure was like 18 pounds. My boost pressure was 26 pounds. And I struggled to get a high 800 out of it. And I don't, I don't know what that was. 
Yeah, we talked about it. It could be application specific. There are, there are things where you want response rate and you don't want to, and, and then are you maxing out the compressor first or are you maxing out the hot side? You know, the, there are lots of things to look at. Um, I, I don't like, if they go two to one or more, um, like you're talking about on the LS stuff, you start to deal with two problems. One, you start to lose power because of the back pressure and you start to also not have quite as much control of the wastegate you have to start looking at that as well. So those are a lot of things to think about. Yeah, like a, you need a ton of dome at that point, and that's where CO2 really comes in handy. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of that's a lot of open-ended things, application specific. And then like when people say, uh, I know that a big turbine is nice, like we mentioned earlier, having a two-pound spring or a four-pound spring and running up towards thirty-some pounds without much effort. A four-port is king. But then you run into the thing where it's a catalyst, right? You need pressure to make pressure. Yep. So if you have a race car and you can only make six pounds with all the boost control in it because your RPM and turbine limited to making at 3,000 RPM, you can't make the airflow. And then when you launch, it takes four seconds to hit full boost because you're waiting yeah. for it to make it to make it. Yeah. CO2 can smash the top of that thing with 100 pounds. And you can make 12 pounds at the launch, and in a half a second, you can have 30 pounds. The car is going to go faster. So it's all, again, expectation, application, uh, yeah. knowledge. Obviously, it takes some knowledge to know how to use all that. So, uh, Well, I think we might be running out other than there's there's some questions in the live. Should we go over them? If you want, yeah, whenever you're ready. We'll end soon. I'd, I have tuning stuff tomorrow, and I've been up okay. late the last couple talks, so. Yeah. Uh, What is the, where is it, where is it? Any plans on testing the On3 94mm or 107mm GT55? Uh, have you ever run those, Matt? I've never run anything from On3. I've never, I used to run On3s a lot. Uh, they had a little bit better selection and price than Varen for a while. And I, I've gone back and forth and then anymore, I just like, I just trust VS turbos and obviously we work together. It's similar to like when people hate on snake eater and I'm like, it's okay to not use them. And it's okay to say you're never going to use them. I don't care. He doesn't care. Uh, yeah. so similarly, like when people get all bent out of shape about some brands, uh, there's could be a lot of reasons. I don't have any problem with on three. Uh, I just know their turbo kits, most of my customer cars don't fit for, don't, they don't fit. They have to, yeah. they buy a bolt-on kit and then they have to modify everything. And that could be, uh, if I ever talk to him, that could be a lot of reasons, right? But, uh. Guy, guys have asked me before if I've run their kits and I, I've, I don't think I've ever run, the only other, other kit I think I've ever run is one from CX Racing and it didn't fit. So we had to modify a bunch of stuff to make it work. So that's kind of why I don't do kits. Because even if a kit might fit in a vehicle, like a truck or whatever it is, it might not fit on the dyno where we have everything that we have to have to run it on the dyno. So if it doesn't fit there and I'm going to have to make one anyways, it's easier for me to run turbo comparisons with the stock exhaust manifolds and the Y-pipe that I've made. One of the tests I do want to do, and I, I wanted to see if you've ever done this, is the Y-pipe that I have, like I have the stock truck exhaust manifolds facing forward. I've made a Y-pipe that's two and a half inch. It goes into a three inch V-band. And then with the three inch V-band, I have adapters that allow me to run a 
three inch to T3, three inch to T4, three inch to T6. I can put whatever turbo on there I want. But what I want to do is I want to do a divided versus undivided. And I also want to do a smaller diameter exhaust feeding that to see if there's a difference in response. Full well knowing that the engine dyno is a terrible place to test response rates of turbos. A guy says, when is Lisa going to make autograph shirts for sale? I know she needs to. Um, I, I, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Are, do you have merchandising on your thing on your channel? Uh, what attached to the YouTube or what? Yeah, attached to YouTube. Are you selling shirts or anything like that? Well, we have a Shopify store and, uh, we try to, uh, I sell those plug and play Holly harnesses and then we have some shirts and merch every now and then, but not anything that's crazier. I know on YouTube you can attach like an entire merchandise. Like below the video, yeah. it says buy shirts and stuff. But a lot of times, uh, you know, I think we're too busy to expand on some of that. We're, I got my hands full most nights. I'm coming out here and trying to pack shirts and do harness orders and everything uh, before I go to bed and edit some YouTube videos and everything and then go to work. And then, yeah, I don't I don't think I want to add a bunch of stuff to my plate, but. <laughs> Yeah. It might be easier. I just wondered if you did. I was going to ask you if you had, and because people have been asking me to have, you know, shirts like this one or whatever, um, and they've been asking me to do it. I just have never done it, and we, it's one of the things I wanted to do this year or this month or sometime. It's tough. You got to find a, in my opinion, and Jamie's opinion, you got to find a place that's decent because if, yeah. if you set up like a, there's like spring tees or a bunch of cheap spring, websites, yeah. the shirts are bad. The screen okay. print doesn't last. The shirt falls apart. It feels thin. Like we only get like Gildans and some other ones, like really nice shirt. And yeah, then, that's good uh, stuff. They're more expensive, but it's a way better shirt. So we do stuff like that. We do polls and we ask people like, are you comfortable buying a way better sweatshirt or fleece for $10 yeah. more? Or do you want garbage that you're going to wreck? And increasingly, yeah. people are like, I would rather have a nicer product for 10 bucks." So it's tough to, because it's a couple thousand dollars to order shirts and sweatshirts. Yeah. And I think people might not understand that. And then the other, we do a lot of pre-orders now, because we would do a poll and 250 people wanted a sweatshirt, right? So then you buy... <laughs> How many people came through? <laughs> you buy those for $7,000, among other things, and then... 50 people buy them and now you yeah. are negative a couple thousand dollars of sweatshirts. <laughs> oh yeah. So we have been started to do uh uh pre-orders for a lot of that stuff because uh paying out that much for some clothing was hard to do. So that's what makes it yeah. easy about I think if you're small enough those spring tees or the octopus looking spring, one yep. whatever ink that's good and you can you know, you can make them pretty cheap and then people order and then they send it and you get a profit amount depending on your percentage or dollar amount per product. I think that's yeah. okay initially, but I don't want to give people really crappy t-shirts and stuff. So, yeah, but we do do some, if you go on the Shopify, there is, we started expanding a little bit. Like we have lanyards and magnets and stuff people requested. No one's really, very few people are buying them. People ask and then they don't buy it. Yeah. But uh, every now and then we do like three t-shirts and one of them sells out. The other ones, 
take years to sell. So it's a, it's a, that's a hard thing yeah. to figure out. Uh, maybe we can do an a la carte with a larger company, but then you're, uh, it almost is costing you money or it's zero dollars in your pocket to go through the struggle based okay. off of sales and, I don't know. Maybe I just have no idea what I'm doing and I can't concentrate it enough. And someone like uh, <laughs> Cletus is way better at it, obviously, because he makes he's smart uh, on a multifaceted scale. And he can he sells like a shirt that says Freedom Construction Factory and everyone's like, I want in. And he sells a million of them and he applies yeah. the money and he's a marketing genius. And part of me's like. I don't want to deal with you guys today, and then I don't. <laughs> yeah. The next four weeks. No, he's I'm, he's very good at he's very good at what he does. Yeah. And next, you know, I'll be like next four weeks. I'm not scheduling anyone in the dyno because the last four weeks people were a pain in the ass. So, you know, I have that choice, and I can be rude, uh, even if it hurts me. There you go. Uh, Jamie wrote it works well. About what Shopify or what? What's she saying? She's in here again. Jamie, did you see that people want you and Lisa in on an episode? And that Richard and I should meet up. And I said that would be great. You and I can talk and they can talk and everybody would win. Yeah. Oh, the Shopify stuff works extremely well. Yeah, we used to do stuff very difficult ways before. But yeah, the Shopify stuff is really nice. Yeah, I don't think she saw the part where... She says, no, I did not. She didn't hear when people were like, okay. wives edition. <laughs> the wives edition. Yeah. They if should almost do their, we should do, have them do their own podcast. Exactly. All they can do is talk shit on us the whole time. That'd be fantastic. Oh yeah. That would be great. I know when we're down there doing, I do a happy hour and horsepower thing. So we're just, it's us down there basically day drinking and um, the, everybody wants to buy us drinks. So it's kind of awesome. Huh. All right. Yeah, I think that's it. Does anyone have anything worthwhile before we end here? It's it's one twelve a.m. here. Oh yeah, you guys are late, huh? I'm gonna I'm gonna give a thumbs. See, I just gave a thumbs up to my to my stream. Do you see the? Can you yeah. see the comments? People were saying Richard should see the comments, and I'm like, I said earlier, yeah, I you just have to join and watch the comment stream. Injector end angle, we already did that. Nope, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah, people are tired at this point. Can hey, I send rich books or shirts to autograph? Is there a P.O. box number? I have, um, I, you could probably send them to West Tech is probably would be the best place. I do have, see, that's the other thing is I have books that I wrote that I still have some copies of and stuff. And I think that I also found some old shirts that were from my uh, Killer B16 my, when, when I was road racing the Del Sol when we won the U.S. Touring Car Championship with that Del Sol. And I think I have found a box of old, like, race shirts. So I may do a giveaway with those, too, so that guys can – because I think I need to look and see what size they are because they're, if they're all small <laughs> for me, nobody's going to be able to wear them. But if they're um, – if I have some bigger sizes, I can give those away. That would be cool. Oh, and someone uh, someone asked earlier, I'd like to answer him if he's still listening. He says, does VS Racing do any diesel turbos? And we VS Racing, if you guys didn't know, we just did a radio show with VS Racing, and he does do a lot of diesel stuff, which I didn't know, and a lot of people didn't know. 
and he does he has a bunch of information on what turbos work in certain applications and everything else. Does he do compounds? I, I I'd have to ask him. I mean, he might be involved in some compound stuff. Uh, have you ever done one? I have never done it. I'm interested in. What I'm more interested in is doing like an LSA with an 80 millimeter on top. Okay. Like putting that's an 80 what millimeter. That's what we're going to do with the 3800. That's what you're doing? You're doing like the 3800 supercharged and adding a turbo yeah. to it? I yeah. Yeah, I've like... done that already once. We did that with a, um with an 03 Cobra motor also, back with the guys at HP Performance. We did twins blowing into the factory Eaton. So that, that worked out good. I'm interested in scalability and because i feel like at some point you're blowing into a blower that has a restriction and it doesn't matter what you do into it but does yeah. the compounding effect take over that and then i've heard someone like chuckles garage old smoky talk about how people do hot on hot on hot like they don't intercool the first three stages and then they try to scrub all the heat in the last stage and that's yeah. a big People do that, and then they don't get any gain. And what he has seen is intercooling the first stage into the second stage and then intercooling it into the motor is substantially better, which, uh, you know, maybe we could have him on and talk about diesel stuff because yeah. he seems pretty involved. And that makes sense in my head. If you're blowing 300-degree air into another turbo and then that turbo is making 300-degree air, you're trying to knock... 600 degrees down to something with air density worthwhile into an engine which would probably not be worthwhile at all yeah you don't you don't want to do that what we did on the on the o3 cobra was the o3 cobra has a factory air to water intercooler under the blower and then we also had the two turbos blowing into an air to air intercooler before it went into the supercharger and then the supercharger went through another intercooler before going into the motor so if you look up the, all the old books by Corky Bell and Gail Banks, one's an intercooler, one's an aftercooler, yada, yada, yada. And that's what I did on the, um, I think I didn't, I didn't do that. I did, a, I have a video up on the compound turbo into turbo on an LS, but I didn't do intercooling between the two turbos. We just did it after that, um, after the second turbo, but we had a good air to water. And so we had 120 degree charge temperature or whatever. So it was, you know, I, I didn't run, we only ran like 900 horsepower or something with it. I wasn't trying to get crazy. I just wanted it all to work. <laughs> I wanted to say that I did a compound turbo deal. Yeah. It's, it's funny to hear you say that. Cause after I've heard that, I can't unhear it. Right. The more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know is intercooling yeah. the stages is important. And someone said same thing, the, yeah. He he made a really nice compound word for it. Where did he say it? Uh interstaged cooling. Yeah. So in between the stages, once I heard yep. Chuckle say that, uh, I was like, "Oh, man, I got knowledge bombed. You should be yeah. cooling the stages." And someone else says, "Every yeah, spraying Every time. in between the stages on compounds is gigantic also." Yeah, yeah, diesel applications, if you add meth, you're adding fuel, and that's how you throttle the motors on a diesel motor with fuel. So if you add nitrous or fuel or water meth or anything, it's going to add lots of power. Yeah, like some guy, Procharge Mopar, just wrote, they've been doing this for decades on big trucks, but not a lot of stuff from big boy diesels compares to gasoline in any respect. 
because the no, RPM range is really tiny, the bigger diesel you yeah. get. Uh, and yeah. then the fuel, the air fuel ratio on a diesel is wildly different. And then like, you know, uh, fuel increases EJ, EGT on a diesel air yep. cools off the EGT. So you want to run them leaner <laughs> yep. and in a gasoline, you want to run it fatter to cool off the cylinder. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, so you can't be like works on a diesel because an all diesel applications, a small ass turbine is the best a gasoline. Yeah. You want a turbine the size of a swimming pool if you can spin it. So yeah. that's a touchy subject. And, and for the LS, the, the thing that I kept having to tell people on the compound turbo turbo deal is that we don't need to do that on an LS. If I can make 1500 horsepower on a twin turbo six liter, why do I need to, I don't need to compound that because I can already blow up everything that's in that motor with the turbos that I have without compounding it. It's just not necessary. Yeah, similarly to what I always explain is you're adding failure points. Uh, twin turbo, blower, compound, twin charged. Why do you, you have to have so much uh, inner stage cooling, piping. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things for leaks. Uh, yeah, a big single turbo, especially if it's a drag car, you're looking for certain things. But then they say people, people say the supercharger has better response. Well, if you, all you want is bottom end, a roots set up correctly is way better. If all you want is like a, a middle ground where you want it to peak later, a centrifugal is king. Like, uh, just weigh one power adder. And unless, like we talked about earlier, is spraying nitrous on top of a turbo car. If it's a drag car and you're trying to light, if a 2JZ has an incredibly sized turbo and you get on the brake, like something like with decent engine management, like a Holly, Motec, anything yeah. decent, you can tell it to shut off. Holly has it too. It's a checkbox. It says shut off at boost pressure. So yeah. it'll spray in a window. And then when it hits 10 pounds, it shuts off because that's your yep. catalyst pressure to light the turbo. So sure. it'll light the turbo on the brake in like a half second instead of six seconds for the motor to do it on its own. Uh, yeah. All of that stuff exists. So unless you have, some of these people might have it, unless you have a 1100 horsepower tow rig that's gasoline, yeah. the adding all of those power adders is a waste of money, time. Yeah. In my opinion, I could be totally wrong and I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'd still love to do an LSA fed with like an 80 millimeter of some facet yeah. just to learn. I'm sure the power curve would be better, but in my application, most of the time you have a converter that's sized for the turbo. So it's hitting the RPM band that's usable anyway. And then yeah. if someone has a tow rig and they want more bottom end, they should have a roots because they don't want the converter to swing the 4000 and sit on turbo boost. Yeah, yeah. it's all... I don't know. You can just do what you want to do with your goals, and it would be better than having six turbos and everything else. Three blowers and nitrous. Because diesels um, with 10 turbos are still slow as hell, and, man, that's going to trigger people when I say that. Oh, yeah. They're slow as hell. they got three turbos and still can't get out of their own way. They can't light them, and they can't move. What the hell is the um, difference? Exactly. I when I When we did the compound deal with the – roots blower and the turbos, the way that I explained it back then when we did it was if you have turbos on a naturally aspirated motor, you take the naturally aspirated power output, let's say it's a 300 horsepower 4.6 because we ran it like that because we ran an NA 
We ran it with just the turbos. We ran it with just the blower. And then we ran it with a turbo and the, and the, and the blower. And what happens is the turbos have a, some sort of spool rate if you put them on the NA 300 horsepower motor. So the turbos come up and then they start making boost and then they're controlled by the wastegate. Um, and the blower does what the blower does on the NA motor. It makes more power. But what the blower does on the turbo stuff is make the turbos more responsive because now you have a 450 horsepower boosted motor spooling those turbos. So there's, the response rate comes up, but eventually the blower gets in the way. And so just running the turbos on the NA motor will make more power than running the turbos through the blower because the boost, the boost pressure goes way up. Like we ran, we ran 11 pounds from the blower and then seven pounds from the turbo and the net boost pressure was almost 22 pounds. <laughs> so it wasn't adding those two together. It was multiplying them or, or a percentage multiplication. I did trigger diesel people. So they're commenting, uh, they're slow because they weigh 8,000 pounds and they're slow because they're trying to push 7,000 pounds. Uh, it's not my fault that you guys can't correctly make your stuff go fast. Cause like I said, uh, I said diesel guys are breaking more parts than they're capable of flooring it. And then I said a 7,000 pound gasoline car that, uh, makes a thousand rear wheel on gas versus a thousand rear wheel horsepower diesel. The gas is faster. It's, it's faster. And then if is you it? can't admit that you're, you're living in a fantasy land. And then what I also said is diesel guys break, they're just breaking stuff endlessly. And then everyone's like, oh, 4,000 foot pounds of torque. It still can't get out of its own way. I mean, that's fantastic for towing something, but, uh, horsepower still wins. It's like, uh, Honda guys, a 600 horsepower Honda that makes a hundred foot pounds of torque is faster than a small block car that makes 600 foot pounds and a hundred horsepower. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would be. People are missing out on that point. Uh, torque through the roof is cool for pulling things, but not for accelerating. Uh, I mean, I hear those guys all the time where they're like, the comments are going nuts since I shit talk diesels. But they're, it's, it's a diesel truck to me. Not all of them. Nine, I wrote 95% of these guys are power downshifting something that's slow as hell. And they don't even know how to drive it. And it goes, blah. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, it's it, To me, a, a diesel is like a Harley. It makes a lot of noise. It changes <laughs> gears a lot. Doesn't fucking yeah. go anywhere. <laughs> Those guys on the Harleys are like, not all of them. Not all of them. Blah, blah, blah. 40 miles an hour, bro. Where, where are you going? Where are you going? You're triggering diesel and Harley guys. All, all of them. Oh, noise. David. And that, and then what's funny is those guys talk shit on noisy Hondas. None of them are going anywhere. Yeah. And then I, on dyno days, I would say it to people. I would say, you win the award for having more decibels than horsepower. Yeah. And that would, it would take them a, a minute and then they would act pissed. I'm like, it took you way too long to realize that. This is too loud for a hundred horsepower. It's too loud. Stock probably made more horsepower. Yeah, people are like, you broke the chat. Harleys are trash. Everything has its place. Well, that's what I mean. If it's a tow rig, 
It makes sense. You and I know a diesel can run at like 40 to 1 air fuel. Yeah. No shit diesels pull better. No shit diesels have better thermal control. No shit they can run a leaner air fuel. No shit they make better the bottom end torque. But at the same point, diesels anymore are a maintenance nightmare. Just agree on that. Absolute maintenance nightmare. Uh, they have so much. They ruined them. They used to be simple and mechanical and dumb and easy. And But any horsepower expectation of all of those vehicles is awful. And DEF and emissions and particulate filters and electronic nannies and uh, some of them are fantastic, right? Like you can buy a six, seven and you can hook up a programmer and turn it up till it smashes the transmission. But then what's it worth? $8,000 yep. transmission repair and hoping you can turn it up a stage or two. Uh, I don't know. Most of them are expensive, unreliable. I have plenty of friends that have gone from like a Duramax power stroke to like a 2,500 three quarter ton six liter Silverado. Yeah. And their life is just way easier. It's oil changes and tires instead of injectors, common rail, limp mode, failures, you know. Yeah. Everything under the a sun. Of, a lot of those diesel guys bring that on themselves because they want to start stacking programmers on and doing all that stuff and rather than just – I had a um, a Dodge Cummings. Uh, I think it was an 07 or 08 or something back in the day. And we did a couple of things with it. We did a programmer, I think, on it and, and, and tricked it to make the boost go up higher and stuff. But that thing was great for towing trailers or boats or things like that. You didn't no, even notice that anything was back behind there. Um, but I didn't, I wouldn't go race anybody in it. <laughs> yeah. And I went on, someone said Colbros are a huge issue. And I went on a tangent about that. Uh, on one of the other podcasts about someone asked an EPA question and I said, uh, not all of us, but a majority, the visual majority, what people see is what this brought yeah. it on us is like these people flooring, uh, Cummins and stuff, power downshifting all day long, blowing smoke all like they video themselves pulling up next to kids eating ice cream and roll coal on them. And now yeah. everyone fucking hates them. And now EPA is is ass-slapping all of these people with diesels and that work on diesels and everything. And then people were yeah. mad because I wrote diesels are a maintenance nightmare. Why did diesel mechanics get paid three times the amount of a gas mechanic? Because they're a fucking nightmare to work on. I mean, how often do you have to pull the cab off your Silverado to do service? <laughs> I wouldn't do it. I would get another Silverado. But I'm, I'm, I'd have, I'm clueless, right? Anyway, yeah. you ever look under the hood of a diesel, a modern diesel? I don't think I have. The, that that Cummings was the last one I ever looked at. You, can't, a lot even, of you can't even water. put a water bottle somewhere under the hood. It is yeah. smashed. It's completely filled with garbage. Uh, I don't know what to say to these people. Well, uh, you're not being <laughs> uh, it's cool if you like them and all like i have friends that do subaru stuff and they're like this is garbage but i like it i have no problem yeah. with that and i have friends yeah. that are like i have a mercedes it's a maintenance nightmare but i like it or i wear whatever and it's impractical but i like it i have a hundred dollar yeah. jeans but i like them that's that's totally fine but when you're yeah. telling me it's practical and cost effective and it is farthest thing from it uh, $75,000 truck with injector nightmares and maintenance costs through the roof is, uh, is, is farthest thing really from the truth. Truck. 
Yeah, people are saying I'm 100% correct, other than people that, lo that love diesels that are not good. It's okay it, to... Uh, yeah, someone says not reliable since 2000. 100% true. Fully mechanical wow. 5.9 Cummins is incredibly reliable, but it makes 120 horsepower. It's yeah. reliable because it makes no horsepower. Same thing with small blocks that run forever, and same thing with LS that runs forever. It makes 220 horsepower. It's reliable as hell. Uh, yeah. So where, where do we have a, uh, is there a comparable question here or are we, are we done? Yeah, people are. Yeah, people are, are like Prius repellent, douchebags, lug a diesel or roll coal. Turbo Jixer, BRB putting a water bottle under my truck now. Uh oh. Oh, and people are like, turn a screw and add 450 horsepower. Not after putting like a million dollar P pump and pre filter and mechanical pump and, and messing with it so it doesn't run away and blah. Yeah, it's, come on. Come on. This guy says, I agree with what you're saying, but I have a two, a 320,000 mile 06 Duramax that I beat the piss out of and it's held up great. If anything shits the bed, I'll be surprised. So there's, I mean, here's the thing. People have a 1500 Silverado with a 4L60E that has 320,000 miles that costs much less also. Uh, they exist, right? Yeah, anyway. Stock cars still roll coal. You're right. I've been behind Nissan Altimas when they floor it on the on-ramp, and it showers black smoke. Uh, but what's funny is that's an EPA federally mandated emissions controlled car that says it's okay. Like we talked about earlier, the computer says it's okay. And the EPA says a 90 air fuel out the tailpipe is okay. So that's fine. Don't that, worry about it. And that might it. be the first time they stepped on the gas all the way. <laughs> yeah. D don't worry about it. Yeah. Someone just said diesel mania equals motor masochism. That sounds like what I would say. 300k on a diesel blah 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 yeah anyway yeah there's good and bad but majority of it's real bad it's real bad just like people think i'm saying honda is better uh in a diesel application because it makes the most noise and doesn't go anywhere anyway uh 90 some per 99 percent of the honda community is total garbage and stuff doesn't work you know there's plenty of people that are doing it a service other people that have decent turbo ones most of them can't move out of the driveway. Half the sensors are bad, and they're just, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, everybody has their worst, but yeah. All right. Well, I think we have digressed to the point of making fun of people in the chat, and we're done. <laughs> yeah, that's getting cranky. <laughs> I'm getting cranky. I'm going to make fun of everybody that's on here soon. I'm going to I'm gonna go back into LS1 Tech days. There you go. That'll show them. Just don't they don't say anything bad about um, Chevy Sprint turbos because you know or or Nash Metropolitans. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, yeah, we're gonna say goodbye and everybody can say goodbye and we hate you and everything else. If you're looking at the chat here, but yeah, so it's one thirty and we've been live approximately five and a half hours. Wow. And then uh, I'm gonna go to bed and tune some things. But thanks for being on. You are. Uh, a wealth of knowledge, even though you would say you're not. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'm not. 
And then everyone says this was good and good night and thanks for being on. I want to say, like, uh, obviously people are appreciative and they're still watching. There's 300 viewers still. Uh, pretty wild. Wow, people are that interested in us, right? <laughs> I think most of those are family. Yeah, it's all, it's all, I paid. They're bots, right? We get paid. So Holly paid people to 300 viewers to connect and That's not right. watch go to bed at this point. And I sent checks to India for all of the <laughs> for all the bots. A bunch of people said that we should do a second one of you and I, just because uh, you know there's so much to share. But this guy I says he says I'm a Holly bot. Other people are like you're getting paid. Uh, they pay me too. Blah blah blah. When do we get paid? Yeah, here we go. But yeah, all right. I'm gonna cut it and we'll say good night and then I'll make this. Uh, an audio thing probably tomorrow or next week, whatever. So where where does it go if you make it audio? Uh, I can send you a link. I have I posted it in the in the thing. I'll do it again, quick guys. Uh, people are like, you should make this a podcast. Uh, I use a website called Anchor FM, and I put them on there. And then what it does automatically for me is it publishes on like eight podcast sites. It does oh, it for cool. me. So if you have, I'm not going to say it out loud, I have one, at A-L-E-X-A, you can say play the Sloppy Mechanics podcast and it'll load it through Spotify. It's on Apple. Uh, it's on Google Podcasts. It's on a bunch. I'm going to paste it again here. This is the anchor link. Oh, no, that's not it. I'm sorry. That's the dashboard link. Here's the Sloppy Mechanics link. It's anchor.fm slash Sloppy Mechanics. But when I put things on there, uh, it automatically authors, like I said, to Apple and Spotify. I have metrics here that say, what does it say? Spotify is 65% of my listeners. Apple Podcasts is 25%. Google Podcasts is 3%. Podcast Addicts is 3%. And others are 4%. Yeah, Podcast Addicts, what's up, yo? So that's that's the majority of my listeners are on Spotify. Apple Podcasts has been going up because people keep asking me to put it on Apple, but it, it already is on there. It gets authored automatically. Uh, well, 85% of my listeners are in United States. 8% are in Canada. 4% in Australia. Guatemala, Denmark, you know, everything else is under 1%. And I think it says... Uh, Oh, it has over 10,000 plays, and I've just recently started doing that because a lot of people are like, wish I could listen to this while I drive or work or whatever, and I realized the need for that, and I think I used 10 different podcast sites till I found this one that's good. So if people are interested in putting up audio that people can all listen to, uh, this site, the only limitation they have is like 250 meg per file. So if you have a long one that you want high quality, you can split the files. But what I do is if it's, if it gets too big, I knock it down to like 64 or 96 kbps, which it's like telephone quality, which sounds great still on the internet. So people can't really tell with voices. If it was music, uh, people might be able to tell if it's under 128. 128 is like CD quality, quote unquote. Yeah. 96 is like telephone, which sounds good enough for you and I, but yeah. Anyway. So do you put, do you just do these live ones um, for podcasts or do you do any of your other ones, your other videos for, for podcasts? Uh, 
I have done live stuff before. I can't usually can't get organized enough and I don't have a camera guy. And I worry like I'm going to kick it on live and then spend 40 minutes changing spark plugs with people and people are going to ask <laughs> questions and then nothing's going to get answered. Yeah. And I need like a camera guy and a film crew and people. And then what's going to happen is they're going to run up and be like, what are we doing, Matt? And I'm going to be like, fuck off, get out of here. I'm not going to answer your questions. <laughs> it's hard enough working on this with someone standing around like being a jerk so anyway yeah so so similarly people really enjoy the audio only uh i used to do some uh, we did a live when we had eights for eight i had mitch do a live stream and when i put it on the dyno because i said i would but again yeah. like he, he did the camera work and he's not an idiot and he got what we needed to and it's tough for people once they see something they like pan the camera at the floor and they just watch and it's difficult. Yeah. You need yeah. someone that's like a talented videographer and you need to, I don't know how people do it. Well, they have a dedicated camera guy most of the time. So sure. once it becomes too well, much of a job, I, wanna... I don't want to do it. Yeah. I want to get together with you on the phone. Maybe I, I want to ask you about, because I I'm wanting to do, um, people have been asking me to do interviews and obviously you would be one of them because it would be awesome. Um, I've, I've been wanting to include interviews and I do live stuff most nights. I do, it's only like an hour normally. Um, I do live stuff and I'll do some sort of subject matter. And then a lot of it is spent answering questions from guys that, in the comments. And so I'd like to load these on, um, as podcasts too, but I need to figure out how to do all that. So you're, you, you'd be the perfect guy to ask. Yeah, so what I do is this gets DVR'd technically. Uh, the live stream goes onto YouTube and then they publish it. And then I can go into my editor and I can download the MP4 video file. And then I okay. drop it in Sony Vegas, delete the video, export it as an MP3 file. And as long as it's under 255 meg, I can upload it to Anchor and then I'm, I'm done. It publishes on everything. So that's okay. how I do it. But uh, yeah, there's plenty of ways to skin the cat. But that's my best method I found to make it not a pain in the ass for me and everybody else. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, so how are you making this Google Meet appear on YouTube? Uh, I'm, you using, I'm using OBS as a stream okay. software. And okay. what I'm doing is I'm setting up like a a metered capture point. So if, look at if you watch uh while you're not watching the live stream everybody else can see it so I can bring this window in and you can see it's just capturing a section so I'm capturing this part of the I just moved my window in and out so okay. people could see it I mean it's been fairly involved for me to learn in my spare time and yeah I'm just capturing a window area other people do this fantastic like streamers and other people with green screens and I just don't care. I don't care about being yeah. uh, multifaceted and presentable and having a background and, uh, you know, maybe it was easier or whatever. Teach Richard how to live stream. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough because, like, I have uh, I have so much happening on. I have a 32-inch 4K monitor, and I'm looking at so much. Uh, yeah. It's tough. So. You have to be like a layout king and everything else to kind of, not that I'm any good at it at all. My my stuff is caveman compared to people that do this well, in my opinion. There's, I just sure. watched a video recently. I didn't know uh, Goat Rope Garage. 
does videos yeah. like this where he has guests. Yeah. He yeah. kills me. He crushes me on production. He has like the green screen and he can move himself and he I'm like, <laughs> wow, I'm garbage yeah. compared to this guy. He does a great job. So I've been watching more of those. What's that? Is he using OBS also? Uh, you know, I don't even know what he uses. We'd have to ask him. Uh, I just did. It's one of those things where I asked and I did a little bit of research and I found people yeah. were using it and I kind of taught myself and it's good enough and that's what I use. That That's how I am with the stuff that I do. I use um, Screencast-O-Matic on my videos where, I, where I'm talking about, you know, I'm in the corner and I'm talking about the dino results and stuff and I I just do that. It's fairly very simple. And I just go in. I, I edit all my videos on my phone. Huh. Yeah. So when I do the Dyna videos, I use this and uh, the same software, and I just make myself a window down here, and I show I capture the screens and everything, and that's yep. it. It's nothing super fancy anymore. I don't I don't really put myself. No one wants to look at me. They just want the facts. Sure. Just the facts, ma'am. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I could use a giant lesson in how to stream correctly, but I think most of the people that do what I do don't care about production because I have zero production on my videos. I don't have an intro. I don't have, I don't have anything. Uh, they just want it for what it is. And that's pretty much sure. all I do. So yeah. I feel like I'm faking it or selling it if I, not to make fun of people that sell it. Like I said, he does a fantastic job. I should take lessons from him, but uh, I don't care to put that much into it at some point. Maybe I should. Maybe it doesn't matter, sure. but yeah. Well, you do what you want. Yeah. Someone's like, I'd be interested in live stream tech. I would too. There's so m only so many hours in the day before I go to bed to watch how people do this. And it seems yeah. so involved and hardware and application specific and... Oh man, it's it's tough. Like uh, I'm gonna go to bed for f four hours and then go <laughs> tune cars and then stop and get my wife coffee on the way home and then you know, yeah. And then my Sunday is already six p.m. and I'm giving my kid a bath and like that's it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, oh yeah, that's my Sunday for everybody. But yeah, well, go take care of your stuff. All right. Well, awesome having you. And people say I should have you again. And that's definitely true uh most of my guests were done after i mean it's five hours and 42 minutes here like people are like have them again it's crazy <laughs> i can't believe people are still watching but that's how it goes uh i think i'm gonna take next saturday off and then monkey i want to have monkey fab next saturday but i think i'm gonna push him to next saturday just so i don't have to do so much on a saturday night before my dino appointments all right that would be cool bye I'll everybody Bye. Everyone's been dropping off because we're talking about nonsense now. Yeah. It's gone from 400 to 229. So we'll see you guys oh, later. Where's the love? <laughs> yeah, you guys. What the hell? Love, peace, and taco grease. That's a good one. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, see you later, Richard. Thanks for being on. Thanks for everybody for uh, checking in and listening to us ramble for way too long. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Bye.